Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Pop craze youngsters and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and standing with me today are Sarah B. Your girl. And Taylor Pops. Afternoon. Oh, they're back, pop craze youngsters, and I'm just going to lie back and let them shower me with all the and interesting things go <laughs> well i went to see one of my favorite bands mccluskey um Ooh. at a private gig um a small venue in hackney oh. with about 100 other people um out of whom approximately 30 contracted the novel coronavirus oh, COVID-19. No. and that was seven months ago Fucking hell. and uh, yeah i've got that long covid that um all the cool kids have these days oh shit in hell yeah so you know Fucking it- McCluskey. Wait till I get my hands on them. <laughs> They're dear old chums of mine, or, or at least one of them is, and uh, I forgive them. It was really not their fault. No, oh, okay. Yeah, um, Andrew, Andrew the singer got it as well for the second time. Oh, and, man. Uh, his whole family, him and his and and his missus who plays bass, and uh, their little girl all had it. And oh. um, yeah, so bummer. Yeah, I basically shielded for like eighteen months until I was fully jabbed. Yeah. Or double jabbed at least, you know, before. But this is pre-booster. And I was about three and a half months out from my second jab. Because what I was going to do was, like, go out and do a few things. And then, like, just nip back into hibernation before my immunity started to wane. Mm. And I just mistimed it, I guess, you know. You went out enjoying yourself, Sarah. That's what enjoying you did Enjoying myself. I mean, you know, it's really my own fault. <laughs> but that's the thing, is that it was at the time... You were still supposed to wear masks on public transport, at least. Yeah. But obviously a lot of people didn't bother. And it, it was just, no. I I was mad as hell for quite a long time. And I'm not necessarily over it yet. Just thinking about like, well, the chain of the way that these things work, it's all incremental. And it yeah. sort of works its way between it goes, it passes from one person to another person to another person until it hits your face. And it, mm. it's just like, oh, maybe if one person had worn their mask for 10 minutes, yeah. instead of leaving it on their chin, I might be able to like go out and do stuff and everything but uh, how are you now dog uh, just really tired the thing is that the first i mean you know we bloke and i both had it pretty badly to start with i mean not mm. not hospital badly although his blood oxygen did plummet at one point just because oh, you start no. to get better and then there's a dodgy bit where you might get loads worse and he just felt really ill and his blood oxygen was like in the toilet so i like, mm, should probably call you know it's 111 isn't it it's not 101 yeah that's that's when your neighbors are having a covid party you call 101 <laughs> when you're having a covid party just you 
on your own, then you call 111. So we called them and they were like, yeah, get an ambulance around. And it was fine. And they checked them all out and they were like, no, you're right. Um, but that was slightly hairy. So yeah, we were like pretty much down for the count for the first kind of two months. Um, and then he started to get better and I kind of didn't. I have got better since then, but it's really slow and it's very sort of incremental. Oh. The, the fatigue is the thing. Yeah. I have had issues with fatigue before and I have. I, I wish I had more words for it. You know, like there should be at least 30 different types that you can, that should have distinction. It's a cunt, isn't it? Let's just leave it to it, that. It's such a cunt, yeah. yeah. So, oh. I, yeah, it's just that I, I, the distinction between these two is that like for the first three months, it was basically like a giant industrial fatigue fan kind of on full blast all the time and now it's more like a sort of industrial vacuum just that kind of has a few different settings so what i'm saying is that first it blew and now it sucks (laughs) but i'm all right and it's nice to be back i must say oh and it's so nice to have you back ducker Taylor! Well? I understand the spiteful arm of Bollock came and knock, knock, knocking on your door as well, eh? Yeah, it did, but I was lucky in that I think Sarah was the last one on the Delta train, which is a, mm. which is a tough train to ride. Yes. It might have been early Omicron, but we'll never know. Yeah, mm. I got what was definitely Omicron. Um, but although I felt terrible at the time, uh, I seemed to have recovered, perhaps just out of sheer... Uh, subconscious determination not to be laid low by anything with the initials BA um, <laughs> nah. but uh, uh, other than that well Edward Lear wrote in a letter to Lord Fortescue in 1859 I am doing little but dimly walking on along the dusty twilight lanes of incomprehensible life so mostly that um <laughs> that's the spirit that and the usual hard work ensuring my place in history as the non-venerable non-bead <laughs> riddle that no one had any particular reason to solve but that's long-term work in the meantime i've mostly been glued to the heritage chart with <gasps> mike reed oh i've not seen this yet yes we've got sarah to thank for this. i am afraid so this is a, a strange discovery <laughs> so i happened upon this late one night um we, the the only other pop and interesting thing that i have to report is that we have acquired a small neurotic dog yeah. who is currently on my lap what's his name his name's dd 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 nice after the Ramones? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, also, um, he had two previous names, both of which started with a D. Right. And uh, he is also a Dachshund and a dog. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, he was in need of a, of a new home pretty urgently. Um, and so we uh, we said, yeah, we'll take him. And to settle him in, as is good to do with any new dog, I was sleeping on the sofa with him. This is a couple of months ago. Right. Just to, to have some soothing background noise. And for me to snooze to, I'd put on the Talking Pictures channel. Right. Which shows kind of archive and vintage films. Um, mm. There's loads of really good stuff on there. Um, and also lots of just dreck and lots of kind of amiable, pleasant 1950s flotsam, which is quite nice you know the sort of the, the gentle rhythms of those things are quite nice mm. to fall asleep to yeah. when you're settling in your fretty dog so i i tuned my television box to talking pictures one night and who should i see but our old pal mike reed yes <laughs> when i was expecting to see you know the mystery at 
Clifton Point or something. And it's like, <laughs> Mike Reed, what are you doing here? Are you going to upset my dog? Did he upset the dog? Upset me. <laughs> I've heard about this, but I've not seen it. Yeah. Like two girls, one cup. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just there concealed in the schedule between the quota quickies and the episodes of Big Breadwinner Hog. Um, <laughs> look for anyone who's foolishly never seen this program. This is a show where Mike Reed, dressed as a sixteen-year-old from nineteen seventy-nine, <laughs> his hair an oddly even shade of brown, mm. but his chin hanging down in the shape of an upside-down jelly. <laughs> Um, just sort of dangling there like a flesh chandelier (laughs) and his voice the same as when he was young except if you were listening to it on a tape machine with the batteries running down (laughs) right Um, and he sits inside a pulsating neon cube in standard definition Mm. and introduces a chart which exists only in his head voted for by people on the talking pictures website i think um and so he's always proudly saying this week's chart voted for by 350 countries and he and it's like 16 <laughs> people in 350 countries you know it all in the bands that are on yeah i think perhaps and this chart comprises current singles and online only releases mm. from the heroes of yesteryear Um, and in some cases complete unknowns who just happen to be the same age as the heroes of yesteryear so it's Um, something for the oldens then at last yeah oh that woman would be so proud yeah it's what it is basically none of these old fools can get proper record deals anymore Mm. old-fashioned so it's like the egalitarian leveling down of the internet age Mm. means that they can still create product and you know get it out there bit like 90s music journalists you know uh, (laughs) who would be a painter man but what's so great is that when you watch this it's mostly (laughs) videos shot by somebody's nephew on a samsung galaxy (laughs) so it's just like the artist hobbling around some street in hastings or wherever they live now but they've put it in black and white or they of course they've put on a load of colored confetti effects or just whatever comes as a preset on Windows Movie Maker or something. Yeah. Like soon you're going to see a video with a watermark on it saying, you know, freevideoeditor.com trial version. They often have as well the um, kind of karaoke style, the lyrics in really big fonts. Yes. Laid over the, the images as well. Yeah. Like, you know, those modern lyric videos where it's just an animation with the words coming up on the screen. It's like those, yeah. but because it's like old people and they don't know what they're doing, you'll get like a comic sand lyric video or something like that because it's all so imprecise and also there's all these videos made up of stock footage that's just like off the peg just hd junk like drone footage of a lake or something and like a (laughs) close-up of a horse and a a dog and a little baby and stuff just edited together with like the new one from tears for fears underneath or something so who, who features on this chart then come on tell me well it's quite reassuring um that most of these people are still alive first of all yeah i mean i hate being in this demographic because it's like watching an advert for a funeral plan with betty boo in it or something (laughs) but it's nice to see them again 
even if it is a bit enervating to watch what is technically a pop music program where every male performer is wearing a hat i mean i'm not mm. being mean but <laughs> once you notice it you can't unnotice it right, right. The, the, the honorable exception is uh peter cox out of go west right who as my friend pointed out should really be called go bold um but he's all <laughs> he's all jimmed up and symmetrical so he gets away with that mm. sort of ross kemp on horny divil seas look you know he's yeah. Like, His voice is still good. Mm. Got a hand he it to still him. Still sounds exactly the same. Oh, who cares about the music, Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> he is very, very bold, though. It's true. Fair play to him because the only other hatless guy I've seen in seven weeks of watching this program looked like the Scream uh, <laughs> from, his, from his LP. The Scream sings <laughs> includes his version of. Uh, don't worry, Kyoko, Mummy's only looking for a hand in the snow. <laughs> uh, but, so it's basically the pop equivalent of those Masters five-a-side matches in London Arena. Yeah, yeah, it really, really oh. is, yeah. It's the same people, but they look weird and they move slowly. Who else is on it? Um, Limal turned up. Oh, oh really? Uh, who, yeah, he now looks like a sex doll. Um, <laughs> or like a little Jack Grealish action figure. <laughs> <laughs> got run over because uh, a lot like a lot of these people i think he's been somewhat tweaked physically mm. since the, uh, appearing on the roxy you know yeah. like toya came on like toya's yes, new video right our favorite is toya encased in a toya shaped botulinum shell <laughs> <laughs> there's a hunky but somewhat confused looking paul young who right. now does cowboy music because that's oh, all his no. ragged voice can stretch to. Yeah, he's got video filmed in his front room. And you feel for him because if charity shops were chart return, no parlay would still be at number one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did he have a hat on? I think he had a cowboy hat on. He's homeless then. <laughs> he's not laying his hat down. Oh, this is terrible news. Ow. <laughs> um, Tony Hadley as well. Oh, Tony Hadley. Tony Hadley out to of Spandau Valley. Yes. <laughs> he was yeah, on probably there. Perhaps the only one of these people you won't hear on uh, Gary Kemp's Rock on Tours podcast. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the undertones. Oh, oh, yeah. The under undertones. <laughs> Some undertones. Yes. Not the no undertones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's off protecting fish now, so that's his deal. A bit of nominative determinism. Some buzzcocks. Marillion. Some of Marillion. <laughs> yeah. Owen Paul. You know Owen Paul? God, yeah. My favourite waste of time. Mm. He's on it. He's got a song. It's like Mumford and Dads. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, but he turns out he's got a cap and a beard and shades. He looks like he's been smuggled out of occupied Belgium. He must be super bold. Oh, yeah, a yeah. cap he's and a beard. A, that's, yeah, that's... <laughs> he's playing in a band with uh, Saxondale's girlfriend on backing vocals. Right. And with a certain deadening inevitability, Chesney Hawks turns out. Yay! Yeah. Yeah, now coming across like like Julian Lennon if his dad was shit too. Um, <laughs> and indeed, Julian Lennon himself, who scarcely believably has just released an acoustic cover version of Imagine. Oh, no. No. Possessed him. Oh, Julian. He's not even getting a cut <sighs> of the royalties. So what's the terms and conditions for being in the heritage chart then? Just be old. Yeah. Who's the youngest person you saw on it? Uh, I can't think. I mean, it's t Taylor who has seen more of it than I have. Who's on it from the 90s? 
the Boo Radleys. What? Oh, yeah, the Boo Radleys. Yeah, yeah. Some, some Boo Radleys. Yeah. The Stereophonics. Oh, God, really? A band from this century. Good Lord. Glad I missed the Stereophonics because I think that really would have upset the dog. Mm. So it's voted on f- by people from all over the world. But, yeah, it is basically, it's Mike Reed's choice, isn't it? They've given him his own show on, on this weird little channel. It basically, it looks like outsider art from 1993 it's it's quite it's quite a sight and it's difficult to i i feel like people are in it for for sort of different reasons Mm. it it immediately comes across as like the most desperate thing you've ever seen just people trying to cling to their kind of former glory as their face falls off but (laughs) it's not necessarily that for everyone there are people who just who enjoy doing it's their their gift they like to share it they enjoy doing it they enjoy the pleasure it gives to others they like being recognised occasionally in Morrison's but not getting harassed Mm. that's the dream for some people and it's like they might have they maybe they made bank back in the day they don't really have to worry about money maybe they've got something else going on that that makes them enough to tide them over you know there's people who are perfectly happy to be on the heritage chart show with Mike Reed Mm. and then there are people who are just clawing desperately and you can kind of pick them out quite easily so like Lee John just perfectly, perfectly content to be doing what... I mean, sadly, um, you know, always had a great voice, still has it. Yeah. Sounds really great. Um, looks great. It's true. Unfortunately, inexplicably doing a cover of Betcha by Golly Wow. Mm. But when I saw it, um, I don't know if they fixed this in later episodes, but um, the caption came up and it had a typo in it. It said, Betha by Golly Wow. <laughs> Which, by coincidence, is my roller derby name. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that, like, obviously a lot of these people are um, of, of a certain age. Um, Mike Reed is now 74 and most people I know I know what the fuck but uh, age comes to us all and the thing is it doesn't fucking mean a shit it really doesn't it's it's like ageism is like it's the forgotten ism it's the last acceptable ism and we do it to ourselves and others and it's a scourge and an irrelevance however (laughs) if I'm being awful be awful Sarah I'm going to be awful it can be unsettling to see mm. old pop stars still trying to be pop stars, like in the way that it would be to see old gymnasts. Mm. You know, like, are you sure that you can and want to be doing this? Yeah. So there's that current of unease yeah. running underneath the whole production for yes. me. You know, and the ones that don't give you that discomfort are the ones that remain free of self-consciousness and the need for validation, which is the case with all music made by anyone of any age, but especially older musicians. It's like, how much of a fuck do you give? If you're at home in your art and in yourself as an artist, you know, you'll you'll never grow old. Mm. The thing is, as well, it's like if you weren't good to start with, you won't be good now. If you were, then you might have retained it or you might have lost it. So there's just a lot. There's a lot going on all the time isn't there with every single it's exhausting i mean i i hardly i could hardly get through a whole episode except for the times when i was just fascinated by it and just glued to it yeah. you know i'm not saying that all these people should have been like the character whose name i can't remember in the story whose name i can't remember by guy de maupassant who finds one day one single gray hair on his head and exclaims finny <laughs> it's like i'm watching like the guitarist out of dire straits who isn't mark knopfler his new mm. record like who knew he was still with us and you just look at him thinking yeah. this bloke used to get his chicks for free and he fucking doesn't yeah. anymore. <laughs> now he has to pay. Yeah, and Lee has got a video which is 
it's like you couldn't take this any further. It's Lee John performing in front of a still photograph of a beach at sunset <laughs> that would be considered too generic for a Windows lock screen. And he's moving, but the clouds and the waves are not. It's like Mike Reed has lived his dream and actually frozen time. Um, yeah. Trapping Lee in this eternal moment. Like the the, the <laughs> three E's stand for extra exciting event horizon. Uh, <laughs> so, you know. Wasn't the Trocadero open that day? Yeah, it, it closed out oh, quite some years ago. <laughs> oh, right. I don't fucking know. I don't care what happens in London. <laughs> <laughs> but this this awareness of current affairs is why we end up watching Mike Reed's Heritage Chart Show. It's <laughs> but no, Lee still sounds all right. I've got to be fair. Hats off to him, so to speak. Um, yeah. But I just wouldn't want to watch his video on ketamine. That's all. <laughs> <gasps> you wouldn't want to watch any of this on ketamine, to be. To be fair. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking as well. Like Heritage, it's interesting. Like I think the official title is the Heritage Chart Show with Mike Reed. I wonder if uh, he lobbied for it to be called Mike Reed's Heritage Chart Show. Considering every episode starts with the words Mike Reed presents in massive letters <laughs> on the screen, I think probably he would have been allowed to call it whatever the fuck he wants. The, with its theme tune by Mike Reed. Um, oh, is it now? Yeah, Fancy that. And his backing band, The Immigrants. No, not really. Lovely Calypso number. Why hasn't he rigged his own chart yet? Come on, Mike. You know you want to do it. <laughs> well, he's got a few people in there who think, who's this bloke? I've never heard of this bloke. Who's voting for this bloke? This is just an unknown. And then you realise he probably came to fix Mike Reed's bath. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of weeks yeah. ago, and he's like, oh, I did overtake. I'm in the music business. Myself. Oh, yeah, really? You know, it's a bit of a cheeky monkey thing going on. But yeah. he's, he is he's very hard to love, Mike Reed, even now, you know, even at the point where you might want to sort of, you know, pat him on the head. He's no, 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 no. It's it, basically, I was recently watching an old episode of uh, Pop Quest, the Ooh. shit. 70s kids pop quiz program yes um the third series of which was presented by mike reed from the early 18th century right when he's got no glasses and this absurd black adder haircut like yes. a powdered wig uh he looks like a, a disinherited nobleman edward radcliffe second earl of derwent water's breath stinks Mike Reed has got he sat there looking like a, a a bad at maths Isaac Newton and you're just right. praying for an apple to fall on his head but an apple with a massive ball bearing inside and I was watching thinking he's always been the same he's a groovy fun crusher that's just what mm. he's all about he's like hi kids are you chewing in the bin <laughs> <laughs> he's i mean out of everyone if there is desperation in this show i think the kind of mother load of it is situated within the shriveled heart of my creed <laughs> you know because he wants it more than anyone else who is in that chart i think oh yeah Oh, yeah. And if there was ever a former Top of the Pops presenter concerned about heritage, it's Mike Reed, isn't it? 
Hey, tight fits new one's quite good though. <laughs> is it? Yeah, fallout, decent. Thing. It's funny the word heritage as well. It, it's kind of like hipster. It's not something nobody does. Anyone self-identify as heritage? Mm. It's something that other people will use to define you, and probably not kindly for the most part. But I don't know. Mm. Maybe they're sort of reclaiming it. You know, like I said, I think a lot of people don't give a fuck. They're perfectly happy to be here, but some of them are desperate. To, to be there just for some oh there's there's little interviews as well it's like it's not just the chart rundown oh really there's little interviews yeah. where the, like I said, the resolution just getting further and further, just getting the pixels just getting larger and larger until you can't even see who it is you know <laughs> yeah all done over zoom yeah yeah well no they have people go in the studio as well and sit with mike yeah the zoom ones are better though i saw yeah, mike yeah. interviewing the lead singer out of men without hats yes who Good perhaps Lord. should uh rename themselves men without hits um but certainly it's fair to say that men without hats is now a bitterly ironic band name yes <laughs> no it's a great show but i i got a bit disillusioned watching one of the most recent ones actually because that some actually still famous old people had records out and he showed all their videos so it got a bit boring but i don't tune in for that i tune in to see the fizz live at goose green you know and all that sort of stuff but it's what's one it was pink floyd's record for ukraine uh right. sting's record for ukraine marillion's record for ukraine lads it's ukraine not me <laughs> i mean it is touching this overflow of compassion from a country that is not let's face it not noted for giving a shit about other countries um mm. i think it's a kinship built up over all those years we've spent next to each other on drop down menus <laughs> it gives a sense of familiarity you know which i think is probably Explains why we also give a toss about the United States of America. Yeah. Um, and Uganda. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's a great show. And you don't need to feel bad about laughing at any of these people because every single one of them owns a six bedroom house that's worth yeah. 900 times what they paid for it in 1988. Mm. So what they do now, they do purely for love, the love of music, right? Which mm. is how it should be, right? As we all know, you shouldn't be paid for anything you enjoy uh, or <laughs> Certainly that, not. that you just don't hate doing because payment is compensation for suffering and or stolen time anything else is a hobby and you should fucking do it for love right your passion yeah that's right yeah so what you're saying taylor is we may have just coated them down but we've never forgotten that they've been on the heritage chart <laughs> so yeah the heritage chart everyone go and check it out how long does it go on for it's an hour long. It's an hour. Yes. That means there's two repeats of fucking tipping point that's not on the telly at the minute. So <laughs> I'm all for it. And remember, one day this will be the real chart when Nigel is in number 10. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you know what we do right about this time, pop craze youngsters. We stop, we drop, we bow the knee, and we give the rightful praise and recognition to the latest batch of people who have lobbed their hard-earned cash down our well-worn G-strings. And this month, those people are in the $5 section. 
Phil Robinson, Paul Kay, Minneapolis Fuckhat, Stuart Mills, Jeffrey S. Dixon, Kieran, Gayton B, Morgan Marshall, George White, Ken Aiden, Johnny Holloway, Amy Kayser, Hannah Blawit, Joanne Longworth, Michelle Lyons, Tim Ward, Riley Briggs, Mark Atler, Simon Mulvaney, Pete Boardman, Peter Moore, and ill-fitting Casio. Bless you. Yeah. Bless you and keep you all. And in the $3 section, we have Mark Colclough. Matthew Evans, Nicholas Leach, Paul Braithwaite, Saps, Jim Tomlinson, and Chip Steaks. Chip Steaks! <laughs> oh, and Kat and Don Whiskerando, you jacked it up a little bit, didn't you, this month, you lovely, Ooh. lovely people. You you come with me into the back room and watch me degrade myself <laughs> just for you. But no touching. <laughs> no touching. And of course, as well as seeing me defile myself for their entertainment and getting the latest episode of Chart Music ages before you minge bags who haven't dobbed in yet, the pop craze Patreons get to tinker and a tanker and a fiddle and a diddle and a whiddle and even a piddle with the new Chart Music top ten. I've got it in front of me. <gasps> Shall we have it, chaps? Yes. Yeah. Hit the fucking music! Said goodbye to the Mary Brennell boys' murder, Sugar Blokes, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Glitter, and Jeff Sex. Which means two up, two down, one non-mover, one re-entry, and four new entries. New entry straight in at number 10, Mini Whores. <laughs> A former number one down three places to number nine, the bent cunts who aren't fucking real. A non-mover at number eight, here comes Jism. New entry at number seven, the worst dressed homosexual in the Castro. <laughs> and a re-entry at number six, for rock expert David Starrett. <laughs> Into the top five, and it's a new entry at number five for Heap Big Cunt. <laughs> Up one place from number five to number four, Bomberdog. Into the top three, and last week's number one has dropped two places to number three, Two Ronnie's One Cup. <laughs> Up two places to number two, That Dog's Dead Now, which means... <laughs> The new chart music number one and the highest new entry, semiotic trousers. Oh, oh what a chart, me dears. Yeah. I was expecting a, a higher placing for Here Comes Jism as a sort of tribute, you know what I mean? Like posthumous. There were a lot of pop crazed patrons who asked if they could uh, change the vote in the wake of Dennis Wartman dying, yeah. and I said, no, sorry. Oh. Oh. What a shame. Dave Lee Travis didn't change the top 40 after John Lennon died, yeah. but he said it in a sad way. I remember listening to that chart, and he said, down so many places to number 21. <sighs> Just like starting over by John Lennon. He was upset. Aww. But did he change the chart? No. No. Nope. Say so what you like about Travis. He respected a chart. Poor old Dennis Waterman. Yeah. 
There goes Chisholm. <laughs> uh, still, at least, at least he got a couple of years out of those teeth. <laughs> so the new entries, mini whores, what are they all about? I sort of like baby metal, but not as good. Anything to chip in there, Taylor? Um, no, because... What's going through your mind when I say the word mini whores? <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask him that. Fucking <laughs> Thinking of uh, Shetland Pony. <laughs> the worst dressed homosexual in the casserole. That's obviously, you know, Fred Wedlock. Oh, there. yeah. That yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. He big cunt. Yeah, what, what was that from? <laughs> that was Johnny Cougar, wasn't it? The fucking tiger thief. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. I just think he'd be a really piss poor uh, adamant. Shaking hands. Yeah, if yeah, you yeah, will. yeah. Yeah. And semiotic trousers as well, as whatever mad shit David likes. Yeah, they're, they're, I think they would be angular. Mm. <laughs> so if you want to have your say in the only chart that matters, as well as getting every new episode in full without adverts long before everyone else, you know what to do, Pop Crazy Young. You grab this keyboard right in front of you and you mash, mash, mash patreon.com slash chart music and you, hang on, have I got any chart? change on me no i haven't i would have rattled a bit of change there <laughs> and you pledge all you can well whatever you can i know times are hard but chart music is here to get you through those hard times brothers and sisters that's true so this episode pop craze youngsters takes us all the way back to march the 15th 1990 a year that we've kept away from so far but one that sarah and taylor were very keen to get stuck into and hey who am i to break their little hearts so me dears i asked you to pick one out from 1990 and you've come back with this and i've got to say you've chosen well but what was it about this one yeah well because this episode pretty much represents 1990 as i remember it having yeah. been 17 18 at the time the peak of the 90s yes uh, a new dawn it was going to be do you remember mm. a new oh, yeah. dawn for the human race Pure optimism, pure beauty. Time for the guru. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think we ever figured out whether it was, you know, 1990s, as in the decade, um, the, mm. the, as if he was claiming the entire decade was time for the guru, yeah. or if it was simply if he was being a bit more humble about it and saying 1990 is yeah. time for the guru. I guess we'll never know now. We'll never know. No, yeah. it wasn't anyway. So no, it really wasn't. It. The 80s was a bit short on preening Thatcherites, wasn't it? The <laughs> 90s so. was going to be his time. Yeah, any zero year is is going to be interesting, just based on the fact that it's like an, an infant that doesn't know where its own hands are yet. You know, mm. it doesn't know what it's doing. It's a lot of jumble, a lot of detritus. You know, like in the way that the theory is that dreams are basically your brain just processing all the stuff that it couldn't process while conscious. Like the first year yeah. of a new decade is sort of, it's sort of like that, isn't it? It's all the kind of, it's a processing of all the all the junk before of the previous one before you can before anything new can come. Yeah, I don't know if it's down to how old I was at the time, but I, I think the key word of 1990 in everything not just music, is optimism. Yeah. I mean, the South African government have finally listened to Jerry Dammers. Paul Weller's finally brought the Berlin Wall down. Everybody's got the arse about the poll tax. And people are finally starting to believe that the foul hag Thatcher Axe is about to finally fuck off. Yes. There's a general sense of relief that the 80s is dead and a burning desire to kick on and put things right. 
Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah. Humanity never learns, does it, really? It's like, yeah, it's a new... No, it's like I always used to doesn't. love New Year, right? Because it's a secular festival. It's the festival of the fresh start. And yes. I just thought there's something so pure about that. And maybe I will come around to this again, but especially having had two absolutely shit, identical New Years on the bounce the last two years, I've just been like, fuck this shit. We really need to get a handle on the fact that... And, you know, it's like, no nothing's going to be any different. This is just going to be the same, possibly a bit worse. Mm. It's a false dawn, isn't it? Although, of course, obviously a lot of stuff, um, not least Thatcher, did get shifted this year. Yes. So fair enough. See, I remember that in 1980, people were very optimistic about the new decade. Yeah. Yeah, that worked well. And 1990 as well. I think that had gone by 2000. I remember on Millennium Night, I was at my mate's house, and I walked back to my house, and on the way, I passed this very drunk bloke who was staggering down the street coming the other way. And as I passed him, he looked up at me and went... What's the fucking difference? <laughs> <laughs> I thought, yeah, you speak for us all. That's mate. a big mood. But yeah. this this episode is right. Aside the fact that there's no proper acid house on it, but of course, no. it's like watching the top of the pops from 1969 and complaining that it hasn't got the Stooges on it. No, well, no, yeah. of course it hasn't. Mm. But other than that, I think this is a fair representation of 1990, at least as it was in the sixth form common room, you know, and on the high street. Mm. And it is what you would probably have been hearing as your train crashed into another train because they'd recently been privatised and so corners were being cut to increase profits at the expense of human safety. But you probably wouldn't have minded because you were probably on one mating, you know. And of course, that's the other thing, Taylor, because there's a feeling that everyone in the music industry is, to use the words of my mum, bloody drug in it. (laughs) Drugs are back. Hurrah! Sort of. Well, did they ever go away? Uh, I mean, the immediate moral panic about the drugs is is, is over, I think. I I would say that moral panics only last a season, really. That intensity doesn't last very long. It's kind of months, isn't it? Mm. But it has now become encoded in the mainstream. So this week's Smash Hits, it was interesting to see two two two-page adverts that struck me, one of which was the famous drugs, you never know what they'll do to you, the effects can last forever campaign. Mm. So yeah, this campaign had like a a picture of a a sort of picturesquely messed up kid um, and a bit of copy Mm. talking about, you know, you're going to lose your job and you're going to have to sell your ass and all of this, (laughs) which is, you know, the effects of of serious drug addiction, which, as everyone knows, is what you get when you take a drug once or occasionally. Mm. The other two page ad being uh, for, uh, it was anti-smoking and the message being, you really need to give up smoking because it's going to cost you 200 quid a year. So that was... (laughs) Think about how many drugs you could buy with that, kids. (laughs) That's the most important reason the only reason in fact to give up smoking is to you know cost mm. a living um so yeah also like any right thinking person i'm obsessed with public information films some of which made of by the now sadly defunct central office of information which if mm. they'd still been on the case maybe i wouldn't have long covid that's all i'm saying exactly so there were you know there were some public information films about the drugs um there were mm. two entitled chris and friends which were very vague about drugs. There were pills, pills, and more specific, it was pills. And there's one where, a, a, you know, a, a fucked up kid goes to hospital and uh, 
um, a, a doctor tells uh, his his mates, you know, yeah, he's he's very very ill and he might die, and they said mm. we, we hope he'll be okay. We're his friends, and there's this great yeah. moment of acting where the doctor looks at them with naked contempt and yes. if not actual loathing <laughs> yes. and you know we we are to assume that that their friend quote unquote is going to die of drugs yeah i remember the other one the other one was like uh, a cheap british version of uh, that scene towards the end of saturday night fever wasn't it he was uh, oh. he was dancing up on the bridge uh, because he was on yeah. drugs and, and he's going uh, oh yeah look at me and one of his friends goes Chris come down <laughs> and he turns around and goes to them my baby like that oh. I just it's, it's stuck uh, in my head ever since does he fall off into yeah yeah well yeah of course he, mm. he was on drugs though when he was on pills they they used to call him uh, bridge plunge biscuits <laughs> <laughs> it used to happen a lot fall off one mate eh? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that this is the uh, this is the chosen episode in terms of you know the influence of drugs on music, which obviously has been a thing since there were drugs and music. But uh, you know it's become particularly mm. pointed and acute in the last two years. And there's a very interesting example of yes. how this influence has made its way into Top of the Pops in possibly the most Top of the Pops way, mm. <laughs> just kind of squeezed <laughs> through in a really strange way, like a sort of like like kind of icing sugar out of a slightly deformed pipette. Mm. Mm. We'll get to that. Oh, yes, we will. But this episode, me dears, is absolutely shot through with newness and optimism, isn't it? Three bands make the debut on this episode. One from the rave scene. Two of them you could say are our bands. And if you disregard the fact that two of those bands have been going for fucking ages, you know, you do get the feeling that the dinosaurs are being chased back into their caves and everything's setting up nicely for the 90s. But looking back now, we can see the real story of 1990, which is the music industry being absolutely up arsehole street. Although the drive to get the CD player out has resulted in a quarter of a million British households owning one by Christmas of 1989, vinyl sales have absolutely gone through the floor, dropping by 50% since 1988. Really? Yeah. According to an article in Music Week uh, around about this time, there was an estimate that independent record shops were going bankrupt at the rate of one a day, uh, smash its circulations, tanking, and in the eyes of the music industry, the only bankers are compilation LPs by the likes of Madonna and Elton John. So yeah, it's uh, hard times for red spectacle ponytail music business wankers, good times for ravey chances and uh, indie sorts, and uh, interesting times for the panel of chart music yeah well and also this was like the last time really that you had a proper split between youth acts and stars from 10 15 20 years ago do you know what i mean that always causes a bit of a crisis in in the music business you remember the big concert of 1990 was uh nebworth yes an all-day gig featuring phil collins Ooh. elton john pink floyd dire Straits, paul mccartney eric clapton all at their absolute peak of irrelevance mm. and at the time if you were a teenager that looked hilarious yes right the 
state of it, right? And they were all relevant artists 10, 15 years previously, mm. unlike the mid-90s, by which point, you know, the Who were somehow mods again, yeah. you know, and Macca was playing the Hofner bass again, <laughs> and uh, everyone was mates and respectful of their elders, you mm. know what I mean? Or now, when groups from 15 or 20 years ago are still considered current, yeah, and we are our own Mike Reed's heritage chart. Yes, we um, are. <laughs> but... What's nice is the definite sense of movement away from the 80s, yes. here, at least, you know. Because it was probably the last period where culture, and specifically popular culture, moved fast mm. and it changed. And you could look at 15 seconds of footage of a street and you could guess not just the time period, but the actual year. Yeah. And in some cases, which quarter of that year mm. just from what people were wearing and what it looked like and it's unthinkable now definitely because it's slow to accord. like around my way the the so-called hipsters look exactly the same as they did 10 years ago yeah right? which is not very hip if you go around my part of the world there's places like columbia road which is right on the cusp of bethnal green in shoreditch and it's like a crane has picked up a little bit of hampstead and just dropped it into this sea of concrete and chicken shops as a like mm. a genteel oasis of like posh wine shops and these little twee bag push shops selling miniature pink teapots and yeah. pre-gabbling brioche you know and it's <laughs> but it's all populated mm. by people who look exactly the same but they look exactly the same as a decade ago it's yeah still blokes with big wire wool beards that look like a cloud of ginger gas and uh, <laughs> women with asylum haircuts and, and yeah. thick clown eyebrows dressed in romper suits and <laughs> platform trainers you know because yeah. that was the last time that culture moved in their dead brained world you know and yeah. so however much crap went down in 1990 there was still a sense that you were on a moving train you know, yeah. or, or be a moving train heading directly for another moving train. Mm, a groovy train, if you will. <laughs> I mean, I, I knocked the 90s a lot because that was the time when I was the most active and so I have to blame something, right? But there, mm. there was a lot to complain about, although now it's only ever remembered in the twisted terms of the 859th BBC documentary about Britpop in which yes. Steve Lamack tells us it was a radical musical revolution after which British rock was never the same. Oh, no, wait, mm. after which British rock was always exactly the same. <laughs> um, and, and you can trace back a lot of the problems of today to the complacency and the, the many missed open goals of the 90s. But there's also an argument that this was maybe the best time ever to be alive, despite everything, just because of that odd balance that yeah, was yeah. achieved. Like On the one hand, technology and public attitudes had advanced to the point where you know, boredom and and bigotry were no longer necessarily the default experience of living in Britain. Mm. But you still have that great nourishing and motivational force of often having to see and hear things you didn't like or weren't interested in, you know. Yeah. And more than anything else, this is crucial, the Second World War had not yet worn off. This is our big issue today, the problem for our times. The Second World War is wearing off. And all those things that we thought we'd learned learned from it and that which our generation took for granted all those shared truths about freedom and 
tyranny and human dignity and what's too dangerous to countenance or coexist with. These were all the things which temporarily saved the world or a lot of the world from moral squalor and servitude and obscurantism. And now they were no longer forged within living memory or barely, and they're beginning to dissolve. And it's fucking terrifying. And at this point here, 1990, all that was still firmly in place, along with a a shared understanding of objective truth. However shit things got, at least that was a solid wooden wedge behind the, the back wheel of this... SUV parked on a slope, which is all modern civilization really is or ever has been. <laughs> I mean, you know, the general belief at this point was that casual democracy was the only future and there wasn't going to be any global warming because teenagers in baggy white t shirts with bright African art designs on the front would <laughs> grow up and take care of it. Oh, God, yeah. Know? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Onward! Radio 1 In the news... Farzad Bazoft, a journalist for The Observer, is hanged in Iraq after being accused of spying for the British, and British media suddenly gets very interested in Saddam Hussein. Labour have opened up a 21-point lead in the opinion polls, with 50% of those polled thinking that Margaret Thatcher should resign. An anti-poll tax demonstration in Brixton ends in a riot after 3,000 protesters singing Stick your poll tax up your arse, a baton charged by riot police, resulting in youths lobbing stones and bottles at them in return. Eric and Lyle Menendez, two brothers from Beverly Hills, have been arrested on suspicion of nipping round the mum and dads with shotguns and reducing them to mints in order to claim $10 million worth of inheritance money. They eventually get sentenced to life imprisonment. Mikhail Gorbachev has become the first president of the Soviet Union and East Germany is getting ready for its first and last free elections while Lithuania has declared its independence from the USSR. Five Star, who haven't had a top 40 hit in two years, announced that next month's UK tour, which featured dates at Wembley Arena in the NEC, has been scrapped. They give no reason for this. 
makes the no money sign. <laughs> Similar to the Oxo crumble. <laughs> in happier tour news, Paul McCartney has finally been allowed back into Japan to play the gigs he should have done 10 years earlier were it not for him having a hunk of weed the size of a man's head in his luggage. <laughs> David Bowie has revealed that he feels guilty about being such a custard gannet in the 70s and that it nearly killed him. I feel bad that kids took drugs because I did. They looked up to me as a hero and wanted to do what I was doing, he says in an interview with Woman magazine. However, he says that he can't give up the fags. Woman magazine getting fucking David Bowie, that's insane. Mm. Yeah, well, wasn't quite as in demand in 1990. S-Express calls the Royal College of Art to be evacuated while they're shooting a video for their next single when a technician notices that one of the World War II artefacts they're using as props was an unexploded bomb. <laughs> I was petrified because I've been kicking it around all morning, says Mark Moore. Madonna and Warren Beatty have split up and she's gone back to her ex, Jellybean Benitez, because she was sick to death of seeing her name linked with his all the time in the papers. But the big news this week, courtesy of last week's Sunday Mirror, gay sex orgy on TV. Four men meet, they kiss and fondle, they undress and swap underwear, and anyone can watch tonight. (laughs) A shocking gay sex show about mass murderer Dennis Nielsen is to be shown on ITV tonight, despite furious protests. Presenter Melvin Bragg admitted the prize-winning drama was shocking and frightening, but he defended his decision to screen it on the South Bank show. Dead Dreams of Monochrome Men, performed by the gay dance and drama group DV8, upon on DV8. Think about it, man. (laughs) The show starts with a group of homosexuals cruising for pickups in a sleazy nightclub. To the strains of the song, I feel love. Two men kiss passionately and fondle each other's private parts. Two other gays simulate sex against a wall. Then a couple undress each other and caress their nipples. One man removes another's trousers and blindfolds him, while a third watches on all fours with his mouth suggestively open wide. Finally, Nilsson kills his lovers one by one and sexually abuses their corpses. The show is broadcast immediately after an Edna Everidge special, <laughs> sparking fears that children will see the sordid sex scenes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's wrong for some kids to see men pretending to have gay sex on the telly because, you know, as we all know, kids went mental for the South Bank show back in the day, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. But it's fine for the Sunday Mirror to tell even more kids who can read what actually happens. That, that's fine, that is. Yeah. Would you have watched that, Taylor, if you were, I don't know, 12? Yeah. Of course you would. Yeah. You want to see what they get up to. Yeah, look what it looks like fun. Uh, the idea of wearing someone else's freshly warm pants would... No. Yeah, that was the bit I didn't like. Mm. 
about Dennis Nielsen. Sarah, would you have watched that? Would I have watched the lads in the, the, pants? the pants swap? Yeah, of course I would. Yeah, I I saw all kinds of. I was so I was eleven. I don't know how. It's not that my mum was a bad parent, but I saw all kinds of shit that I probably ought not have seen at a, at a tender age. And and I I, I regret nothing. I t- I turned out fine. Nothing wrong with nothing <laughs> wrong with me, yeah. etc. Stuff you saw after being tipped off by the Sunday Mirror. <laughs> you should have done that. You should have had a, had a column in the Sunday papers every week. Hey kids. It's some filth you might want to watch. Yeah. Set your videos. Sneak downstairs in the dead of night. Yeah. Pop the telly on. On the cover of Melody Maker this week, Nick Cave and Sinead O'Connor and the Stone Roses. It was just a time when Melody Maker was just slapping as much as it could on the front page. Looks awful. Yeah. On the cover of Smash Hits, Christian James of Halo James eating a daffodil. The number one LP in the country is But Seriously by Phil Collins. Over in America, the number one single is Escapade by Janet Jackson. And the number one LP was Forever Your Girl by Paula Abdul. So, me dears, what were we doing in March of 1990? Uh, I'm going to be really boring and and I I honestly don't remember. This was like one of those fallow years. At some point, my brain has done like a sweep of memories and just decided to dump that entire year. Um, I think nothing terrible happened, but also, you know, nothing significant. I was just making the difficult transition from confusing childhood to horrifying adolescence, (laughs) which is like, that's what being 11 is, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I was going to school keeping my head down and um, probably still making many tapes of the top 40. I was still very much in recording the top 40 mode. um, So I wasn't, I didn't really have a lot of albums at this point. Who are you into? Um, Well, there's two of my favourite ever singles in the top 10 this very week. Um, Enjoy the Silence by Depeche Mode. One of my favourites of all Mm. time. Just, it doesn't even read to my brain as a song made by people anymore. It's more like a little comet that I can just... Mm here whenever I want and uh, Blue Savannah by Erasure which is also just a lovely melancholy pop song of which I will never tire both of which aren't on this episode uh, no sadly not but uh, you know I know they're there um, I, at this point I would still have been listening to um, Raw Like Sushi which came out in 1989 so I had the cassette of that till it was carved into my brain George Michael as well this is when Listen Without Prejudice came out which is such a lovely yes, warm album just put as soon as we heard that he died that just went straight on it was like oh god this is so fucking mm. good what a loss this <laughs> is one of those people mm. there's a few people that when they die and you, it's like years later it's like do you still miss George Michael? Yeah, yeah, I do. Mm. So Heaven or Las Vegas by the Cocteau Twins came out um, in 1990, but I didn't discover it at the time because, you know, I don't think they were on top of the pops. So, you know, I discovered that later. And right. I was still very much at the kind of mercy of the top 40. Yeah, i got far too much to say about 1990. I began 1990 as a schoolboy and ended it as an unemployed acid casualty. <laughs> oh, having, mate. Having passed through uh, three jobs two pop festivals and one polite expulsion from school (laughs) best year of my life (laughs) i turned 18 later this year right which of course means that if i hadn't officially knocked a year off my age in defiance of the pandemic on the logic that if i didn't get to live it i shouldn't have to cart it around with me like luggage uh i would have just turned 50 uh which would have been scary but I'm sure that when that finally does roll around in uh, 
12 months time I'll have had such a rich and full 2022 that it won't matter (laughs) quite ready for it yeah but I remember 1990 is a fabulous year although a personally turbulent one and even though this top of the pops doesn't contain either of the records which bring that feeling back in a flash for me killer by adamski mm, or, or yes. the joker by the steve miller band um, <laughs> it does it does suggest it I mean, but the thing is look in 1990 i wasn't a city kid and by this point i wasn't even a medium-sized town kid uh, we'd moved south and i was living in a small town surrounded by countryside and almost no bus services um, right. and for teenagers who think too much that kind of semi-rural environment is a funny thing it's the hand that giveth and taketh away because on the one hand there's something really good about being 18 in that space with like nature encircling you you know and having to create your own subculture with your mates as best you can uh and on the other hand it's a frustrating bore and a desperate trial we were fully aware that things were going on nearby you know the rave scene and all that uh but we had no access because we didn't have transport and we weren't really dancing people anyway we didn't have any access to those drugs because it was a rural area so all Mm. the supply routes for drugs were through new age traveler types so it was all (laughs) hash and mushrooms and that sort of thing and for the most part we had no access to sex uh, without a formal courtship and a phony pledge because that was just the times out in the Tory shires, you know. So that kind of psychedelic isolation, which lasted right up until I moved to London, really defined my experience of the world. But for 1990, that wasn't a, a bad thing, you know. It's like my main memories of 1990 are playing music with various lousy but authentically bizarre groups with absurdly mismatched influences that had nothing to do with anything that was current and instead of joyous all-night dance parties surrounded by bug-eyed loved up strangers it would be a gang of about eight of us dragging a ship battery powered tape player in a farmer barlimo's field and just sitting out there all night with a bottle of thunderbird and 50 pro plus listening to <laughs> neil young and sid barrett and lee scratch perry and our oxfam suede jackets <laughs> littering the bridal way with ripped up Rizzler packets you know and the dawn would be beautiful but it yeah. just it never felt symbolic you know i'll tell you what you know what we had to do and i've only just remembered this one of my mates eventually got use of his dad's car and on saturday nights we used to drive out to the blue boar services near northampton because the bright lights yeah because they would serve coffee until the early hours and not kick us out because we weren't eight teenagers sat there chain smoking <laughs> and to get to the services from the car park you had to walk across this like enclosed footbridge over the motorway mm. looking down on the lanes of traffic so sometimes we'd be in there playing human frogger <laughs> like jumping from side to side without knowing if a car or a lorry was going to 
emerge from under the bridge <laughs> into your lane, you see. And that was Saturday night because Jeez. we weren't welcome anywhere else oh, or else we hated the people we were going to find. So hang on, there's supposed to be illegal raves going on everywhere. What, they're coming round your way? No, we'd drive past them maybe mm. without realising it with talk talk playing at full volume <laughs> passing round a wet ended spliff of horrible soap bar hash and then it was human frogger until the soles of your feet hurt you know and then into the calf to be scowled at by truckers and by the old ladies serving because we looked like a bunch of shiny haired ponces I'll, I'll say that again we were a bunch of shiny haired ponces trying to live and failing miserably i mean we had our moments it's just that nobody else was ever around to appreciate them you know luckily turns out in the fullness of time there will be no biographer who has to worry about any of that (laughs) effectively uh none of it ever happened Mm. which is how it felt at the time (laughs) well i was 21 and working as a laborer in a furniture factory in ucknall called stag which made just about affordable stuff which was stained really 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 dark brown and the place was essentially a massive indoor school playground with power tools wow i'm working from seven to four in a barn with no windows meaning i'm not seeing any daylight during the winter i'm humping pallets of headboards around i'm fetching boxes of screws for people called ginner chinny and rat boy and i'm only about three or four months into the job but i've already realized that I, I just can't do this fucking job for the rest of my life. Not because it was beneath me, but because I wasn't physically or mentally prepared for the job. Yeah. Quitter. It wasn't the most diverse of workplaces. Yeah, there, was, yeah, yeah. there was one black person in the entire factory. Right. And he came from Texas and he wore this constant look on his face that said, how oh, the fuck did I get here? There was one homosexual that had a sign on the front of his bench that read, AIDS alert, don't bend for a friend. Ooh. With somebody bending over, Ghostbusters style. Yeah. Uh, there was one person who took drugs and he had an out to lunch sign on his bench with an arrow that read, fuck pig or whatever his name was, he's off work because of, and there'd be drawings of spliffs and pills and needles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one woman in the entire factory who wasn't working in the kitchen, which was my mum, who <laughs> pulled strings to get me the job and, you know, keep me from burning electricity on tellies and my Amiga, because, you know, that's how nepotism works. I mean, do you remember in a previous episode when I talked about Lance, the bloke with a Vionetta shirt who used to wear shorts with bananas and pineapples on them yeah. that were so fucking tight that his bollocks would flop out? Yes. Uh, he was my superior. Huh, in every way. Mm. <laughs> As you can imagine, there was a lot of what we nowadays call banter flying about. But, you know, Hmm. let's call it what it actually was. Bitching. These people were absolute master bitches. Every mistake, every misfortune, every excuse to needle someone was logged, filed away and deployed at the opposite moment. I'll give you two examples, right? There was this one bloke who got divorced about five years ago and every time he fucked up, the entire line would just shout, fucking hell, no wonder his missus fucked off. That's, that's a 
quite a clever one. The second one I remember, there was this lad called Warfare whose bench was directly under a massive blackboard with all the all the part orders on it. And uh, he got into a fight in a chip shop and was due in court for sentencing after his morning shift. And he turned up at about six o'clock in the morning and he discovered that someone had already been there an hour earlier and filled this enormous board with the odds for his sentence from slap on the wrist to electric chair and he he was actually taking bets on it Uh, and people were laying out money on it lovely the upside of the job was it was still the age where fucking about at work was not only allowed but encouraged you know people would spend the morning working the tits off to fill the quota and then get onto the serious business of playing cards having staple gun fights having 50 aside games of football or demonstrating that they were actually fucking brilliant at doing woodwork you know they used to knock out pencil cases boxes sculptures carvings bird tables, you know, all sorts. I remember one morning... I came across two blokes in the warehouse who got into an argument over whether you could escape from a crocodile by running at it and jumping over it lengthways. <laughs> and it got more and more animated as the day went on. And sometime in the afternoon, I went back to pick up some more screws. And I noticed that half the cab shop had disappeared. And they were in the fucking storeroom because someone had drawn an anatomically correct full-scale crocodile on this floor in chalk. And, and people were either staring at it in awe and pointing bits out or they were taking turns to try and jump over it <laughs> and nobody could so you know that the argument was proved and another day was successfully pissed away in Hocknell. and it seems like only yesterday that judas priest were at the miners welfare i know what happened Hocknell? Uh. the other thing about stag was the walls were absolutely festive with fannies <laughs> i saw less fannies when i was actually working in porn than when i did in that factory <laughs> and one of the other laborers he was this like called tom and some of the lads convinced him that um princess anne was coming later on in the day to be given a guided tour around the factory <laughs> and we had to get rid of all the grot uh, he said have i got to rip down all these posters and everything he said no 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 you don't have to do that here's some paper and i've already cut you out a, a template for a bra <laughs> what you've got to do is you've got to go around you've got to put bras on all the tits and princess anna will be cool with that <laughs> and uh yeah he started doing it and you know, some of the blokes were, were he nearly got fucking lamped a couple of times and we just had to tell him it was a joke before he he got murdered <laughs> but princess Anne wouldn't mind she opened the original wank factory did she Back in the 80s, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was going around and they cleared up all the porn and someone, some some wag left out a, a, a copy of Penthouse and they were taken around and everything and they saw the copy of Penthouse and tried to sweep it away. And she says, oh, don't worry about it. I know what you do here. Yeah. <laughs> She was a woman of the world. Bless her. That was the same building where the Happy Mondays edited uh, an issue of oh, Penthouse yeah. once. I forgot about yeah. that. Edited my arse. <laughs> oh, you surprised me. What, they didn't actually uh, go into meetings with the publisher and stuff? They didn't lay out one flat plan. <laughs> you know when wank mags are edited by models? Right. No, their, their duties stop and end up um, bending over a power mac with a pen suggestively in their gob. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if Bez did that. I hope not. <laughs> I'm going to say guest editing is basically, it's like guest DJing, isn't it? Where, like, yeah. you know, a DJ... Well, not always. Sometimes people can actually DJ. Usually they show up with a DJ mm. and they just stand in the booth like, giving it loads. Hey, it's me. Yes. 
<laughs> occasionally hand them a record, you know. Possibly the day after this episode could be the moment that I was in the co-op with my mum after work and I told her that I decided to try and get into university and she just looked at me as if I'd gone out and said, well, what the fuck do you want to do that for? She couldn't understand it and he was like, well, because I can't do this, mum. I'm not strong enough to do this job for the rest of my life. Uh, she just folded her arms and went, ooh. Yeah, she did. <laughs> so music-wise, I'm taking what's left of my wage packet after my mum's had a board, and I'm just lobbing it at Selectedis for hip-hop imports, arcade records for under-the-counter tapes of Marley Mall and WBLS, and Rob's records for second-hand funk and soul. I'm still banging We're In This Together by Low Profile, done by the forces of nature by the Jungle Brewers, and I'm absolutely gagging for Fear of a Black Planet by Public Enemy, which comes out in a few weeks. I can't fucking wait for that. I'm still watching Top of the Pops before going out with my mates to the rubbish student disco they insist on going to, but like pretty much everyone else of my age, I've stopped expecting to see something that's going to blow my tiny mind. Top of the Pops nowadays, to me, is more of a chance to finally see the bands that the music press have been banging on about that I couldn't be bothered to investigate for myself. And there's a couple of uh, instances in that in this very episode. So yeah, there we go. That's me. But... Anyway, pop crazy youngsters, you know that whenever we roll on an episode of Top of the Pops, we roll deep. And to that end, let us retire to the chart music shed and dig out an issue of the music press from this very week. And this time, the spotlight shines on the NME, dated March the 17th, 1990. Shall we have a riffle through, me dears? Go on, then. Don't see why not. On the cover... The stone roses standing outside a court in Wolverhampton, looking excessively leery and full of themselves. In the news section, well, Manchester continues to dominate, with the main story being reports that the Stone Roses are pencilled in two shows at Brixton Academy in June, as well as confirming ticket details for their gig at Spike Island on Bank Holiday Sunday, May the 27th. Oh, what a shame they didn't announce a reunion gig for Snake Island the other month, eh? Mm. Meanwhile... The Happy Mondays have revealed their forthcoming new single. It's a cover version of He's Gonna Step On You, which was originally a number four hit for John Congos and T-Rex's fly label all the way back in 1971. It's all down to Electra Records in the States, who asked the Mondays to do a cover version for the label's 40th anniversary LP, Rubaiyat. After ditching an idea to cover a Tom Waits number, they opted for He's Gonna Step On You, but eventually decided to keep it as a single and give Electra another Congo's cover, Tokoloshi Man, instead. Oh, and the Inspiral Carpets have announced a big adopted hometown gig at Manchester's GMEX on July the 21st. The alternative takeover kicks up a gear as the compilation labelled Telstar, best known for LPs such as the Joe Longthorne songbook, the Rosemary Party album and Jive Bunny the album, have announced the release of their first TV advertised indie album, Product 2378, featuring in spiral carpets, New Order, P. 
Pixies, The Wonder Stuff and Morrissey. There's a bit of a come down for them, isn't it? In other label news, the enforced ramage of CDs down our throats continues as WEA announces that 1,205 vinyl album titles are to be dropped from their catalogue, approximately 40% of the company's current listings. When did you get a CD player? Uh, I got one when I started at Melody Maker because I needed one to review the CDs that Mm. everybody kept sending me. I didn't have one before that. Couldn't afford it. No. I, I don't remember, but I definitely had. I had a, one of those all-in-one stereos that looked like a sort mm. of stacker system, but wasn't. It was all integrated. And I did have... It's an interesting... Yeah, I have no idea. But I definitely had one of those. And then when I started at Melody Maker, I had this blue CD Walkman mm. for some reason. And just listening to CD singles on the tube, fanning mm. about, like, changing them in my lap. It's a little oh, palaver. Yeah. But I was I was really glad because I was a music journalist and I was in London yeah. and I had a CD Walkman. So, you know. 1995 for me. Yeah. Well, I would have got one earlier, but I couldn't play any of my albums on it. Exactly. Yeah. I ended up buying loads of CDs that are sitting in big shopper bags in the crap room at the moment. Oh, yeah. Thanks, music business. You cunt. <laughs> Over in America, hundreds of fans were locked out of a public enemy gig at the Hollywood Palace after the promoter oversold tickets. Police in squad cars and helicopters were called out to disperse the crowd and the gig was later halted at the request of the LA Fire Department as the crowd had been counted as double the legal limit of 554. It didn't help that Public Enemy's performance started with Professor Griff giving a 10-minute speech where the Arcala of the S1Ws had a go at the media and talked about an AIDS conspiracy against minorities. Yeah. Who the fuck is booking Public Enemy in a venue that only holds 554 people, man. Mm. Fuck's sake. <laughs> Meanwhile, Def Jam Supremo Russell Simmons, who recently banned Griff from Def Jam's New York offices, is reported as stating, My disliking Griff has nothing to do with my friendship and aberration for Chuck D, Flavor Flav, and other members of Public Enemy, but Griff's wildest imaginary Jewish conspiracy could not have done more damage to Public Enemy than Griff has himself yeah it's it, it's horrible to remember all that stuff isn't it all the mm. conspiracy so the racism and the science denial and <laughs> farrakhan and all that i know you look looking back they're like the black morrissey and sadly the writing is on the wall for bill posters as westminster council confirmed that they are to crack down on fly posting in the city with epic receiving warnings of legal action if they don't remove posters advertising the current single by the godfathers i'm lost and then i'm found the new move is part of a council clean-up campaign, but with the new tactic of ignoring the people who slap them up and going directly for the ones who gain benefit from the advertising. Oh, man. I used to love seeing old gig posters up on walls in London when I was watching Minder and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. You see, you see why they were clamping down on them, though, because they do spoil the beauty of those green corrugated iron fed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's like, you know, like when they... Uh, they did out the tube a while ago and uh, there was suddenly they they peeled back some of the sort of sedimentary layers of, of posters yeah. you can see all these really old ones it was brilliant and it's like yeah i kind mm. of wish that you know you just just keep slapping them on slapping them on and then future generations will be able to like get some little tools and peel them away and go 
Wow, holy shit. The pavements would be about a foot wide, though, wouldn't they? (laughs) In the interview section, well... Guru Josh is in the chair for the material world section. The former portrait of the artist as a consumer, and as predicted, he's got a lot to say for himself. He claims that the rave scene is turning from the love children to the hate children. (laughs) They're going to go ahead and introduce legislation, and the kids are going to say, fuck you lot, and go ahead with it anyway. If the government turn up, we'll just petrol bomb them. (laughs) Yeah, because fucking Willie Whitelaw's going to turn up at a rave, isn't he, telling people to be quiet? (laughs) After being asked about being kidnapped by his parents as a child, he says, I think a lot of people have been through that, haven't they? I just had that sort of childhood. It was a right pain in the ass. Right, how do you get kidnapped by your parents? If your parents take you on holiday and put you in a car and drive you to a caravan park in Skegness and you didn't fancy it, isn't that kidnapping? I would have thought like one parent, you know, if mm. if they, you know, people like steal when they don't have custody, but they just nick off with their kid anyway. Mm. So like if his parents didn't have custody of him, maybe that's how it worked. Mm. But yeah, I think he may have a slightly uh, skewed idea of a normal childhood. I had a paranoia when I was a kid that my parents were going to kill me. What? <gasps> yeah, I don't like they were just waiting for the right moment. Just only for about <laughs> six months. But I can remember. Oh how old were you? I don't know about seven or something i remember walking oh. through a steam fair somewhere in worcestershire <laughs> and thinking maybe today's gonna be the day <laughs> and sort of half hoping it would be that i wouldn't have to look at any more of those engines oh. well they were just gonna throw you into a furnace like grab you by the <laughs> by the scruff of the neck and the waistband and just hoy you in there and dust off the hands like oh glad we don't have to uh, feed and clothe him anymore <laughs> that was worth going through a two-year adoption process <laughs> we could have just picked one off the street <laughs> he concludes by stating i'm a modern thatcherite i'd vote for her policies but i prefer someone else to instigate them there's a lot of serious problems in the world and one of the minor ones is acid house parties they haven't got enough manpower to solve murders and meanwhile they're arresting people for dancing it's a very sick world we live in why does he want somebody else to uh i know that's policy because I mean, he hates just a women man. yeah just because like- <laughs> he's got terrible views and is also sexist paulo hewitt nips over to carson california for a natter with the latest group of fun-loving rappers the booyah tribe they give him a demonstration of their rigorous martial arts training regime and then booyah's leader ted davu talks to hewitt about how rap saved the tribe from almost certain death in the la gang scene while his brother george tells us he used to be an accountant earning 110 grand a year before joining the crew there's a bit of chat about how being in prison showed them how to be tough and that their debut album new funky nation is quote for the kids so they will never have to say i couldn't do this before gangs brought me down meanwhile gavin martin nips up to the black country to have a word with robert plant about his frankly randy new lp manic nirvana 
What an amazing title predating two massive bands of the early 90s there. <laughs> what a seer Robert Plant is. Uh. Talking about the prolific sexual references in his new material, the yim yam thank you ma'am rock god insists. I mean, <laughs> it's been one of those times for me. If you ejaculate and you like it, what are you going to do? Sit on it forever? <laughs> <laughs> he reassures Martin that his return to ATV land in recent years has brought him down to earth and back to music at a time when his old band stock has risen. It's quite mind-boggling to be so out of favour that no one would mention the band for five years and suddenly Ian Asprey wears a Zeppelin t-shirt and it's all okay. What the fuck is all that about, he says. The people who are my age and have got mortgages and stuff aren't exposed to music other than the mainstream. To them, Chris Rear is what's happening. Nobody knows about Big Black or what Faith No More were like with the old singer. For me, Husker Du's bed of nails is an anthem, so I'm impossible to live with. I'm still raving about music. Most people probably think I'm a wanker. Well, if you will drink with coppers in the Queen's head. But at least you're not sitting in it, Robert. Because it's 1990 and it's the NME, the Stone Roses get a quadruple page spread entirely focused upon the adjourned hearing of the case of Birch versus Brown, Squire, Minefield and Wren at Wolverhampton's Magistrate Court, which involves the band well dischuffed at their old label FM Revolver for re-releasing Sally Cinnamon with an accompanying Mad For It video, liberally dousing the label's officers, boss Paul Birch, his girlfriend, and several cars, including a Mercedes, with paint. With the bulk of the spread made up of a court report from Stuart McConey, it's left to James Brown to actually talk to Monkey Twat and his mates, who moan about the video. It's shot in Manchester, and it's got this bloke sitting in Piccadilly Station reading the face he screeches. It's fucking insulting. But the biggest insult, according to Brown Eye, is when Birch asks the Roses to make an appointment to see him. That's when it's all kicked off. He's earning a lot of money off us, and he tells us to make an appointment. He thinks we're not real people, we're just fucking puppets, performing monkeys that he can make a buck off. So then we painted him, and his office, and his motor, full tins. They are beyond good and evil. Americana critical darlings the Cowboy Junkies tell Sean O'Hagan that they're really into BDSM and Satanism and expand upon their theories about the alien origins of Sasquatch they say some other things as well but it's dead boring (laughs) and Stephen Wells gets a whole page to investigate American Rock's backlash against gays in advance of the Channel 4 show out on Tuesday devoting an episode to it which is directed by Viv Albertine the piece covers Axl Rose's lyrics for One in a Million, John Bon Jovi getting booed off stage in Dublin after dropping the other F word after his beloved New York Giants lost a game against the San Francisco 49ers, a member of Skid Row wearing an AIDS kills F words dead t-shirt, and Chris Doherty from Gangrene saying, AIDS is a scary thing, but it's kind of good in a way. It kind of shows people what they're assholes for. Whoa. Being a member of Gangrene, for example 
John Savage, Frankie Knuckles and Paul Rutherford get to represent the right side of history, whilst Wells conducts a survey with 20 metal fans from Quoheads to Glamours. Of the 12 interviewees who claim to be Guns N' Roses fans, 11 said that they thought Axel was full of shit, writes Wells. Crusher from Kerrang! weighs in as well. The shit that these bands come out with is totally indefensible, totally pathetic. I mean, this idea of the metal audience as sun readers is way out of date. Yeah, good old metal fans there. Yeah, well, they're, they're usually nice blokes, aren't they, metal fans? That's always the thing you discover, yes. you know, as a young uh, mod. Mm. <laughs> most mods are wankers, yes. and most metal fans are really nice. In the single reviews, well, in the chair this week is Edwin Pouncer, and his single of the week is I'm Going Straight to Heaven by MC 900 Foot Jesus and DJ Zero, which he tells us will shake your spine, but also make you look over your shoulder as though some presence older than the earth itself has just entered the room. Also getting the thumbs up is single of the week too. Popcorn double feature by The Fall, in which Marquis e. Smith delivers his vocal like a tired Lou Reed, aghast at the banality of life in a recording studio, while the rest of The Fall lumber along, as though the song is a rotting albatross round their collective necks. Take it off in disgust, <laughs> only to find yourself playing it again mere minutes later. You're hooked. Damn the fall for being so sickeningly gifted. But it's a coat down for All or Nothing by Millie Vanilli. <laughs> Slush puppies Millie Vanilli throw a couple of spanners into the album mix and pout out something that sounds a lot lumpier than their usual wet manure production style, says Pouncey. He's similarly unimpressed with Real, Real, Real by Jesus Jones. What sounds like three dots scoring 180 on your skull kickstarts this latest mini-miracle by Jesus Jones, with the great man himself weaving through the effects like an ace skateboarder. As clever as it is, it still fails to convert me. The Dinosaurs of Rock return with multiple singles this week, and it's a very mixed bag. Pouncey says J.J. Kale's Hold On Baby is pretty damn good. Remarkably asserts that Gary Moore's cover of Old Pretty Woman is wholesome stuff, but is less convinced by Cliff Richards stronger than that. Instead of gracefully slipping into old age, as indeed he should, Cliff informs us that he's getting stronger. I think he's pretty creepy. <laughs> Dave Edmonds' King of Love is described as in which Dave gallantly proves that you can't keep an old rocker down, unfortunately. And he greets the Who's live version of Join Together by saying, Wowee, really dig the Jews harp opening, lads. The only plus in this otherwise dreadfully recorded snippet from the Who's recent comeback tour. Who asked them to come back anyway? Not me. And finally, the beloved's Your Love Takes Me Higher really brings out Pounce's curmudgeonly side. This record sounds like you've just walked into a party that's in full swing. The coats are stacked to ceiling height in the bedroom. There's nothing left to eat except scotch eggs. And someone seems to have taken up permanent residence in the toilet. Still, the atmosphere's great, isn't it? I hate parties. <laughs> 
In the LP review section, the lead review this week belongs to Violator by Depeche Mode. And although Helen Mead reckons it's a preposterous title, more suited for a heavy metal album or a hardcore porn comic, it sees La Mode as filling a gap in a current musical climate of electronically produced music. Comparing the album to its predecessor, 1987's Music for the Masses, Mead observes that Violator seems almost a step back, cleaner, sparser, more clinical. And herein lies the contradiction, as that should mean they also get pervier, but they don't. Either way, Radio 1 won't ban it, just titter Riley, because Depeche Mode are nice boys and thankfully don't seem to have anything to do with drugs or the acid house scene, hand to chin. I forgot they did an album called Music for the Masses. That's obviously Mm. some kind of joke. I can't work out what kind of joke it is. The David Bowie compilation Changes Bowie gets applauded by Andrew Collins as long overdue, as Bowie's finally become an end-of-the-peer show greatest hits machine. A man touring without a new album is an honourable man indeed. Thus, Changes Bowie is a tour souvenir, a T-shirt you can play at 33 and a third. And it's brilliant. Its existence is a huge apology for Dave not dying in a drug-related car crash in 1984. There had to be one bad apple to spoil the barrel load, and it's called Fame 90 Remix, an unnecessarily clumsy rape of a perfectly smashing song. Oh, and he notes that the enemy's current campaign to stuff the ballot on Bowie's phone invoked to determine his set list in order to get him to do the Laughing Gnome has been ignored in the track list. That's an odd phrase, isn't it? This unnecessarily clumsy rape. Yeah, let's um, let's not even. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard those words put together in that order before. Is this an LP? Is this an EP? Is it a redundant zombie pantomime dame once more dragging his wormy cadaver onto the stage and squeezing the pus for pennies? As Stephen Wells of Just Say Ozze, the live LP by Mr. Osborne, capably assisted by Geezer Butler. It's a chapter of my musical career I can now close, Ozzy tells me. Leave it out, Oz, I said. That's like John Cleese not doing his silly walk every time he makes a party political broadcast for some nasty little right-wing party. Can't be done. Beauty by Ryuchi Sakamoto has naive nip and charm, according to Betty Page. Caution Horses by the Cowboy Junkies has Terry Stoughton recommending that we light that cigarette, fill that glass and get ready to be heartbroken. That Telstar indie compilation product 2738 has Andrew Collins frothing that it's about as alternative as Ben Elton, but just as dependable. And the Urban Classics 3 collection of 70s soul gets sniffily derided by Ian McCann. Drawn from Polydor's soul vaults, this is a selection of nearly hits, later to be collector's items. Fans of Barry White, and I am sorry to say there are many, will be very happy with the inclusion of Johnny Bristol's You and I and Isaac Hayes, the original Crazy Boldhead, offering a bedroom 3B. These songs are very much album tracks, aimed at a very small retro market. If you're living for today, avoid. In the gig guide, well, 
David could have seen creaming Jesus at the Leicester Square Hippodrome, Gil Scott Heron at the Town and Country Club, Lush at Subterranea, Chapter House and Slow Dive at the Camden Falcon, the Jungle Brothers at a Tribe Called Quest also at the Town and Country Club, or Ruptured Dog at the King's Head <laughs> Jesus Christ, is that the worst band name ever? Taylor could have seen the Steve Gibbons band at the Irish oh, Centre. They're still going, Taylor, fucking hell. Wow. Still human beings as well, disappointingly. Uh, The Sand Kings and Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine at Birmingham University. Benny King and Eddie Floyd in the This Is Soul show at Birmingham Town Hall. The Georgia Satellites of the Hummingbird. Nigel Kennedy at the Hippodrome. Or Bath Chair Suicide at the Hare and Hounds. Fucking hell. (laughs) Neil could have seen Lush at Coventry Polytechnic. The Darkest Wish at Alice's Restaurant. Cud at Warwick University. Or Gdansk at the TikTok. (laughs) Sarah could have seen Brother Beyond at Sheffield City Hall. Thunder at Bradford Queen's Hall The Fall at Hull Uni Or Curiosity Killed the Cat at Leeds Uni Al could have also seen Brother Beyond at Nottingham Royal Concert Hall Saxon at Rock City The Libido Boys at Oysters Or nipped out to Leicester to see Ned's Atomic Dustbin at the Princess Charlotte Or Curiosity Killed the Cat at Derby Assembly Rooms No, fuck that, mate and Simon could have seen Cud and the Chrysalids at Swansea Uni, Thunder at Traforest Wells Polytechnic, or Nosferatu at Cardiff New Bogies. Thunder and Cud following each other around the country there. I'm just thinking, like, if you had a Cud covers band, it would have to be called Cudn't, wouldn't it? <laughs> or Cow Shit. <laughs> In the letters page, well, Andrew Collins is overseeing the Angst page this week, and the readers have rock royalty in their sights. This letter is aimed at the asshole I got talking to me on the tube the other day, writes Tron of Essex. We only travelled together for one stop, and I had to get off at Woodford, so I didn't get the chance to tell him that all Irish people do not adore you two just because they're Irish. I hate Bongo and his I am a new god attitude. I hate David Evans and his stupid stage name. I hate that Clayton walked from a Dublin court referring to Clayton's 1989 prosecution for possession and supply of marijuana with a paltry fine when my mate got six months for a fraction of the amount because he's not rich and famous. And I hate Larry on principle. The music is awful. I've heard dodgy stories concerning their minders and the way publications like Hobbs press crawly bum lick them every inch of the way pisses me off immensely if i ever see you again you know who you are you red-headed twat it's kicking time (laughs) (laughs) hold me back everyone please look back to Stuart McConey's primal scream interview in your 5th of August issue of 1989 when Bobby Gillespie is asked wasn't there a temptation to introduce a dance element into primal scream to which he replied absolutely not we're not stupid we couldn't do it if we tried writes Andy Mosley from Birmingham Well, it seems that Mr. Gillespie has obviously become stupid in the six months since the interview and has tried and couldn't make a dance record. Ian McCann coated down the creature's new single, Fury Eyes, the other week, and Lee Godfrey of Manchester is incandescent with rage. 
dear Ian McCann, you are a disgrace. To be given the job of reviewing the singles and then turning it into an egotistical outing of banal nonsense is a waste of everyone's time. <laughs> How you have the audacity to say that the creatures, quote, have absolutely nothing whatsoever going on in their skulls is beyond me. It's distressing that someone such as yourself has nothing more to say than drivel about your cat. Criticism, yes, welcome any time, but mindless scribbling is the unacceptable face of inadequate music journalism. You should be shot. (laughs) And the tedious politico sums up the go-ahead optimistic spirit of the age when he writes... Is it my imagination, or have I lived the last ten years of my life under a non-too-wholesome bourgeois leadership, intent of stripping me of every right I ever believed fundamental to everyday life? The reason I ask is because when I read your apparently well-informed paper, I wonder if we live in the same country. Whereas one might expect growing resistance in pop circles, instead it seems as though politics has become a dirty word. As the Tories bang the poll tax, clause 28, water and electricity privatisation, bans on Sinn Féin supporters etc. through Parliament, what do we get in the NME? Sycophantic articles on wanky overpaid musos with expensive equipment making dance records. Boring conservative twats like the Stone Roses, still living in the 60s like the In Spiral Carpets et al. Sad proof that indie music has become as conservative and unadventurous as heavy metal, punk or any other safe middle class rock genre. Acid inspired nonsense versus not the stuff of revolution. When his enemy covered, reels off long list of deservedly obscure bands. Perhaps <laughs> it's just because those bands are too political and individual for the enemy. Pop music's own cosmopolitan. Oh! Uh, yeah. Burn! We should go back to the fiery, politicised lyrics of the punk bands who did so much to prevent the rise of Margaret Thatcher. Yes. <laughs> it's weird, though, isn't it? This? It's like mm. people who think that impotent rage is more constructive and more subversive than finding an alternative and pursuing it. You know, it's like this yeah. things like a Billy Bragg gig would cause shockwaves in Conservative Central Office, whereas 400 illegal acid house raves every weekend was just light entertainment. <laughs> and just made the government smile contentedly at yes. the placid, law-abiding <laughs> youth of Britain, wasting yeah, their golden years on meaningless enjoyment. Get on one, mate, eh? Yeah. It's the 90s. He's right about the spiral carpets, mind you. So if the enemy is pop music's own cosmopolitan, what does that make Melody Maker? Uh, New woman. (laughs) Harpers and Queen. Or four women. Do you remember that? What was that? It was a wank mag for women. Oh, nice. It had knobs in it and everything. (laughs) It came fresh from Dickie Desmond's wank factory. Wow. Closed down in the, I want to say, late 90s. 
the running joke in the office was four women was the uh, circulation. Yeah. <laughs> so, Al, you, uh, I believe, worked at Scarlet Magazine, as did I. Yeah, that's how we met. Yeah, so. yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was a sub-editor there for, for a time. And I remember somebody, uh, someone else who had worked on similar, you know, magazines for women, mm. one of which was fairly bristling with dick, but it was all, really? all nestled behind sort of modesty <laughs> items for legal reasons, you know, because you can't actually... Yeah. You, you can have tits, but but no dick, you see, because mm. these are double standards. You can have dick, but it can't be erect. Yes. I mean, you know about the Mullican tire law, don't you? <laughs> um, I, what does it have to do with... Um, the Mullican tire kind of like juts out from Scotland yes. at a certain angle. And <laughs> if a cock is displayed and it's a uh, bit higher up than the Mullican tire, uh, then that's not allowed. God, we're, we're such a weird species, aren't we? Did men have to pose naked next to someone holding up a map of Scotland <laughs> just to check? And here's the weather. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the Mullican tire rule could also be applied to the, the technique of playing the wing single to achieve detumescence. <laughs> that would do it, actually, I think. For, for, yeah, 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 it would. <laughs> Anyway, so but anyway, cock, cock. So there was there was a you know a, a whole mess of cock in this uh, this magazine, mm. and uh, it would in in uh, the designers. It was a junkyard. Was it, it was a fa- it was a fair old junkyard in there. Um, I can't remember what this magazine was. Probably just as well. Um, it was. This would have been pre emoji days. So what it, it wouldn't they wouldn't be hidden behind like <laughs> a, a big aubergines, but maybe bananas no. or little stars or whatever. It's a, that kind of stars mm. are a bit tacky, aren't they? But whatever it was, the designers would would overlay would would lay them um, gently atop the cock before I went to press and one time the whole magazine accidentally went to press with cocks completely out oh no and someone had to like run down there stop stop (laughs) there's dick everywhere we'll all go to jail yeah Yeah, they had to pulp quite a lot of um, quite a lot of genitals that day oh sorry I've got to go in that carry on style (laughs) I think the most prominent piece I ever did for Scarlet was I got into a conversation with the editor who's like one of my best mates in the world. We were talking about sex toys and how they'd managed to sort them out for women, but men's sex toys were fucking shit. And she said, well, why don't you do a review of some sex toys? And I said, fuck it. I've got a weekend to myself. Yeah, why not? (laughs) A couple of days later, a cardboard coffin arrives at the front door (laughs) rammed with sex toys and she said yeah look there's 12 of them here can you do full reviews on all of them (laughs) and i did and yeah by the end of it my bollocks look like christmas balloons in april (laughs) the thing is about male sex toys that they've only just started to grope towards is when the rabbit came in it was brilliant because there was no envy if your girlfriend had like a a fucking 12 inch dildo you wouldn't be that happy about it but with a rabbit i know my my knob hasn't got prongs going off on the side and it doesn't rotate in the middle so it's no competition to me but with male sex toys it was always this has to look like a a woman or a part of a woman and no no i mean there's a wank there's a shag surely there's got to be a third way for men don't you think (laughs) i was one of the first people in the uk to have a bang on a fleshlight you know (laughs) That's something for the CV, let me tell you. If I was a bloke, I would I would definitely want to go on one of those. They mm. they seem like they've been very well designed. They're all right. You can't <laughs> get over the feeling that you're you're shagging a... A, a Pringles a, a, tube. Something that should be in a garage somewhere, <laughs> you know what I mean? 
And they're a fucker to wash How out. How do you clean them? Yeah, I mean... Do you they... unscrew it at the back. Yeah. And then you pull out the, uh, the, the, the pink bit and turn it inside out and run it under the tap. Yeah. But you can't be bothered with that. So sometimes you just shove the end of the tap into the fanny and turn it on. And the thing is, if you turn it on full blast, you, you get a big backwash of jizzy water <laughs> all over your shirt, which defeats the object entirely. <laughs> there's also the fear that there's going to be a blackout and whoever you're living with is going to be looking around for a torch. And if you haven't washed it out, they unscrew it and go, oh, fucking hell, these batteries have leaked. Oh. <laughs> It's one of those things where you look at it and you think, that's an ingenious design. And it's only when the the cleaning occurs. Like a George Foreman grill. (laughs) (laughs) Or a wrap, too. I got loads of bits of porn stars. I got Jenna Jameson's tits. Oh, yeah. You were supposed to get a soapy tip wank off it, which was all well in theory. But if you think about it, you actually need someone else's hands around the tits so you can get a purchase on them. And I couldn't exactly ask my mates, oh, do you mind laying down here and putting this on your chest so I can get a soapy tip wank? You know, here's a napkin for your chin. (laughs) That's not going to go down too well. But it did end up being used as the letter rack in my old house. So, you know, it didn't go to waste. Yeah, no, I couldn't believe it. What what else was there? No, no, I don't forget I even asked. There was one that was just like a tube that judded up and down. So you felt like you were in an industrial milking machine. Sounds great. I I was just using it and I just thought to myself, well, fucking hell, I am a man, not a cow. (laughs) And there was loads of things you could shove up your arse. The world is full of things you can shove up your (laughs) arse. Disappointing film, but a great Bonnie Tyler single. <laughs> as long as it's got a flared base, go for your life. Yeah, somebody I knew who worked on a dirty magazine once gave me a. It was like a midriff of a woman, like right. just that. Um, yeah. And it had a supposedly anatomically accurate representation of the uh, vagina and anus of a well known yeah, porn star, mm. which. Frankly, I don't believe that the woman in question had a vagina and anus that were both so small you couldn't get your little finger in. I don't know <laughs> what the the thinking was when they made this. But it was the most grotesque thing you've ever seen. It looked like something they found under a pile of straw in Ed Gein's barn. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh. Really unpleasant. And he brought it around. It was like I was having a housewarming party, and he just sort of put it down and went, do you want to serve nibbles out of it? <laughs> <laughs> um, 64 pages <laughs> 60p I never knew there was so much in it So what was on telly today? Well BBC One commences at 6am with a half hour CFAX data blast Then it's 2 hours and 25 minutes of BBC Breakfast News With Nicholas Witchell and Laurie Mayer After regional news in your area, it's open air. The points of view with phones programme hosted by Eamon Holmes. There's an argument about the Anglo-Irish agreement on Kilroy, followed by the news headlines, the new Fred and Barney show, play days, Henry's cat, 5 to 11, the poetry jackanory for grown-ups, and more open air. After more news headlines, it's Daytime Live, the Pebble Mill at One in all but name and time, followed by regional news in your area, the one o'clock news, Neighbours, and then it's over to the Cheltenham Festival to see Desert Orchid let everyone down and give the bookies a new four Granada each. 
Then Andy Peters wedges himself into the broom cupboard and hits us off with Charlie Chalk, Banana Man, Jack Anore, The New Yogi Bear Show, Dizzy Heights, News Round, Blue Peter, A Repeat of Dinner Time's Neighbours, The Six O'Clock News, and they've just finished regional news in your area. BBC Two kicks off at 6.45 with an open university programme about shirts and coal, followed by the news, then Westminster, 45 minutes of yesterday's thrilling highlights from the Houses of Parliament, then a 20-minute CFAX data blast. After the schools and colleges programmes, cunningly rebranded as Daytime on 2 in order to suck in any unsuspecting housewives, the oldens and dollies, it's Finger Mouse, then a bit more Daytime on 2, then the news and then even more Daytime on 2. After more news, it's 45 minutes of non-stop red-hot live coverage from the House of Commons, then they pick up the late afternoon session of the Cheltenham Festival. Des Lynham shows us how nice Tenerife is in holiday outings and then Alan Corin picks out some BBC archive clips with Emma Freud in Plunder. That's followed by the fitness programme It Doesn't Have to Hurt presented by June Whitfield where she shows us how to keep in shape in a workplace where robots and computers are doing everything. Then a mad American bloke in a plane follows Hurricane Gilbert as it cuts a swathe across Jamaica, and they're currently an hour into the Lavender Hill Mob, the 1951 Ealing comedy starring Alec Guinness and Stanley Holloway. ITV begins at 6 with TV AM, then it's After 9, The Pyramid Game, Regional News in Your Area, An Argument in a Provincial TV Studio in The Time, The Place, This Morning, The Riddlers and Home and Away. After the news and regional news in your area, Wish You Were Here takes us to Warwickshire and Maastricht. Then it's a country practice, win, lose or draw, regional news in your area and sons and daughters. Children's ITV piles in with Hot Dog, The Adventures of Teddy Ruxpin, Press Gang and then it's time to watch the dullest teenagers ever do that cuntish hand jive in Blockbusters. After the news, it's a repeat of This Afto's Home and Away, regional news in your area, and they've just started Emmerdale, where Henry Wilkes is accused of murder. Channel 4 opens up at 6 with a Channel 4 daily, followed by 2 hours and 35 minutes of schools programmes. After the Parliament programme, Business Daily and Sesame Street, it's the film Life Begins at College, the 1937 American football comedy film starring the Ritz Brothers. That's followed by The Animal Mover, a cartoon about a lad who dosses about with some lions and that. Then it's Not on Sunday, the religious magazine show presented by Brian Redhead, Countdown and a repeat of Treasure Hunt, where dads get to stare at Annika Rice's arse as it traverses through Northumberland. After Neat and Tidy, a comedy short about an Elvis fan on the run for a murder he didn't commit, it's a repeat of Kate and Ale, and they've just started Channel 4 News. Oh, chaps, what, what's springing out at you there? Mm. What the fuck is Charlie Chalk, for starters? He was a little puppet clown. Oh. 
I was on the dole in 1999. Yes. <laughs> Henry's cat was a good one. Um, yes. Finger Mouse was just nightmare fuel, wasn't it? It's just something really wrong about Finger Mouse. Oh, you reckon? Yeah. Uh, you were an 80s child, Sarah. You you wouldn't understand it. I think by 1990, there was a, a sort of a layer of cobwebs on that programme that mm. might have made it look a bit sinister. Yeah. Fragments of some of these programmes do pop up in my video collages that I used to make at the time. Because <laughs> I was on Ooh, the doll. Yes. I used to sit there like late at night and in the daytime, basically whenever my mum and dad weren't around. If I had nothing to do, I'd make uh, fragmented video collages of all the shit Ooh. that was on TV. Uh, since digitised, can lend you one for the video playlist. Oh, if please you're do. Covering 1990. Um, God, yeah. Other than that, I've got nothing to say about any of that because I heard nothing after the phrase, there's an argument about the Anglo Irish agreement on Kilroy. Yes. <laughs> I, I wouldn't even have put that on BBC minus one. <laughs> All right, then, pop crazed youngsters. It's time to go back to March of 1990. Always remember. We may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. p.m. on Thursday, March the 15th, 1990, and Top of the Pops has entered its fourth decade, firmly maintaining its position as the most popular music show on British TV. It's still holding down 9.8 million viewers, just a few hundred thousand less than the Yellow Hurl era, and seeing off all contenders in the new multi-channel world. The Tube, gone. The Rocks Air, gone. Old Grey Whistle Test, dead. The only other music shows at the moment are niche stuff like Big World Cafe or cheapo graveyard slot rammel like the Hitman and Her in America's Top 40. Yes, MTV is fully operational in the UK, but there's only so many times you can sit through loving a fucking elevator by Aerosmith. Yeah, 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 yeah. Chaps, I'd like you to peruse an article that was published in the three weeks ago when gene pitney had a hit last year with the revival of something's gotten hold of my heart he was nervous about appearing on top of the pops again after all those years would the technology be too complex would he feel out of place amongst the teenage scene shifters and stars arriving for rehearsals he was swiftly reassured by the sight of a cameraman he had worked with 15 years earlier little has changed in the hermetically sealed environment of top of the pops in his 26 years trundling forever on it has neither the compunction nor the momentum to change but the format of hit after hit remains as secure as its advanced position in the ratings you probably couldn't remove it from the schedule with two tons of tnt that article, chaps, goes on to point out that the only other music show to dare encroach upon the patch of Top of the Pops is the chart show, which is only available on ITV on Saturday morning and late night on Sunday, and the BBC's new batch of music TV shows, which are Rocksteady and Snub TV, are squarely aimed at Q and Melody Maker readers, respectively. Mm-hmm. You know, to sum it all up, chaps, in 1990, Top of the Pops continues to own the story 
streets of pop television city. Despite all the new groups and, and these exciting new styles, uh, it is amazing how little has changed on Top of the Pops and Radio 1 at this point. Sarah, you're 11. This is pretty much your Top of the Pops, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, I was still, I, I would still definitely watch it every week religiously because it was, that's what you did, you know, mm. that was that was how you lived your life. Um, but I was very much into the chart show at this point. Yeah. I'm sure we've talked about it before, but it had that slightly kind of smash it sensibility of sort of cheek, mm. but, you know, sort of celebration and a slight piss take. Mm. And the format was so great. You know, it's a, it was a video and then like little captions flying up as a sort of precursor to the experience of trying to use the internet in the later 90s, where if you clicked on the wrong mm. thing, there would just be a, a mass of pop-ups flying at your brain but you know in a good way yes I just loved it it was one of those things where there's kind of there's no presenter but there's this kind of benign digital presence mm. behind it you know so it was kind of the anti-top of the pops in some ways yeah. and in 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 lots of you know very good ways mm. I mean, it was essentially mtv in pill form wasn't it <laughs> for yeah. those who didn't have the time or the dish to actually watch MTV. Yeah, yeah. We are now two years into the reign of Paul Chiane, the BBC light entertainment lifer, who started his BBC career directing the early 70s kids show Zocco and Ed and Zed, who joined Top of the Pops directly from the Kenny Everett television show and Call My Bluff in 1988. This is one of the few chances we've taken so far to see what changes he's instigated. What what did you notice, if anything? Um, I mean, I've got to say the set is, uh, this is a great era for the set, which is all kind of mm. blue and pink. It's full bisexual lighting at this point. <laughs> you know, everyone's still miming. Uh, well, the main change is made is to maximise the 30-minute slot he's been given to bung in as many acts as possible. So under his watch, all studio performances are no longer than three minutes and there's a two-minute limit on videos. Mm. It's very Jive Bunny, in fact, in the way that it's like, well, if you don't like this, mm. something else is coming along in 20 seconds. Yeah. Unfortunately, he's also tried to create even more of a party atmosphere by getting the kids to granny clap incessantly throughout every fucking performance, <laughs> as we're going to see as this episode plays out. Uh. Your host this week is Simon Mayo, who has been in the alpha male position on the Radio 1 Breakfast Show since May of 1988, and his 1990 has already seen decidedly mixed fortunes. Two months ago, he was voted third best DJ of the year by the readers of the Birmingham Mail, behind <laughs> Steve Wright and Bruno Brooks. That same poll voted Erasure the Band of the Year and Mikhail Gorbachev the most wonderful human being in the world, just beating David Platt. <laughs> <laughs> He's been putting himself about on the BBC, presenting the game show Scruples and the Best of Magic with Anthea Turner and the Great Soprendo. But at the moment, his only bit of telly is being part of the Top of the Pops talent pool, which currently includes Jackie Brambles, Mark Goodyear, Gary Davis, Nicky Campbell and Anthea Turner. And he's been doing that job for over three years. And chaps, to my mind, he pretty much sums up what Radio 1 wants to be in 1990. You know, yeah. he's a smartly turned out, reliable, safe pair of hands. Yeah, and here he is hung over looking sort of all puffy and pale and sallow mm. one arm tight across his stomach as though mm. trying desperately to keep something terrible in <laughs> quite literally holding the mayo that's <laughs> 
that is because he was uh, he was doing his uh, if I if I could say he was spreading himself somewhat thinly was Mayo at this point. Yeah. Um, he was doing the he was doing the breakfast show, so he's been up since four a.m. So he's just really because yeah. re- I was like, blimey, Mayo looks a bit tired, and then it's like. Oh, yeah, no, he's doing breakfast show. He's just really, really tired. Yeah. yeah, although it's hard to tell because the defining characteristic of Simon Mayo, in as much as he had such a thing, is that he's too smug and aloof to bring excitement or yes. enthusiasm, and he's too straight and polite to bring any disruption or mm. provoke any thought. You know, he is just margarine man, or yes. uh, perhaps unsalted and unsweetened porridge to which mm. neil once compared his face although al i think you provided the definitive line on a previous episode of this podcast where you said that mike smith handing over the breakfast show to simon mayo was like peter davison regenerating into peter davison <laughs> which is about right I think. <laughs> virtually no change my dear and it seems not a moment too soon don't mm. no, worry the spots will get that but this is a <laughs> this is a strange Strange time for Radio 1 and Top of the Pops, yes. as you were saying. And Simon Mayo is a kind of bridge between the pipe-smoking motorist DJs yes. and the early 90s pseudo-freshness. Mm. You know, We're still a couple of years away from the banister reforms yep. and Radio 1 finally saying, see you later, pig masturbator. <laughs> in a wild paedophile um and hey come on into the pastel pink cotton sports jackets over paisley shirts and all that lot you know but when you look at it i had a job in a factory in the summer of 1990 making carpet tiles right unfortunately you couldn't sit there in earphones all day listening to an audio book of mr james collected ghost stories which is (laughs) what i'd done at my last job to escape the sexual harassment from the fag smoking middle-aged women uh you couldn't do it because if you missed a bleep off the machine you'd become underlay so you had to listen to (laughs) radio one which they had playing in the factory all day from like simon bates golden hour through gary's unpleasant bit in the middle Mm. to the the wild anarchy of steve wright's afternoon posse and when you were listening to radio one all day it was still essentially 1974 yes you know everything was still exactly the same every day and you'd hear the same records on a loop all day for a couple of weeks i used to measure out my day in plays of where are you baby by betty boo (laughs) which was i think the only good record they had playlisted at the time Mm. and it would come on three times a day as regular as the conveyor belt in front of me and the third play was the charm because that meant i was on the home straight yeah and another wished away eight hours of my young life was almost gone forever woohoo um (laughs) so i'd be there laboring through craig mclachlan and check one two and you know deacon blues necessary cover of i'll never fall in love again and Mm. river city people's necessary cover of california dream sweet memories and timmy mallet's ever so necessary cover of itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow pocket and every time i heard betty boo it was like getting a mental tea break (laughs) yes a a blown kiss from a better world (laughs) in the knowledge that a few more hours had been 
used up. But Simon Mayo was already very present at this point, yes. right? He got the breakfast show, presumably because of the association between him and Porridge. And looking at him now, he's clearly the advance guard of the Bannister years. Yes. You know, he's a little bit more intelligent than what went before him, mm. but not to the point of being able to transcend the sea of sludge in which he's set. Um, and not really bringing anything with him except uh, a non-DLT-ishness, yes. you know, which is a relief in the same way as someone ceasing to prod you in the ear with an unwashed hairy wanger. But, <laughs> you know, he never really seemed like his heart was in it. No. You know what I mean? He just swans about as if all this is slightly beneath him, but only slightly. Mm. And, you know, it really he'd rather be watching a middle-brow costume drama <laughs> or buying a tart o citron from M&S <laughs> or embarking on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Oh, yes. Put that clip on the video playlist. Cause of it, course. It, as the years pass, it only becomes more amazing. Oh, my God. Mm. No, I'm, you see, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with, you know, the, the, the relief that you feel every time it cuts back to him where you know that you're not going to be made to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm. You know, he's nobody's favourite Top of the Pops presenter. But no. there aren't the kind of wanky flourishes. There's no making a thing of how he's Simon Mayo and this is his Top of the Pops. Yes. You know, he's got yeah. a nice, easy, relaxed kind of presenting style, which is fine. Mm. He's got that slight dryness. He's got that slight sort of reserve. He's not a sort of capering buffoon, but a guy in a suit. Mm standing slightly yeah. apart from what's going on which like i said with you know considering what the alternatives can and have been it's fine by me i think that only one person in the history of top of the pops ever succeeded in synthesizing the kind of capering buffoon and dry guy personas and that was julian cope oh sarah let it go <laughs> he's not coming back he was so <laughs> His contemporaries, um, you know, Bruno Brooks and Mark Goodyear, but they had that zany, wizzy chart rundown delivery that just made you yeah. tired. Gotcha. And you know, it just it, it tired me from from the ears inwards. And so, yeah, I'm quite pro Mayo, really, even with his kind of amazing Bart Simpson square hair. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he is one of the next generation of DJs who um, scaled the career path that had been laid out by the U-Tree generation. And yeah, the only vaguely wacky thing he ever did on Top of the Pops was when he did an episode a couple of months ago in sunglasses because he was suffering from conjunctivitis <laughs> and was therefore hiding his puffy, weeping eyes. <laughs> yeah, he followed that career path right to the point of being 65 and doing an interview with the Daily Mail about how awful the BBC is. <laughs> uh, welcome to the pubs. A good rock and roll edition for you tonight. We have three debut performances before 7.30. And now we start with a band who are appearing at Manchester Apollo tonight. And then they're at Wembley next week. They're number 27 doing deliverance. Would you welcome, please, the top of the pubs, The Mission. Legend and myth, 
were treated to the rolling, roiling, synthetic stab of the wizard by Paul Hardcastle, which is approaching its fifth anniversary and sounds as much of a relic of the wrong off of the 80s as an STP rosette, and a bit of graphical trickery which was introduced in early 1989, where the computer-generated saxophones, cassettes and guitars had been replaced by a neon 3D maze, with the only graphical nod to the show being assorted flying Death Stars with numbers on them. Underwhelming, as always, yeah. the, the theme and the graphics. Both of them could have been tacked on to pretty much any kid's show of the time and no one would have noticed, would they? Yeah. The logo spins away to be replaced by another spinny effect that gives us the point of view of a fly with a damaged wing uncontrollably hurling towards Mayo, who was turned up in a horrible dark suit and blue shirt with paisley bits on it, buttoned right up, holding the mic in his right hand with his left hand clutched to his stomach as if he's about to suffer a monumental attack of diarrhoea. Simon Mayo looks like he's just put his headless bass down and walked away from the rest of Johnny Hayes jazz, don't you think? <laughs> as assorted very young-looking kids stand around him, already clapping and whooping, he says, Welcome to the Pops. We've got a rock and roll episode for you tonight. After pointing out that there are going to be three debut performances in this episode, he introduces us to a band who have got to get their asses up to Manchester the minute they lay their instruments down. It's the mission with Deliverance. Formed in Leeds in 1985, the Sisterhood were a splinter group formed by Wayne Hussey and Craig Adams after they left the Sisters of Mercy and took their road crew and equipment with them. They named the band after their previous group's fan community and then recruited Mick Brown from Red Lorry Yellow Lorry and Simon Hinkler from the Sheffield post-punk band Artery. While they prepared to play their first gig in London and do a session on the Janice Long Show at the beginning of 1986, their former front person, Andrew Eldritch, who was well dischuffed with their band name, registered the name The Sisterhood for himself, recorded a single called Giving Ground under that name, and released it on the day of the new band's gig meaning that they had to be known as the Wayne Hussey and Craig Adams Band for a couple of weeks until they settled upon the mission, which was either a nod to Hussey's upbringing as a Mormon in Bristol or the band's favourite brand of speakers, depending on who you talk to. They were immediately recruited as a support act for the Colts European Tour and put out two LPs on the Chapter 22 label, which got to number 70 and number 49 on the singles chart respectively. But after they signed a seven-album deal with Mercury in the autumn of 1986, their next release, Stay With Me, got to number 30 in October of that year. This, their ninth single, is the follow-up to Butterfly on a Wheel, which got to number 12 in January of this year. It's the second cut from their new LP, Carved in Sand, which came out last month. It entered the charts at number 30 last week, and this week it's nipped up three places to number 27. And here they are, fresh from two nights at Bradford St George's Hall on their latest tour, to get the 
party started. Poor mission. They've had to be straight into bed after their gig and forgo the pleasures of Brad for the night. <laughs> then up in the morning, schlep it down to London, sit about in television centre all day, and then straight off to the next gig. It's you know didn't get to see the Trocadero or buy any souvenirs of Lady Di or nothing. Poor bastards. Well, they'd have been so drunk, it wouldn't have made any difference to them at all. Mm. So the mission, gotta say, they meant absolutely fuck all to me then or now. I mean, at a push, I'd have said they were shaking model army. <laughs> they had too much of the whiff of stale snake bite for, for my liking. Oh, just a bit, yeah. <laughs> what a fucking mess. Mm. I mean, he, he looks like he was in bed and Amazon banged on the door. <laughs> and he had to get there in the six seconds before they left. But at every level here... It's the overwhelming sense of people just not trying, Mm. which can be okay when it's talented people. But when it's slovenly piss-artists, God bless them, Mm. pumping out this cloud of nothing. And, of course, it's the worst of both worlds, as is so often the case with these bands. It's, It's wearyingly grandiose, but that grandiosity is so thin a facade you can actually smell the piss and vomit coursing Mm. behind it i mean i appreciate this is very much the low end of goth but it's like putting gargoyles on an outside toilet Mm. (laughs) it's like first of all are we just supposed to not notice that this is gimme shelter stripped of everything that's stupendously great about it or even stripped of everything that's not complete shit Mm. about it because we are gonna notice i'm sorry the spirit of the stones hangs over this episode doesn't it it's more that this episode is splattered with the droppings of the rolling stones yeah Yes. The guano of the <laughs> stones in a cave. The first Gulf War, children. It's just a belt, children. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't help that Wayne Huss is turned up as if he's going on copycats to take off late period Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's him, there's loads of pink and blue neon, there's loads of dry ice, there's loads of leather jackets with fringe in it. This isn't the 1990 I ordered. <laughs> Send it back. Yeah. He's barefoot as well. Barefoot yes. on top of the pops. Don't be barefoot. Foot. What do you think you're doing? Yeah, even Sandy Shaw wasn't barefoot the last time she was on Top of the Pops. Right. And if she can be bothered to put shoes on, <laughs> so should you, young man. The little sticky prints being left on the shiny Oh, well, everyone else going on there's got to wear a Veruca sock now, haven't they? The thing is that this is meant to have, clearly the chorus is meant to be epic and mm. big and sweeping, but it's not how it works, right? You can't just go gimme three times and say something biblical twice. No. <laughs> and call it a day like you just can't this presumes to stand among the great gimmies of our time yes and gimme gimme shock treatment gimme 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 a man after midnight yes gimme 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 the honky tonk blues gimme mm. more gimme all you're loving gimme that thing gimme that thing and it's a powerful command if you're going to invoke the rock and roll gimme you better have the chops yes to back it up which clearly they they do not have although I mean I'll hand it to him Wayne Hussey great name it's like Garth's trumpet (laughs) (laughs) oh Wayne he's in a bit of a subversive mood this week isn't it as we'll discover and on top of the pops he's he's been subversive by A flicking the V sign which he cunningly alters to the P sign and B not noticing or pretending not to notice that his mic slipped off the top of the stands and is drooping down which to me ruins the effect of a skillful and passionate live performance but <laughs> but you know the BBC can cover all that up because they've got a new box of tricks they've got a still 
new Quantel Paintbox V-Series, which provides a thrilling diorama of close-up twanging of strings and hitting of drums. Mm-hmm. And, and also, the lads on the floor, they've got a new toy, haven't they? A handheld camera, which means they can get right up the front without plowing through the kids as if they were in a panzer. But it also means that they can jump up on stage, give us a lingering view up the nostrils of Wayne Husset, and then leg it off when the camera view changes, which gets in the way of everything. Yeah. Yeah, I preferred it when they were just rolling through the audience like Tiananmen Square, you know, (laughs) just sending the kids scattering. If you had Top of the Pops now, you could just fly drones about the place. God, yeah. When there's not much to say about a performance, you end up kind of, you know, uh, thinking around it. Mm. And in the course of looking up songs with Gimme in them, obviously there's a lot, I discovered that um, (laughs) Gimme Shelter was covered by both Puddle of Mud and Stone Sour, (laughs) which is an upsetting fact that you now know. It's like they heard Gimme Shelter and went, this is all right, but I think we can improve it. (laughs) It's one of those things where there's no need for this to exist at all no. nobody there looks like they really have a burning desire to be there but the kids are already granny clapping though aren't they they're all being cattle prodded mm. to do the granny clapping yeah. or as one one gentleman kind of had his own take on it which is sort of like tory party conference applause yes <laughs> it's kind of appropriate for this record though i don't know the the whole goth thing meant nothing to me no. when i was growing up it was pretty much the default for kids who didn't want to dress off the high street, you know, mm. or didn't want to listen to whatever was in the charts. But it just seemed obviously worse than either of those things to me. Yeah. It meant nothing to me because I couldn't see that it meant anything full stop, apart from yeah. a dress-up, which is fine, but a dress-up's mm. meant to be fun. And I'm sure a lot of these goths had a whale of a time, but yeah. to me it just seemed like neither one thing nor the other. It was mopey and gloomy, but at the same time there was a a fundamental lack of seriousness about it you know what i mean mm. and i never liked the music or the feeling i got off the music i just couldn't see the appeal i've had it on good authority that for a lot of goth girls the appeal was creating a look and yeah. for a lot of goth lads the appeal was that look of the girls yeah. because yes. in the 80s it wasn't really the done thing for women who considered themselves a bit alternative man to go with the elaborate makeup and mm. corsets and lace and heels and all that stuff and you can't really blame hormonal young men for being drawn towards that and when i was a teenager i copped off with quite a lot of gothy girls despite being resolutely anti-goth because out in the yeah. sticks if you weren't 100 percent mainstream in your tastes you had to stick together and i think mm. a lot of these girls just looked at me because i got like a leather jacket on and chelsea boots and i just oh that's close enough you know <laughs> what i mean <laughs> and i always I always had some respect for the full-on goths who got into the black magic and the weird lifestyles mm. and actually made their own lives much more difficult <laughs> because at least that's a direction of travel and if you get to go to an orgy in a broken into church or something like that who's complaining you know what i mean yeah. it's more constructive than getting into level 42 isn't it or mm. you know it's less evil than joining the young farmers <laughs> but for the most part i couldn't understand it and if they were all so obsessed with death how come they all smoke silk cut 
I yes. couldn't see it. Have some courage of your convictions, <laughs> I thought. You know, smoke, smoke filterless camels and end up wheezing through your ears when you're 35, like I do. <laughs> I mean, the mission to these eyes then and now, they look massively out of date by the spring of 1990. But no, they're quite go-ahead. They're, they cultivated a rabidly dedicated audience who would go out and buy anything they put out on week one, which got them into the charts. And for the past year or so, they've been dropping a phone number in their fan club newsletter and a date and every other month the band meet up in someone's house for the day and set a load of phones up and whoever rings them up they'll answer and they'll talk to them so you know people will ring them up asking them questions about their songs when they're touring next they'll be asking wayne hussey for relationship advice and you know find out what cars are driving at the moment and in some cases asking wayne hussey if he'd write a song for someone's wedding yeah. it was no 0898 two pound a minute bollocks you just ring up and talk to a member of the mission for a bit. Some of the other members used to get really fucked off because they could hear the the, the disappointment in, in people's voices when they realised they weren't talking to Wayne. <laughs> yeah, people ring up. What's James Whale really like? <laughs> so this is... There was high goth and there was low goth. And the mission are... The classic example of the latter, you know, mm. at least with the high end, like maybe what the Sisters of Mercy, there's like some attempt to sculpt an aesthetic structure which could realistically be described as gothic, you know, like mm. el- elaborate and intense mm. rather than graceful. But this is the low end. It's just people trying to look solemn and mysterious while pissing cheap lager into a bus shelter you know what i mean who needs it it's what got my goat in the old days like the low end of goth just imbeciles stumbling around in army boots and faded black jeans and a band t-shirt with their hair dyed black and hair sprayed up you know what i mean i'd always give props to a goth who's made an effort right regardless of whether they look magnificently vampiric or you know like Someone who works at B&Q who's tripped over a tin of paint and rolled through the neck curtain. Because at least it's something, you know what I mean? But this stuff, it's just about not trying at all and expecting people to think you're something, you know, with your spooky finger-waggling on stage. (laughs) You know, give me a Mm. break. And it's the most insultingly easy music as well. It's a very pernicious influence on bands, or it was, you know, this sort of stuff. You don't have to work out an arrangement. You don't have to really write a song. You certainly don't have to generate any heat or funk when you play. There's no musical Mm. ideas necessary. You just switch on the flanger pedal, just hit a big minor chord and let it ring and hope you carried along on the dry ice you know it's shameful yeah. really I'm, I'm all for music that doesn't require skill when it's a way to enable people with great ideas and limited musicianship to create something beautiful or funny or exciting or, or thought provoking but this shit at best enables people with fuck all to say and fuck all to offer to get up on stage and pose and to mm. pollute the culture with even more windy narcissism while Mm. pulling a face like they're dispensing the secrets of the great beyond you know there's a reason why nobody listens to this music these days it is just sludge it's the lowest level of rock and roll it's lower than the holiday camp circuit because at least there you need something to make you stand out even if it's just a dog that barks every time you do a magic trick yes you know it's like (laughs) the mission should have had a roomy-eyed old 
whip it on stage that yeah. shuts <laughs> itself after every song. Although I guess if you were at a mission gig, it probably felt like they did. <laughs> it, it is definitely pub goth oh, as God, opposed yeah. to like dungeon goth. <laughs> yeah. Like it's the drip tray rather than the goblet. <laughs> <laughs> And if you're doing a single called Deliverance and there's no banjo on it, what the fuck are you playing at? <laughs> or Wayne Huss is not squealing like a pig. Bad start to the show, this is. Yeah. So the following week, Deliverance stayed at number 27 before dropping to number 55 and then right out of the charts. The follow-up, Into the Blue, got to number 30 in June and they'd round off 1990 with Hands Across the Ocean getting to number 28 in November. But one night after this episode was aired, a massively K-Lide Wayne Hussey was driven from a mission gig in Sheffield to the Radio Air Studios in Leeds to appear live on the James Whale radio show on Late Night ITV, where he swigged from a bottle of Black Tower, took offence at having his horoscope done on a computer and dropped three fucks, three fuckings, two fuck-offs, two shits and two pillocks in four minutes and 20 (laughs) seconds before being escorted off the premises by whale after he lobbed both of his shoes at a camera. Or brazen hussy, if you will. (laughs) We've seen this, haven't we? Is that why he was barefoot on top of the pops? He'd just come from throwing his shoes at somebody was trying to interview him yeah he went and asked for them back and james whale went no <laughs> the two famous ones was this and the other was uh rob newman of newman and Badil getting mm. escorted from the studio for uh mocking james whale's mother's terminal illness or something it was a class act yeah i know well people thought it was a great idea to sort of load the green room with cans of lager i suppose um, yeah or maybe it's just putting a live show on that late at night people turn up you know having preloaded but mm. um great fun for the viewers somebody said fuck off yeah if you were 12 years old and you saw this fuck you know you'd have been the king of the playground on monday morning <laughs> <laughs> the funniest bit was when the astrologer turned up to do his reading on the computer and hussey took his hat off and, and put it on top of james whale james whale just looks like the fucking shopkeeper in mr ben <laughs> in an interview on the channel 4 robo chat show star test a year later hussey said that he was convinced he was going to be stitched up by whale so he went in hard with the swears as soon as the interview started because i i don't fucking know the mission of deliverance now everybody eventually goes through a big ballad phase Richards on the block have gone exceedingly early it's a new entry at number 11 and I'll be loving you forever Standing amongst the kids tells us that every band eventually goes through a big ballad phase, punctuating the words with splayed fingers in the air like he was explaining fireworks to a toddler. He then tells us that the next group have entered that phase surprisingly early. It's new kids on the block and I'll be loving you, open brackets, forever. 
Close brackets. We chanced upon Nakotba in chart music number 30 when they scored their first number one with You Got It, The Right Stuff in November of 1989. And this is the follow-up to their re-release of Hanging Tough, which also got to number one for two weeks in January of this year. It's the third cut to be released in the UK from their second LP, Hanging Tough, and was their first number one in America last June. And it sees the rapping Osmonds taking a break from throwing down hardcore lyrics and electing instead to lay down some smooth R&B for the tenderonies. <laughs> it's a new entry this week at number 11, and as they've got a gig on at the Nassau Coliseum in New York tonight, here's the video, which was shot in a and around the Xavier High School in NYC. And chaps, in the last episodes, we had a good laugh at the Colonials, didn't we, for being half a year behind us when it came to the new style, even on their own records. But, oh dear, the tables have considerably turned and we're still coming to grips with the kids, aren't we? Yeah, but they're still living in the 80s. That's mm. the thing. It's like for a couple more years, it's still the eighties in America. Yes, you know, in the same way that it was the seventies in America until about nineteen eighty three, <laughs> because they didn't have punk, not as a, a as a national novelty. Yeah, you know, with a an even more immediate and obvious effect on clothes than pop music. Right, mm. it's the same. It's it took until a few years into the nineties for America to cut off its mullet you know because mm. fashions don't move that fast in america because it's too big yeah if you look at american mass culture in the early 90s it was still stuff like america's top 10 with tommy pewitt do you remember him <laughs> he's like do you ever see that guy he was like this american heartland caricature right he was still dressed like the breakfast club right. um, he might as well have been sucking on chili dog outside the tasty freeze he had uh, <laughs> snow wash jeans high top trainers spiky mullet cap sleeve t-shirt rigid adherence to corporate agenda to the max dude um and he's like you know he was giving it all the sort of old school smarm but with attitude so he'd Mm. say like uh that was rock set taking a joy ride (laughs) it just that really hung on in the states for a few more years and it just slowly evolved from "Mm, i love my corporate agenda to uh my corporate agenda makes me very sad i think i'll have some tasty heroin Um, (laughs) but it was a slow process yeah jordan then is sporting a batman sweatshirt under his leather jacket yes a really up to the minute film reference yeah although however out of time they feel here they're actually more of a clue to the future than the heralds of the daisy age who turn up later if you want to know where pop music and pop culture are going in the medium term this tells you a lot more you know this is like hunks you like like yes. providing that strange kind of comfort yeah. and just non-threatening boys yeah their career just happening like a rock thrown into a pond that disappears under the water without leaving a ripple you know mm. they're following a plan and the arrow points straight at the wall but they have to keep following it just yeah. bumping off again and again until they finally knock themselves out and are heard okay. no more 
<laughs> this is where all that begins, you know, yeah. that, that kind of boy band. So over here, they've had two number ones on the bounce with their hardcore stylings, but like their equal, LL Cool J, the kids are not afraid to display their soft arse side. And, you know, when this came out, I thought they'd made a right mistake going all slushhead, but in actual fact, this what we're listening to here was a single that put them over in america so what the fuck did i know it's a slow jam you know this is a mm. um it's a school disco shuffle yes yeah it's quite a sort of um gloopy american sunday god yeah somehow they've they've managed to cram more sugar into one dessert than you could ever imagine was possible yes. some sort of ultra synthesized corn syrup yes in musical form yeah i mean by this time they are the ultimate boys in a bag on this era are <laughs> you concerned with them at the time I had, hopefully I still have, like a Japanese bootleg set of their first album. Right. <laughs> which is just an excellent object, you know. Don't know how I ended up with that, but yeah, that was a thing that's cooler than I was at the time, mm. in a weird way. But um, Boys in a Bag, I always think of as distinctly British. Yes. Americans, it's different. Even if they're shit, there's always a certain sharpness and ease and assurance about Americans doing show business. It's like yeah. it's their thing. You know, mm. this kind of looks really sloppy now to, to our eyes because we know what came after just became more and more and more super sharp and super yeah. tight, you know, and, the, you know, the choreography and the, the songwriting, everything just entered like a new era. Yeah. So, yeah, it, they, they do look very 1988 in yes. American terms you know it's almost like acid house never happened um (laughs) but you know fine were they a big deal at your school i don't think they were really no i mean they were american i don't remember them being a big deal at all all yanks coming over here Uh, no no we don't take kindly don't (laughs) take kindly to them them americans chewing gum (laughs) or did they appeal to like even younger kids Mm. I, i know what you mean though that like at this point british boy bands even the pretty ones still had that slightly dickensian undernourished look like, <laughs> that you got from kids that have been raised in the austerity years you know mm. what i mean whereas these look healthy i mean this might be the introduction of developed musculature into teen pop mm. you know what i mean like we've already seen bobby brown going shirtless to yes. show off the fact that he's stomach looks like a Klingon scalp (laughs) but these have got to be the first white bread pop stars who look a bit gymmed up you know in this genre I mean I'm not counting man of war (laughs) but I mean like Bross were just sort of skinny rather than beefy you know and Aha certainly looked like they couldn't tell one end of a barbell from another (laughs) not that actually it really matters because both ends of a barbell are identical Mm. that's kind of the point but you know what I'm saying I mean, pr- yeah. prior to this, the only way you'd have found yourself using the word abs in connection with any of these teeny bop stars was if it was short for abnormalities. <laughs> abnormalities of a sexual nature. I mean, it's Donny really who is bringing that energy and, and the, the sort of the rippedness. There is the sort of emergent, you know, each one of them is a different kind of character. Um, really? They, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the Donny is kind of the bad boy. 
Right. Obviously, Donny Wahlberg. To me, they all look like a load of potsies waiting for the Fonz to come along and tell them what to do. Well, it's funny because they, they are, the other ones are kind of all the sensitive guy. There's kind of the one who looks like Ross from Friends and Jordan, right. who is your main guy out front, who is quite, you know, kind mm. of not a hard lad, you know. But also Joey, who was 17 here, I think, because he was only 13 when he was signed to New Kids on the Block. Right. It's all he's ever known. Oh, pop, pop fact, born in Needham, Massachusetts. Was he now? Oh. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. But yeah, he really looks in this video. Um, he's he's very baby faced anyway, and mm. he he looks like he's just wandered in from the set of Bugsy Malone. Like yes. you know, they're in the pool hall, and it's like you even old enough to be in here. Yeah. You expect him to start going. We could have been anything that we wanted to be, <laughs> <laughs> shooting up the pool hall with like gobs of whipped cream from a massive Tommy gun. So you wanna be in a boy band? <laughs> Sarah, can you help me out here? Because, mm. like, I've had a good old look at New Kids on the Block here in an attempt to tell them apart. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to Google them because I felt that would demean me <laughs> and, by extension, the listeners. So if I just give you the evidence of my eyes, mm-hmm. um, maybe you could tell me which one's which, right? Because I don't right. know. There's the one who looks like if you fed all the Levi's jeans models of the late 80s into a neural network (laughs) along with a handful of human feces and asked it to work out an average. (laughs) There's the one I remember most from the time with the big shield-shaped face who looks like Ross from Friends if he'd just woken up from 34 hours sleep. Um, (laughs) And he's got a big block head and a rat's tail hanging out the back of it. So it looks like the rat is wedged into his skull, gnawing (laughs) at the part of the brain that controls not being a cheesy douchebag. Um, Um, I think that's Danny. Okay. (laughs) He's the one who looks like a photograph of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer taken on the day his parents bought him his first pair of proper boots. I think that's Donny. Right. There's the big one with a side-parted mullet, um, which is an often forgotten no, that's variation Donny. on the theme. That one's Donny. Okay. That's Donny. Got- Donny looks like Mark Wahlberg, the, the, the actor who was in New Kids on the Block for about five minutes and then was booted out unceremoniously. I was um, went to the gym. Yeah, yeah. And then there's so. the fair-haired one with the sort of blow-waved Roberto Baggio haircut, Ooh. like a non-divine ponytail and nutty hamster cheek. The one that's got curly hair. People, some people have curly hair, Taylor, and that's <laughs> like weird and wacky and stuff. But you know, that's just what some people have to work with. <laughs> they haven't done it on purpose to annoy you thirty years later. <laughs> so basically, they're all Donny. <laughs> no, no, it's it's funny because I was never a you know I did have I had I had their first album and I wasn't a, like a, a squealing fan but I I somehow because that's kind of how it works with boy bands I do remember I I had to look up some of the, a couple of the names but I remember Jordan Joey and Donny so I was like <laughs> who are the others Roly and Craig except it's American so you pronounce it Craig but no it's um I believe it's Jordan Joey Donny Danny and John. Confusingly, <laughs> have you ever screamed at anyone at a gig? I have, you know, I have bellowed my appreciation in the in the time honoured fashion. Oh, you're a woman; you're allowed to. Oh yeah, of course. I've always wanted to scream at a gig, and I, I can't 
bring myself to do it. Actually, no, I'll tell a lie. I'll tell an absolute lie. 1992 Earl's Court Prince. Oh, yeah, of course. And uh, he did his usual pieces. Obviously didn't want to go back to the 80s, but he thought, oh, you know what? I'll, I'll do a bit of a sex. You know, I'm here now. Might as well get on with it. And he uh, he went down on his mic stand. <laughs> and he, he laid the mic stand down and started crawling on all fours you know, with his tongue wiggling. <laughs> and this scream just went up. Amongst a load of people who were too old and too cool for that shit. And one of them was me. I just went, ah! And it was fucking brilliant. I've never wet myself at a gig. But, you know, there's still time. It'll probably happen if I can start going to gigs in a few years' time. Eventually, those two axes are going to meet in the middle. And the, mm. No, I've never thrown a knicker. Oh. If that's weird. No, that's, it's just not my, it's not ideal. No. Know? I've, I, I crowd surfed once. Really? One time I did a crowd Yeah, I fucking crowd surfed. Yeah, yeah. Because I up. wanted to do it one time. Who to? It was to my faves Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Who And you'd think, oh, you can't crowd surf to them, but whatever. It was at Glastonbury. Oh, Fortunately, I, I didn't get groped or dropped on my head or any of the things that could happen. So, And that was the one time, and I will, I will never do that again. At least I've done it the once. But anyway, new kids on the block. I mean, according to this week's NME, the deluge of Nakotba is only just beginning in the UK because they've announced a new line of action figures that are fully posable. So you could break into your little sister's bedroom room and create a gay orgy tableau or make a human centipede out of them <laughs> according to the enemy the dolls come fully equipped for the good life they sport earrings ponytails rings hats and bracelets while also on display is a toy instrument playset, along with girls fashion accessories a new kids telephone a play microphone and a cassette player oh. but not everyone in the uk is succumbing to the new kids invasion in the singles review section of Smash Hits in January of this year, Matt Goss was given Hanging Tough and said, I think this is one of those records where, unfortunately, white boys are trying to sound black and not succeeding. I know them and I like the guys, but I just feel that their managers make them work so hard. And at the end of the day, they don't write, they don't produce, they were auditioned for the band. And I think it's unfair sometimes on them as people, but they're nice chaps. Sorry. And as you can imagine, there's been an absolutely massive backlash on the Smash Hits letters page. (laughs) I'm writing to tell you that Matt Goss is a total prat. How dare he slag off new kids on the block, writes a Nakotba fan fighting against racism. (laughs) Apart from being rude, he was also racist. (laughs) What happened to this all colours are equal stuff he sang? Correction, screeched in black and white on their new LP. What a hypocrite. All I can say is I hope none of your fans, very few, considering you couldn't fill Wembley Stadium, ever scream for you again. I hope you lose all your fans for being a racist hypocrite. (laughs) Ross's latest single, Madly in Love, entered the charts at number 15 last week. This week, 
Number 14. The accountant's about to find out that they've overspent by three quarters of a million pounds. They owe American Express 58,000 quid. Their former management are about to put in a damages claim for 1.2 million. And Matt's attempt to sell off his flight in Maid Avail has been commented on by the Daily Mirror thusly. Matt has spent £240,000 on the flat and unrealistically expects to sell it for more. But the truth is, no grown-up would want it. (laughs) He painted the entire flat in his favourite sky-blue colour, a shade so lurid that no one can stomach looking at it for more than a few minutes. (laughs) Oh, dear. Poor Bross, forgotten about. Anyway, the video... So they're all malingering around a school, loping about in front of some traditional graffiti, which is, you know, just scrawling. And then they have a bit of a sing while some teenage models look on. And then they remind you how urban they are by flinging a basketball at each other or against a really high wall, which is fucking stupid, man. That really upset me, that did. <laughs> they're not even playing Wally or Kirby or anything. There's no basket either, so they can neither win nor lose. Stupid. Someone's cheaping out on the video here because they're in that same studio mm. that they always use like there's another whatever video they had out last time this is exactly the same setup and the same camera really? angles and stuff yeah yeah and they only have three microphones to go around i mean maybe they're doing that kind of classic thing where you know there's guys yeah. kind of do what yeah yeah there's only three microphones and there's no basketball basket and mm. you know i bet they couldn't they probably weren't old enough to drink in america because america is insane god no so you know they go to the yeah. pool hall and just drink mineral water um, yeah Sh- showing the ladies how to play pool yeah, they sort of mooch about a bit, and then they all share a pizza at the end to prove that, despite oh. their success, they've not forgotten how to put food into their own mouths and chew. <laughs> um, and you remember the last uh, Nicotopa video we saw on here? One of them was wearing a Bauhaus T-shirt. Yes. Well, in this video, one of them's wearing a T-shirt which looks as if it says, South Today the name of the BBC regional news programme for the south of England, wow. which is an even hipper... Regional news in your area? Fucking an hell. even hipper and more niche Anglophile reference. God, I yeah. think that's what it says. It's got those words, and then there's a picture of someone underneath, which I assume is Sally Taylor. Can't yes. be 100% sure. <laughs> that's kind of like um, Japanese t-shirts that have sort of random English words on them, isn't it? Mm. Just completely out of context. Yeah, if they were being hipster and ironic, it would be a picture of Tom Coyne. <laughs> or Bob Warman (laughs) the thing is you can tell what they're supposed to look like and what their Mm. image is meant to be but in terms of how it actually connects when you watch it it feels more like a compare has come on and said ladies and gentlemen please give him a warm hand here to tap dance for you little bastard and on comes a kid (laughs) with a bowl cut in a bow tie and a velvet jacket with a fixed grin and fear in his heart (laughs) the problem is not that they're a manufactured group man or any of that stuff it's just a matter of what's here and what comes across when you're pure showbiz there's stuff you can do there's a lot of stuff you can do and get away with Mm. and then there's stuff that you just can't get away with and you kids on the block always very very keen on the stuff that you just can't get away with if you're this sort Mm. of group and it it's a bit depressing you know it's stuff like this that gives exploitation a bad name it's like what neil said before when you love pop you want 
want the top band of the era to be fucking astonishing, and uh, I'm not no. feeling that here with this lot. No. No. Although, speaking of the smash hits letters page, I was looking at the smash hits for this very week that this Top of the Pops went Oh, yes. And there's a bit of a mini war between swallow anything pop fans and mm. sort of snobby little indie kids who haven't yet made the jump to the inkies quite um yes so there's a letter from an unstereotyped stone roses and house of love fan west germany <laughs> who uh doesn't reckon new kids on the block and lives up to their pen name by busting those stereotypes and writing mm. <laughs> what really flipped me was that letter from the West Coast posse that reckoned the Stone Roses are unoriginal. I can only say one thing to them. Crap! Crawl back into your sheds, look stupid, rip out your voice boxes, form a group and become famous. After all, that's what New Kids on the Block did. Oh, yeah. Imagine what sort of idiot you'd have to be to think the Stone Roses were unoriginal. Um, Mm. But directly underneath, (laughs) there's an instant fight back from Jordan's Lucky Charms in Gwent, who writes, May we just say to the Stone Roses fan from the real world (laughs) that it is not hanging tough, which is crap, but fool's gold. (gasps) At least gorgeous John Knight hasn't got hair like hippies, as the Stone Roses do. Good point, well made. (laughs) At least new kids don't jump around wearing flares, which were only popular in caveman days. (laughs) The Stone Roses song portrays them perfectly. Fools! (gasps) So to the to the first letter, I would hold up two cards saying six and eight, <laughs> and to the second letter, I would hold up two cards saying seven and nine. Oh, if only Barry Talk had read out the fucking music press letters pages, man. <laughs> yeah, all those uh, voices they used to use on uh, yes, points of view, who all sounded posh because yes. nobody else wrote letter to points of view. <laughs> I always wanted to write a letter and say, Dear BBC, I live on a council estate in East London, and just to see what the kind of voice they'd read it out in. Yeah, at least what the papers say had a bit of range to them. Oh, yeah, for the tabs. Well, the only way to do it, really, is the Eurotrash way, Mm. which is just to do the broadest possible regional accent. Yes. (laughs) Dear BBC, points of view. (laughs) Fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) So, the following week, I'll be loving you forever, jump six places to number five but no further oh dear the follow-up and the final single release from the hanging tough lp cover girl got to number four for two weeks in may and then there was an absolute deluge of nakopa they started their magic summer tour in the uk in may selling tour programs at 10 pounds each released their third lp step by step in june and banged out four uk top 10 hits during the rest of the year After dropping off the radar in the UK at the end of 1991, they split up in 1995, reunited in 2008, are still going today, and have just announced a summer tour with Salt and Pepper on Vogue and Rick Astley. That is, in fact, the new supergroup. 
Yes. Uh, new Kids on the Block, Salt and Pepper, On Vogue, and Rick Astley mm. together at last with a new yes. single. From very familiar to viewers of Mike Reed's Heritage Chart Show. Ooh. Yes. Yes, indeed. This was one of the uh, actual highlights of the Heritage Chart Shows that I've seen. <laughs> new single called Bring Back the Time, which is a comment on nostalgia that is also nostalgic in itself. They haven't spent an awful lot on the video, but they have spent, you know, some certainly nothing on it. So it does, it looks like it belongs on the Heritage Chart Show because it just looks like it's been lit by supermarket overhead lights. <laughs> They've got Rick Astley as, as David Byrne and Jordan as Billy Idol and Joey as Robert Palmer with um, On Vogue as his lady backing band, Ooh. the kind of sultry ladies at the back. And it, it is both ironic and sincere, which is a hell of a thing to pull off, especially given mm. most of the people involved are American. Yeah. They're very niftily doing a postmodern song about nostalgia and desperation, and yes. they've actually sent themselves up quite nicely. And it's a good song. Right. I am actually full of admiration for them at this point. I think they've played an absolute blinder. And, oh. you know, if I was going to stuff, then I would definitely consider going to see this tour mm. because, you know, holy shit. What a line. Yeah. Although it, it is a bit like a pop version of the wild geese. <laughs> <laughs> Back together for one last job. But I mean, it's less humiliating than talking to Mike Reed over Zoom yes. in a hat with a straight face <laughs> and pretending your new record is going to have some kind of impact beyond your wife giving you a kiss on the cheek and <laughs> telling you she's very proud of you. <laughs> as well apparently that's new kids on the block okay our first look at the charts now 40 to 31 and our first new entry there at number 40 read my lips from jimmy somerville white snake and the deep of the love this week's number 39 kate bush and love and anger goes up to this week's 38 at 37 advice for the young at heart from tears for fears you're 36. Everything starts with an E from the Easy Posse. Lonnie Gordon happening all over again. This week's number 35. And you at 34. Birdhouse in your soul from They Might Be Giants. Electribe 101. Talking with myself at 33 this week. 32. Dude looks like a lady from Aerosmith. And up to 31. Hold back the river from Wet, Wet, Wet. Pay attention, please. Here comes a band who have never, ever been on television before. Not just not top of the pops, never been on television. It's their first hit single, Candy Flip, and Strawberry Fields Forever. On the balcony, flanked by two females, one of which is sporting one of them Tetley Tifo cats that are the style in the spring of 1990, yeah. studded with what looks like the bathroom tiles in the Banana Splits house, remarks that Nakotba are very nice to their grandparents as well, before whipping us into the first quarter of the brand new Top 40. Yeah, that girl's hat looks like mm. she smashed a Rubik's Cube in frustration, yes. and all the pieces flew 
flew up in the air and embedded themselves in a cow's bladder that she had on her head. <laughs> Is this the sort of Mondrian shower cap? That's what I've got yes. in my notes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, females. Yes. Put in deliberately to roll you, Sarah. Thanks. That's all right. To do, look, the only people who are allowed to call women females are cops and the narrators of nature documentaries. Right. <laughs> I'll bear that in mind. So think on. Okay. <laughs> the band picks, alas, are tediously adequate. Yeah. Jimmy Somerville, White Snake, Tears for Fears, Aerosmith, Kate Bush. Welcome to the new decade, everyone. <laughs> Back on the balcony, Mayo tells us that the next band have never been on any sort of television before. Not Police 5, not the Bandung File, not even Supermarket CCTV, but by God, they're here now. It's Candy Flip with Strawberry Fields Forever. Formed in Stoke-on-Trent in 1988, Yin Yang were a Pet Shop Boys-influenced duo who originally met at a music production course in Manchester called Danny Spencer, a house DJ and former Midlands breakdancing champion otherwise known as Dizzy D, and Rick Pete, whose mum was in the Vernon's Girls, the 60s group that mutated into the Ladybirds, the in-house backing singers for Top of the Pops in the 70s. As Spencer was already part of a house collective called This Ain't Chicago, who were signed to a phonogram offshoot label, they were picked up by them. But after they discovered that the head of A&R thought they were cat shit and had lobbed their latest demo tape out of a window, they signed to debut records, the home of Toto Coelho and MC Micah G and DJ Sven, and changed their name to Candy Flip because drugs <laughs> their first single love is life came out late last year but failed to get any airplay possibly due to the lad shouting it's mental it's mental in a cockney accent so they went back to the drawing board put out their next single and started to cast around for a b-side one fateful night they were driving back to stoke after a night at the hacienda found a french radio station heard it play the 1967 Beatles single that was held off number one by Release Me by Engelbert Humperdinck looked at each other with their mouths presumably hanging open and knew exactly what they had to do. Get their arse back to Dizzy D's dad's garage in Stoke and spend eight hours doing a soft lad cover of it with a funky drummer sample whacked over the top. After being rinsed in clubs, but not the hacienda to the chagrin of the lads, it was released last week and it's immediately shot into the charts at number 18. And they've immediately been hustled into the top of the pop studio to caper about like emissaries from a future Eden. <sighs> mm. uh. Holy shit. <laughs> here we are this could be the definitive holy shit this is yes. the tsar bomber of horrified disbelief yeah. uh, it's like the beatles on acid yes <laughs> 23 years of progress has led mm. us to this moment mm. i mean bearing in mind that whether intentionally or not this is less a pop record than a piece of trolling. Yes. I can remember at the time being pointlessly and predictably vocal 
about mm. this record. Not I'm surprised. Walking straight into it, as it were. <laughs> and I remember someone saying to me, and not for the last time, yeah, but <laughs> kids have never heard the original. Mm. This is all new to them. Like, as if mm. the Beatles' back catalogue was some hidden jewel. And as <laughs> if I wasn't 17 myself, you know what I mean? Yeah. But more than that... I thought, yeah, but this is like giving someone an asbestos sandwich because they've never tasted cheese. Yes. <laughs> On top of which, I couldn't quite get with the idea that the appropriate attitude to musical history and heritage was not to learn from it and mm. move on or to ignore it or to try and tear it down, but to keep on repackaging it a little bit weaker and a little bit worse every time to mm. meet the cultural and commercial demands of a deteriorating society. Now, call me <laughs> old-fashioned, but, you know. And all these decades later... It doesn't matter. And I'd like to look at Candy Flip and just chuckle and applaud demonically, you know. Mm. But you remember <laughs> that conceit of uh, the Durutti column? They put their first album out. It's an idea they borrowed from the Futurists, right? They released mm. their first LP in a sandpaper sleeve so that yes. when you filed it away, it scratched and it, it ruined all the sleeves of the albums around it as, a, mm. as an artistic statement and a, a gesture of contempt towards, uh, you know, like the historians or the librarians' concept of pop music. Yeah. Uh, it was like they were getting ready to fuck over Duran Duran, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, this is like that, except the sandpaper is also on the inside <laughs> against the soul. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're right, Taylor. It's put an absolute cat amongst the pigeons, hasn't it? According to the news section of this week's NME, the chairman of the Beatles Appreciation Society has given a wacky Mac a thumbs up, but <laughs> Matt Goss has said, this record should never have been made. <laughs> a cat amongst the pigeons indeed. Uh. This is basically the reason, ultimately, that uh, uh, that Taylor voted for this yes, episode. Yes, of course it is. He wanted to talk shit about Candy Flip more mm. than he wanted to rhapsodise about Killer or Groovers in the Heart. Yes. So here we are. Yes. <laughs> but he was drawn to it, like, you know, like a moth to a really bad pot record. To a bin fire. <laughs> the thing is that, that this is named after, um, obviously I, I didn't realise at the time but I now know that it was named after the popular ritual of taking MDMA and LSD. Yeah. Why have three letters when you can have seven? Exactly. <laughs> That's a candy flip, is it? That's what a candy flip is. It's a very weirdly named thing because you'd think, I don't know, candy flip sounds more like you know, MDMA and um, Chew it. Yeah, it, it does it, but that's partly the reason that's partly the thing isn't it it just sounds like a lovely fluffy innocent thing well, i assume they were called candy flip because that's a bowdlerized version of the words that come out of your mouth the first time you hear them. <laughs> actually a um a, a surprisingly um sensible combination of, of substances you know it sounds like people are like bloody hell i'd never do that holy shit what what the fuck are you doing it's like no they go really nicely together you know because like mm. the lsd kind of fills out what can be quite a small bubble of, of mdma and uh, the mdma takes the existential edge of the lsd so it works really right. well but um these people are i fail to see any evidence of them ever having had transformative psychoactive substances in their lives this is one of the least drugs records i've ever heard 
word. Mm. I mean, at the time, you know, before I commenced um, ruining my life with, with these things, I didn't know what to make of it. It probably was the first time that I heard Strawberry Fields Forever was in this format. Uh, there you go, Taylor. It was in the kind of weird milkshake version. Mm. It's very odd. Apparently, according to your Wikipedia, it is now considered a rave classic. How? By whom? <laughs> Citation needed. Like, I don't yes. understand. This is not rave by any definition that, that I have heard. You can't dance to it because no. it kind of it stops and starts, but without there being a build-up or a, or a drop. No. It's too fidgety for chill-out, and it's too boring for, like, the main room. You know, I mean, obviously the funky drummer is, yeah, we all love... Yes. There's a comfort inherent in hearing that break. You know, it's yes. so familiar God, to you yes. that it's just like a lovely soft... Even at the time, that's the thing, I think that break was more familiar to me at the time than Strawberry Fields Forever by the Beatles. But I did not enjoy it even as an 11-year-old because it's got that sort of slightly magic roundabouty feel to it, but not in a pleasant way. Yes. Not, there's just something sort of off about it. It starts with like 10 to 15 seconds of like weird dead air. Mm. And you can kind of feel that in the studio when, when they perform it. Like there's four of them. Like there's no reason for, them to, for there to be four of them. Yeah, they're being billed as a two-piece, but on that stage there are four people. One on a keyboard, one singing, one with some maracas, obviously, because it's 1990, and someone with a tambourine. What's going on? Also, it isn't psychedelic either. Either. No. Like, it's not dancey, right? It is neither of the drugs that they are claiming to invoke with their name. It, it's not dancey, it's not ecstatic, and it's not psychedelic. Mm. I mean, the thing about the psychedelic experience, and especially British psychedelia, is there's lots of humour and absurdism in it. Yeah. The, and kind of cartoonery. It's very daft because, in fact, acid is very silly. Mm. It's not just very silly, it also forces you to confront all kinds of large things. Mm. And this doesn't have any of those things, it doesn't have any of those elements. It's just this sort of very strange vacuum. Yeah. And it doesn't invite the listener to be sort of transported or transformed. Just sort of a bit weirded out by what it isn't. Yes. It's sort of like if you pulverised the shaman in a Nutribullet with some celery <laughs> and some antihistamine that they told you was an absolutely top draw pinger. <laughs> this is what you get. It's proto-trip hop, isn't it? Is it? If you take my definition of trip hop, which is really fucking boring hip hop. <laughs> no, but it's supposed to be dark though. I mean, there isn't any darkness in it. It's not really sunny either. No. There's something beatific about it, but not blissy. Yes. Do you know what I mean? There's like a pose, and I can't figure out for the life of me, and nor did I want to spend any time trying to figure this out, how cynical an operation this is. Mm. Like, whether it's purely naive and awkward or the opposite, or maybe both somehow. They're essentially Madchester Jedwood, aren't they? <laughs> Jedchester, if you will. It's like East 17 babies. Or if you want to be geographically correct, they're De La Stoke. Oh, <laughs> if this evokes an altered state at all, it's the feeling of half waking from a wrong nap mm. you know the kind of liminal state where you've napped for too long at the wrong time and yes. you regret having it and you can't move and you've got like sleep paralysis and you've just dipped into unconsciousness at the wrong time mm. and like your arms numb and you've drooled onto your cuff and it's just like oh no what have i done it's that so who are these boys well in an interview with the enemy next week we learned that they fully bought into this gimmick in 1990 people have needed to develop 
develop a hippie attitude, says Dizzy D. Things had to move away from that whole 80s thing of me, me, me. Now it's us, us, us. Not just people, but the whole planet. People are striving for harmony. (laughs) Meanwhile, Rick feels that the 60s have been neglected by modern music as a source of inspiration. Fucking hell, didn't he live through the 80s at all? (laughs) And both of them feel that rave is the only new scene that has happened since punk. When he gets pointed out to them that rave is doing nothing but desensitising people to reality, they counter that rave has done what punk tried to and failed, which was create a scene without heroes. According to them in this interview, uh, punk was alright until the Sex Pistols came along. That's what they actually fucking said. (laughs) Well, they're certainly doing their best to turn it into a scene without heroes mm, yes I and mean, even in this era it's quite strange to see a band with two bezes yes that's what i've got here a brace of bezes yeah yes. well i mean t- really it's a whole band of bezes of course but you know, <laughs> yes <laughs> what if you just you know copied and pasted bez four times <laughs> if catch a fire was entirely populated by bezes this is what we get because <laughs> they've got those kind of like ethnic hooded tops yeah those double bezes i can never name the guilty boys because thanks to the sounds check column in the stafford sentinel which was the bible of the pottery's rave scene in an article dated november the 10th 1989 we can name those bezers budding stars signed big deal four budding young potteries pop stars have been snapped up by one of the world's biggest music publishers the friends all from Bradley, staffordshire have signed a contract with london-based polygram music to make one album and two singles calling themselves candy flip the band are kelvin andrews richard scott carl johns and dizzy d alias danny spencer richard scott is rick pete so yeah that's kelvin and carl up there shaking a maraca and uh, a, a tambourine. It's a shame that the baggy era were so limited in their choices of percussion instrument, don't you think? <laughs> you know, they could have mixed in a baldron or a, a massive gong or a scrapey fish. Yeah. No, damn shame. Yeah, or a twisty cheese grater thing. Yes. Yeah. Some spoons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, back to the article. Dizzy's father, Tony Mould, is acting as manager for the boys and is planning to have Rick recording equipment so his son can work from home yes Mm. keep an eye on him so he don't take any of them bloody drugs (laughs) the four boys have called themselves candy flip and the album they're doing will be called ice pops and global grooves oh my god (laughs) it was not in fact they it was called um, yeah we'll come to that later an even worse title for an album imagine the brainstorming sessions that went into that we can sit here and sneer as we did back in the day but no to the mainstream media these boys are the representatives of rave in 1990 they're about to be invited onto wogan and blue peter until someone had a word about what candy flipping is and those invitations were withdrawn pretty sharpish but they get two smash hits covers in 1990 yeah two. and the the one on the 4th of april with your man making the classic pob cat's asshole face mm, yes um the cover line being peace and love and rave on man and because it's smash hits in yes. 1990 you can hear the tone in which that has been put on the cover yes that edition also featured adamski sydney youngblood d mob happy mondays easy posse andrew ridgely and snap every man jack of whom is more rave than they are yes 
<laughs> at least they're keeping up one top of the pops tradition, which is to piss off dads all over the country. Yeah. By this yeah. point, Beatles fans would have kids of a, a top of the pops watching age, and they would have been so fucked up. Yeah, I mean, it's a very boringly traditional view that Strawberry Fields Forever with Penny Lane on the double A side is the greatest single of all time. Yeah. You know, like there could be such a thing. Mm. But the thing is, that's a traditional view according to the tradition that pop isn't just a practical joke and should yeah. be imaginative and stimulating and mm. courageous, you know. But there are also aspects of pop music, like essential elements that that view doesn't allow for, like cheapness, stupidity, trashiness, pointless mischief and an opposition to the very idea of objective artistic worth so in a way this record is like a giant horrendous corrective that strips away all the worthy qualities of the original yeah and replaces them with all the shitty and shoddy things that it's missing but mm. however amusing that looks and whatever else you can say about candy flip Never let it be said that they don't look amusing. No, um, God it's yeah. not in the end a very rewarding thing to do, and ultimately the struggle is to not let him take you down. You know, <laughs> people do these compilations of terrible Beatles covers, right? Yes. And it's always the obvious kitsch ones. It's like the, the barking dogs doing Hard Day's Night and yes. all that sort of thing. But what would really hurt would be a compilation of Beatles covers which are supposed to be good, but which actually systematically drain away everything magical from the original mm. as though that were the point you know yeah. if you had a cd and it was the thompson twins version of revolution Ooh. uh u2 doing helter skelter Ooh. uh dollars version of i want to hold yes. your hand oasis doing i am the war and this i mean that would take a heart of steel you know i can't mm. imagine how you'd feel about the world by the end of it <laughs> and what thoughts it might inspire. Yeah. There is basically no humour in this at all and no mischief, but he does have that slightly cheeky look, uh, almost as if he's stepped off the set of Bugsy Malone. We're the very best at being bad. Da -da 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 -da. He's more like brilliant lads in the fast show. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What's he got around his neck? He's got a little, it's a pouch. There's a little pouch. Yeah, it looks with... like a 19th century condom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming it's got his change in it for the vending machine or you know unless it's his LSD and his and his ecstasy yeah, or some unidentifiable ashes oh. <laughs> I don't yeah. like this bloke he, I, he gives me the creeps to mm. look at him I mean the whole group it's like regardless of the musical vivisection that they're performing it's that blend of all blonde nordic purity and sort mm. of arm swinging soft lad mopiness it's like if the hitler youth had been indoctrinated to believe that they were the inferior race <laughs> they just stood around sort of with slumped shoulders you know simpering like too scared to take up any space but also chillingly psychopathic mm. uh it's like no wonder <laughs> simon mayo seems so keen on him yeah. like that lead singer what's his name rick pete yes uh, he's got that very innocent milky look to him he's like a mm. small boy in a historical drama whose one line is soldiers came they took my father <laughs> <laughs> I'm, fairly on, I'm surprised he's quite so cavalier about 
boasting publicly of his drug use because mm. he doesn't look to me like a lad who would save a prison life. No. <laughs> it's like after the show he flew away on the back of a giant pelican to lollipop land mm. and ruined that and all. Yes. No, that's what they want you to think though. Like I just didn't get anything like that off it at all. Like no. I don't see any imagination really going into it or coming out of it, you know. <laughs> It's like the end of music. It's like turn back now. It's like the, we've we've done. You know that's it. That <laughs> you can't do anything else. Yeah. Also, uh, a resident synth nerd here pointed out that that is a Juno sixty. Oh, yes. on the stage, and it is not plugged in. Oh. and also there isn't a Juno sixty on that record. Good lord, that's not the sound it makes. The way they lie to the kids. <laughs> they lied, lying liars. The giveaway is that. Bez number one is wearing mum jeans. <laughs> I mean, I'm guessing they've all got them from, you know, Affleck's Palace or somewhere, you know, like mm. you're supposed to. But fucking hell, there's flares and then there's flares. He's got these Ugh. jeans with like, they're all gathered up just below the belt line. Yes. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't look very good. The BBC have enhanced this somewhat by bunging loads of dry ice on, which means you don't see the width of those Saxons. But you know the proper swingerlingers because they've appeared in the media as um, advocates of flares. Back to sounds check, everyone. Headline, Rick's flair for fashion. <laughs> Stoke-on-Trent's latest pop celebrity <laughs> has given a top fashion tip to all those trendies. Rick Pete, one half of Chart Sensation's Candy Flip, reckons that flared trousers are where it's at. And he added, when you're buying your flares, make sure they're really tight at the top and round the back side so the overall shape looks better. <sighs> make sure that they're tight at the top and round the back side and then continue that way all the way to the ankles where you stop. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and be thankful that we don't give you a slap mm. for your terrible fashion ideas. Because, you know, I'm 22 now. There's no way I'm ever going to wear flares, man. I did that when I was eight <laughs> in 1976. Fuck that shit. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, is that Rick Pete's fucking same age as me, I believe. Ah. What's his excuse? Drugs. Drugs, yes. <laughs> the kids are going fucking hysterical, though. Or at least Paul Chiani and his henchmen have goaded them into being hysterical. Yeah, what do the kids know? It sounds like Jimmy Osmond being lowered into a tank full of piranhas in 1974. I'm sure this is just the beginning of a long and rewarding pop career for Candy Flip. <laughs> They're already landing some huge bookings, Taylor. Don't look down your nose. Advert in the Burton Daily Mail. <laughs> Attention, Burton and surrounding area. Dance Arena Part 1, featuring live on stage, Candy Flip. Currently in the national charts with their massive hit single, Strawberry Fields Forever. Support by Mr. Freestyle. Guest rapper, Cliffy White Boy. <laughs> also appearing, Burton's first and exciting dance crew, Lafitte. Supplying beats and bass lines, spelt B-A-S-E, DJ Magic Touch, Party Man, a newcomer, Chuck E. Bad Boy. <laughs> Drill Hall, Burton, tickets £2 from Oasis, £3 on the door. Live video shooting, whistles and horns essential. £5 each for the wackiest male-female dressers. So be there or be rectangular. Don't miss it. 
Mickey Muck and DJ Mr. Bronson. Ladies free after yes. past ten. <laughs> I miss those nights. Al, you've somehow inadvertently become the keeper of the Candy Flip archive. I know, I know. <laughs> Can you handle that responsibility? Yeah, wait till all them Candy Flip documentaries turn up on BBC Former. <laughs> Get out of my fucking way, Stuart McConaughey. This is my patch. <laughs> They've struck the first chord in something that's hanging over this episode and this year, which is a fucking hankering for it to be the late 60s. Mm. That's the great thing about the 60s. When you get bored with one bit of it, you can start craving for another bit of it. I mean, because this generation, and I'm speaking as one who was part of it, had a real proper sweet tooth for the late 60s. You know, all those episodes of the Banana Splits and Scooby-Doo. Yeah, I have perhaps more to say in connection with that uh, in relation to something that's coming up a little later. But, Mm. yeah... No, it's true. It is true. So, where are the Beatles at the moment? Well, Paul's halfway through a 103-date world tour and finally bulking out his sets with Beatles songs. George is about to reconvene with a travelling Wilburys and Ringo is busy at home, presumably Ringoing. (laughs) John's still dead, but Yoko and Sean are flying into London tomorrow and stopping here for two weeks for her first exhibition in the UK since 1967 and presumably they'll have a bit to say about Strawberry Fields Forever by Candy Flip. A magical mystery tour and uh, help are being released for the first time on VHS next week. So yeah, Beatles still churning along. When you say Ringo's Ringoing, I guess by Ringoing you mean filling up a tumbler with brandy, pouring Mm. it into his mouth and then refilling the tumbler. (laughs) Go to ten. (laughs) It's hard to feel sorry for the 80s Beatles because you know they weren't that likable at that point but you listen to this and you just want to pat them on their head you know what I mean it's like there's actually a long history of of jaw-dropping question mark over the head cover versions of classic records right the 70s was full of them when you look closely all these monstrous manglings of great old rock and roll manglings or straightenings out of great old mm. rock and roll songs made dull and flavorless you know but there were always limits there was always crown jewels that you just didn't touch right you didn't mess with strawberry fields some mm. yeah. angel or demon would be after you you know and yeah it's sort of nice that these clueless cunts just don't give a toss they don't (laughs) have any sense of what's a good idea and what's an unthinkably terrible idea and they just stomp wherever they please you know and it is nice to imagine all those mojo subscribers in waiting going around the corkscrew (laughs) over this shit but the fun only lasts for as long as you don't have to hear it yourself (laughs) it's like if somebody lobbed a stink bomb into the tape right you can appreciate (laughs) the symbolism but also you can't pretend that it's anything more than dumb kids being dickheads and mm. you just hope the smell has cleared by the time of your next visit yeah i tell you what um, the the legacy of this is um this might just be the algorithm going from my dubious taste but when i looked up strawberry fields forever on spotify this was the top result fuck hell <laughs> is the original on spotify yeah Oh, for fuck! <laughs> Jesus. So I looked up Candy Flip on Spotify and it's like, they've got 20,000 monthly listeners. And I thought they had a new single out. I was like, oh, what the fuck is this? But mm. it's somebody else 
called Candy Flip with right. someone called Claude Steez Cat. And Spotify has just done the thing that it does by and, and lumped them in together into the one page, even though they're two different artists, which is what happens when, God. you know. So someone else thought it was a good idea to call themselves Candy Flip. Mm. And that track is also very bad, but in the modern way. Right. <laughs> you know the way that things are bad now? When they're bad, yes, yeah. Um, yeah, it's one of those. <laughs> um, by the way, Steez Cat is a, it, uh, I should say Claude Steez Cat, but the S in Steez Cat is a dollar sign. Right, nice. of course it is. So there you go. I hope Candy Flip got really outraged at somebody just fucking with musical heritage like this. You can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> they are basically the poor man's Joe Valley. Um, <laughs> and you have to stick another of his tone deaf and disturbed reimaginings of Beatles classics on the video playlist and demonstrate that it is actually possible to desecrate the canon while adding to the number of interesting things on earth. So the following week, Strawberry Fields Forever soared 12 places to number six and a week later, it spent two weeks at number three. A fortnight after this performance, they put out their LP, Madstock, The Continuing Adventures of Bubble Car Fish, which failed to chart. I know... No, you just wouldn't ask for that at the record shop, would you? I knew what that was. And also, crucially, there's an ellipsis in there. Mm. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And I knew that was coming anyway, but just somehow hearing you say it has just has delighted me. Mm. <laughs> Although they announced to the music press that their next single would either be a cover of Brace Yourself, The Land of Make Believe, <laughs> Or calling occupants of interplanetary craft. <laughs> <laughs> they decided not to become show baggy bagger and put out their own composition, This Can Be Real, in July. But it only got to number 60. Have you heard that? No. Oh, it's fucking cat shit. <laughs> it's the sort of thing that Thames Television would have chucked back in the faces of Rod, Jane and Freddie for being too childish. It's <laughs> awful. And after two more singles which lingered around the murky depths of the top 100, the octopus's garden of the top 100, if you will, they split up in 1992. Pete went on to engineer and produce for the likes of the Charlatans and Six by Seven, while Dizzy D teamed up with his brother Kelvin Andrews, one of the Maraca Shakers, to form the production duo Soul Mechanic, which knocked out four tracks for Robbie Williams on the 2006 LP Root Box. <laughs> something that's going to be a top five hit what a great performance i think they enjoyed it as much as everybody else that's candy flip strawberry fields forever here's another record of the week the b-52s have a charted at last love shack Back on the balcony behind a massive Radio 1 logo and in the middle of a line of much older members of the audience appears so enraptured by the flared four that he predicts a top five placing for them before pivoting to one of his former records of the week, Love Shack by the B-52s. 
Formed in Athens, Georgia in 1976, the B-52s were signed to the local label DB Records in 1978, and when their debut single, Rock Lobster, sold 20,000 copies in the Georgia area and they were invited to play at CBGB's and Max's Kansas City in New York, they were picked up by Warner Brothers in the US and Ireland in the UK and whisked over to Ireland Studios in the Bahamas to record their first self-titled LP. They made the first dent on the UK charts in 1979 when a re-recorded version of Rock Lobster spent two weeks at number 37 in August of that year, while the LP got to number 22 in the same month. Although they weren't as successful in the American charts, their influence was such that when John Lennon was interviewed by Andy Peebles the day before he died, he said that hearing Rock Lobster was the spark for getting him back into the studio and recording Double Fantasy. Although they were an intermittent fixture on the UK LP chart throughout the early 80s, diminishing returns set in singles-wise. And when guitarist Ricky Wilson died in October of 1985 after the band had recorded their fourth LP, the band shut up shop and refused to tour. However... When Ireland re-released Rock Lobster and their second single Planet Claire as a double A-side in May of 1986, it rocketed up to number 12, which, combined with a guest appearance as hosts of a Peter fundraiser in Washington, where they were cheered to the rafters, convinced them to get their thumbs out their arses and start again. This single... The follow-up to Channel Z, which failed to chart in America and hasn't been released here yet, is the second cut from their comeback LP, Cosmic Thing, which was released last June and was co-produced by Don Woz on the advice of the record label and Niall Rogers on the advice of Kate Pearson's Mam Psychic. It's based on the cabin where the band recorded Rock Lobster and it's already been and gone in America, getting to number three last November. It entered the charts at number 33 at the beginning of the month, then soared 19 places to number 14. And this week it's jumped eight places to number six. And here is the officially allotted two minutes of video. Hmm... Amazingly, chaps, this is the third cut release from the LP in America, which is fucking mental, because if there was ever a nailed-on hit in the spring of 1990, it's this bastard right here. Yeah. Don't you think? I, uh, I, I always felt a bit weird that I don't really like this much. I fall in and out with it myself, because, yeah. like, Love Shack by the B-52s, we all have to get right with the fact that we're going to be hearing this off and on for the rest of our lives. Oh, God, yeah. Hopefully it won't be the last thing you hear before you depart this mortal <laughs> coil. I, I'm not sure that would be, you know, sort of drifting through the hospice. <laughs> so, yeah, I fall in that with it. Sometimes I want to slap it in the face because it's so fucking cheery and, you know. Mm. And other times I think, no, no, come on, this is a great record and I just want to smack it on its arse in a friendly hijinks sort of way mm. it's very zesty isn't it it's not it's yes. not quite zany but it's very zesty yes and it's it's filled with color and texture and made to delight and amuse that's yeah. the point of this i mean let's not fanny about it this is by a country mile the best tune on this episode so far yeah yeah yeah, yeah. by by a georgia mile and to hear it in this context will be like opening a window in a festival toilet and letting the sun in but yeah you're right 
age and repetition has worn it somewhat. I mean, they are a good, fun band. They've been going for a long mm. time. They do have other songs. Yeah, they're an acceptable doolies, aren't they? The B-52s. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, the thing is, I kind of have to like them because I live with a man who will break into Rock Lobster at the drop of a hat or indeed right. the drop of a matching towel. Mm. You can't say narwhal in this house without <laughs> all hell breaking loose. But you have to be in the right mood. I don't think there are some... Yeah tunes where it's like you can't be sad while this is on Mm. i wouldn't file this among them i think if you're sad this is gonna just piss you off more oh god yeah but it really creates a world in in the kind of three minutes like we've spoken before haven't we on this podcast about what parties we'd go to and which nights out in pop yes i would go i would go to the love shack i don't know oh god yeah you would it's like a sort of day glow speakeasy just secreted in the middle of the lush forests of georgia yeah it's one of the great mythic party places of pop and they've set it out right yeah guaranteed no fools that's good semi-naked people yeah the jukebox isn't free but I maintain that's good because people will care about what they're putting on if they have to pay for it. Yeah. Hugging, mm. kissing, check, dancing, mm. and loving. Ooh, double check. All of these things. The music and the vibes are great. The drinks are terrifying. It's a lawless health and safety nightmare. <laughs> it, it's it's great. And I, I love that there's such a great mental image um that they've conjured up that the whole shack shimmies when everybody's grooving around mm. and around and around and around. Yeah. Like the glittery dust falling from the ceiling into your beehive. I mean, the instant reaction I always have to this, it's always, oh, it's this again. So they'll be playing Groovies in the Heart next and that'll be the early (laughs) 90s taken care of and possibly step on. (laughs) Yeah, whenever you hear this record, you know you will find ordinary people dancing. Yes. Which is, you know, on the whole, a good thing. I just don't appreciate how... If you say that you don't really care for this record or group, people respond as though you said you don't like happiness. Mm. You know what I mean? Yes. I can see that you would probably have to be weirdly over sour or have a very specific bee in a very specific bonnet to actively hate them or this. Mm. And, you know, people have got great memories of dancing to this at Donna's Hen Night or whatever, you know, which is all great and totally valid. It's just that... For me, the B fifty two. I don't know. They sort of exist in the in the mysterious unlit gap between me and happiness. Mm. You know, and they don't run a ferry service. <laughs> it's a representation of a certain kind of happiness, or at least camp amusement, mm. which just isn't necessarily contagious. And it probably should be because it's you know sort of smart but undemanding and there's a reasonable arrangement of simple ideas all of which are potentially appealing but it just doesn't connect with me and i think because i'm never in quite the right state of relaxation and acceptance but i mean i know there's a queue of reasonable people who love this record stretching from barbary to here and Mm. i don't say that i know any better than any of them yeah but you can sort of grudgingly appreciate the craft can't you even if you can't get with the mood that's been very forcefully created in this very very american way yeah i mean i i do get it this could not have been made by british people i i would oh god can you imagine i mean when british people try to do this you get bomb ballerina don't you yeah that's what you get it just doesn't work (laughs) and there is often as I've remarked upon before, this sort of uncomfortable contrast on top of the pops between the super snappy, sexy, whizzy, cool kid Americans and the kind of slumpy, slouchy, 
sloppy, blundery Brits. Mm. You know, I, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean this is the only way to, to do this. It is quite an obnoxious record, but you know that there are Americans in control. You know? yeah. It's very Roy Walker, isn't it, the video? Instead of say what you see, it's film what you hear. <laughs> so there's a shack and it's filmed with people getting together and people are getting to it via a highway in a car as big as a whale, but there's no need to bring your jukebox money because there's a band on tonight. Yeah. And it's the B-52s, fancy that. The video is very, very literal, but it goes with it very well. Mm. They painted a picture with words, they didn't necessarily need to do it in the video, but, but they did and it works really well. Um, the mm. one thing that I noticed is that stood out in this little clip is um, the bartender is shaking a cocktail shaker so laconically. Yeah. Like, that's not how you do it. Put your back into it. <laughs> I can only assume that the contents are so volatile that he has to baby it. Yeah. You've got to be careful. You go to the love shack, you drink things that no man of woman born should drink, <laughs> and you wake up three days later, half out of a creek, wearing only another man's pants. <laughs> it's, it's dicey. Yeah, it's probably one of those 1950s cocktails that are now illegal. They've got lead in it. <laughs> it's fine that it's literal, but there are some preposterous theories kicking about about how oh, it's, really? not, it's not literal. It's actually about getting knocked up in a brothel and oh. uh, the Chrysler is a somebody's dick. No. Obviously, there are loads of vehicles in pop that are actually penises, but mm. in this case, I don't buy it. Sometimes a car is just a car, yeah. even if it is as big as a whale. <laughs> and I didn't see any stars or bananas over that car in the video, so... Hell no. I think the really disturbing lyric in Love Shack is glitter on the highway, because it sounds like a fucking breakout at HM Prison, the Vern. <laughs> Well, there's nothing good that ends with glitter on the highway. Oh, yeah, or glitter on the mattress. <sighs> I mean, yeah, okay, if you stretch, you can see that as, you know, something other than actual glitter, but... Uh... Oh, what, not spunk? What are you going to know? <laughs> oh, imagine ejaculating glitter. Oh. Oh, well, you'd never, get, you'd never get rid of it, that's the thing. No. <laughs> And again, it's another example of the UK falling behind America because, you know, this has been out fucking ages in America. We're even behind Australia on this one. It was their Christmas number one last year, don't you know? Uh, yeah. Well, it might just be that it's taken a bit of time for this aesthetic to make any sense in Britain, mm. right? Because I think a couple of years ago, I'm not sure anybody would really have got it. You know, because it's very American. It's like a sort of cutesy cramps, in it? It's like a sort of neo-Americana. The twingers. But this is it, like all reluctant critics. The problem I have is when I don't really like something, I usually know exactly why. And then yeah. I can't stop thinking about that which makes yeah. it even harder to relax in its presence and just go along with it, which might sometimes be a better course of action. But this is it. The B-52s just hit me in the same way as those things to which they are aesthetically similar, right? Like John Waters films or mm. fridge magnets with a picture of a 1950s American housewife, you know, and a yeah. caption about drinking gin and all that. They just pass through without pinging any symbols you know i think because they feel like the work of people who have some brains and talent in a shape that doesn't necessarily fit into the culture of their time but for whatever reason they don't have the gumption or the genius to create their own culture or their own space within a hostile culture so it's just this kind of atomic age kitsch you know which wants to make peace with its own irrelevance and almost revel in it i might be overthinking this but you know 
what else can I do? Taylor, I, I feel like there's a, a struggle going on here that mm. you don't need to have. Like, there's no shame in being a person who doesn't like Love Shack by the B-52s, even if, yeah. you know, the only person or one of a very few. It's fine. It's all right. You don't have to. It doesn't cause me any mental strife in my in my personal life, you know. <laughs> it's just a, just a professional consideration. Yeah. I, don't know. I think it's just a, a character thing. Like, I don't really want to dance to this record same as i don't really want to apply to be on a game show you know what I mean? actually i did apply to be on a game show i applied really? to be on uh, sas who dares win <laughs> but they they turned me down they said i was too hard <laughs> it wouldn't be fair i'm the same as you taylor if it comes on it's like oh this yeah. And that's the wrong reaction to have to any single. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And the thing that annoyed me about it at the time is it, it's one of the most prominent singles about being in a club that's a million times better than the sticky, flawed, stale beer, reeking provincial shithole that I was currently in. Right. You know, I'd just be there lumbering about to it and thinking, oh, God, I wish I was there instead of here. Yeah. It's like the polar opposite to nightclub or Friday night and Saturday morning, isn't it? Yeah, but if somebody said to me hey come with me it's we're going deep into the forest in georgia to a shack it's going to be great mm. i'd be thinking yeah gimme gimme deliverance yes <laughs> <laughs> so the following week love shack moved up four places to number two and camped out there for three weeks held off the summit of mount pop by this week's number one and the power by snap the follow-up Rome got to number 17 in June and then their chart appeal became more selective. But they'd have one last hurrah in 1994 when they temporarily renamed themselves the BC-52s and took their cover of the Flintstones theme tune to number 43 for three weeks in July of that year. Yeah. Oh man, why did they bother remaking the Flintstones, stupid Americans? Still going, just about. Last month, they announced their farewell tour, supported by Nobed, Cunt, and whatever remains of the Sunshine Band, so oh. good on them. Yeah, that's great, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, Kate Pearson, who, I mean, I still don't believe she's real. I, I'm sure mm. she's a Tim Burton character, you know. Yeah. She was about my age in, in the Love Shack video, and she looks about, you know, she looks about 20, so. She looks um, amazing sure she, in this video. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, she is truly ageless, I think. But, I mean, she, for years, has also had, um, I don't think you can call it a side hustle, it's probably her main hustle, mm. which is to have rented cabins. Right. She had a whole compound in the Catskills just outside Woodstock, which she's now sold. Really? But she still has several of those, like, cabins and Airstream trailers and stuff for, for holiday rents. The Airbnb 52s. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and they look if just well. The, the, the website for them is so beautiful. It's all so kind of, uh, like I said about you know you, when when you throw a party and when you have a, a compound of, of of kitschy cabins, you just the, the the intent filters through right to the last detail, you know. Mm. And they look exactly like you expect in the best way. Um, my yeah. my pal and uh, fellow ex maker guy um, Stevie Chick said that he stayed in one, and oh. said it was brilliant. There's a beta max machine and like a library of 80s comedies and slasher movies it's just oh, that's lovely nice yeah oh and did you notice the black woman in the white outfit yes do you know who that is no. no it's the first appearance on British TV of a 28 year old pole dancer from a club in Atlanta called RuPaul Charles mm. yeah dang yeah if your dad fancied her go and see him now and tell him <laughs> <laughs>
start with B52 Love Shack. Okay, here come the breakers this week. We have the Wets at number 31. We have Fish at number 30. And kicking it all off at 29. This is big fun to start the breakers this week. Mayo! Still on the balcony, spoilers this week's breakers section before pitching us into Handful of Promises by Big Fun. We last covered Human Sop in chart music number 30 when they danced like they were trying to get dog shit off their trainers in an attempt to promote Can't Shake the Feeling, which got to number 8 in December of 1989. This is the follow-up and will be the third cut from their debut LP, A Pocket Full of Dreams, which is due out at the end of next month. It came out last week and it's a new entry this week at number 29. And here's a chance to see the video and all oh dear chaps it appears that by march of 1990 the hit factory is in recession kyla doing films and trying to move away from her charlene image jason diminishing returns are setting in no more mel and kim rick astley's moved to rca and even sunita's fucked off all that's left at the moment for stock Aiken and waterman is sonia and these twats. <sighs> Hmm. Some boys in a baggy, shapeless, faded bag, isn't it? Very much so. They are quite hearty lads. Yes. They're quite ruddy-cheeked. They look like volunteer firemen. <laughs> but it is like a strange parody of a boy band video. Yes. It, it's, it's like a sketch, isn't it, a little bit? And yeah. it's like what anyone is doing behind or in front of the camera is beyond me. Yeah, well, they are the pioneers of what we see as boy bands nowadays, aren't they? A group of lads who don't play instruments and do a bit of a dance and look at us girls you fancy us yeah I mean, it's such there's such alchemy behind boy bands and when it it, it, it mm. works or it doesn't you know and, yes. and obviously a lot of like craft and hard work goes into it as well and this is hard thankless work mm. it's a bit like i don't know it's a bit like being a, a server in an american restaurant or something yes where you have to bid yes. everyone have a nice day and smile whether you feel like it or not you have to feel sorry for the poor soz not just because of who they are and what they're not capable of and not just because they're the vanguard of our sense stock aiken and waterman and they've just landed a disappointing chart position but you know you have to remember this is an all gay boy band who are still being forced to keep it on the down low by pete waterman and they're on the cusp of an era where every single boy band that's going to come down the pike is going to be encouraged to do a gay And they can't. They're not allowed. They've just got to stand there, togged out in their young person's rail card advert outfits. Yeah, they've been dressed by some straights, haven't Mm. they? It ain't right. And what makes it even worse is the location they've put them in, which is an empty warehouse with a sprinkler system and a steam machine, which is, you know, if you were going to build a trap to attract and snare homoerotic acting males, that's what you'd make. (laughs) If Take That were in this video a year later. You know, their shirts are coming right off and there's going to be some horseplay oh yeah possibly with some jelly but because big fun are allowed to express themselves all they can do is throw some unconvincing shapes and interact with some models who are pretending to be their girlfriends yeah yeah. i mean you're not going to see members of big fun taking their pants off and swapping them and putting them on again in a video are you to us it is a warehouse but to them it's just a huge closet (laughs) as people of the future we know what big fun want a handful of and it's not promising (laughs) 
But back in the day, when Big Fun were a concern on the playground, there, there would have been no inkling that you know about what they like to get up to. Oh no, absolutely not. I mean, obviously, everybody knows that no eleven-year-old boy has ever known he was gay. That only happens when you turn sixteen. Like literally, on your birthday, you wake up, and that's the first thing that occurs to you. Hmm, maybe I like guys. Yeah, because it is a decision, isn't it? Also, it depends how much homosexual propaganda you've come into contact with in your teenage years. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, despite the fact that they must have been feeling pretty bad at this point. They must have watched this yeah. this episode of Top of the Pops, and by the time it rolled round to their little clip, it'd be like, Jesus, you know what we are? Old cunts on the block. <laughs> <laughs> it'd be like when you do some talking head shit for some documentary, and you just peel off perler after perler. You just think, well, there's, there's no way they can't use that. And then it comes on, and you've got 10 seconds talking about something that you, you did as a fucking aside that was shit. And you just yeah. think, oh, that's who I am, Amma. I'm just the big fun of this documentary, Amma. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, what is left to say about big fun? It, oh, plenty, we, Taylor. We... <laughs> because big fun are the whipping boys of pop at the moment. They encapsulate everything that needs to be gotten rid of from the 80s. And, you know, they're the yardstick that all these new bands that are coming along are, are railing against. To that end, I direct the pop craze youngsters to an interview conducted by Stephen Wells in The Enemy a month ago with Birdland, uh-huh. whose latest single, Sleep With Me, has just entered the charts at number 32, which has encouraged them to go about thinking the summit. When asked if being in magazines like The Face and On Top of the Pops compromises selling out, Lee Vincent says, no, 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 we're going to be there rather than big fun with their conditioned hair. And when Swells asks them if they really hate big fun, Lee replies, yeah, it makes you want to puke. The whole thing about these bands is that they're in it for money. (laughs) Money and girlfriends and wearing designer things and being in the face right number one girlfriends don't think so number two this interview was conducted well birdland were actually in a studio doing a fucking photo shoot for the face (laughs) and then swells asked robert vincent if he would chin big fun if he met them (laughs) i wouldn't go anywhere they go but then swells asked what about if you met them in the top of the pop studio and they came up to you and said hi i think you guys are really great and we really like the single robert comes back with i just say yeah it is isn't it i think your record's crap why don't you make a record like that actually play something can you do that you wankers oh yeah real tough guys there wow what an extremely hard target that's so edgy Ooh, you hate the boy bands do you gosh you must be amazing you're such a free thinker your music must be the most brilliant music if you hate the boy bands please tell me more at some point we'll get to birdland's whole 30 seconds on top of the pops can't wait yeah a mate of mine had a bootleg video of something once can't remember what it was and at the end it finished and then you know it went and then you saw what had been on the tape beforehand Mm. underneath and it was a birdland gig oh Um, no and it was the climax of this birdland gig which was just a load of feedback and noise and the bloke out of birdland was uh, on his knees on the stage shouting into the microphone and he was going baby you could drive my car 
baby, you can drive my car. <laughs> baby, you can drive my car. And he said it about ten times. And there was a pause. And then he went, my fucking car. <laughs> <laughs> and so for about the next uh, three years, on the rare occasions that uh, you saw a mention of Birdland in the press <laughs> or on TV, everyone would just start shouting, my fucking car. <laughs> <laughs> You wouldn't get away with that now either, would you? Because, no. like, that's... Hate speech. <sighs> well, it kind of is. Yeah, but Wells was clearly goading them into, you know, making threats and whatnot. But more importantly, Big Fun versus Birdland. I know who my money would be on. Yeah. There was a, a, a new metal band whose name I now forget, who actually... Mm. Ca- did they call their album Kill All Boy Bands? And the tour was like oh, really? the Kill All Boy Bands tour. And I had to go and do a little backstage interview with them after a gig. And the guy was so fucking pleased with himself about his entire concept and it's just like you know that it's the chart right and if you deign to be in it you you can share it with some people sometimes they'll sell more than you but that's okay you know it's all right mate it's okay it's like when peter and the test tube babies did a song called beat up the mods (laughs) and this chorus was beat up the mods 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 beat the mods up (laughs) my fucking mods (laughs) so the following week handful of promises jumped eight places to number 21 but would get no further in panic mode stock aiken and waterman teamed them up with sonia in the summer with a view to recording a cover of you've got a friend for Childline. but for reasons unknown they ended up recording a single with the same name written by saw and it got to number 14 in a last throw of the dice they released their karaoke version of eddie holman's hey there lonely girl in august of this year and when that only got to number 62 they were dropped by jive and saw reforming as big fun two in 1993 to put out a cover of the johnson brothers stomp but when that did nothing they split up in 1994 Keith Midlovian in 1958, Derek Dick was a former petrol pump attendant and gardener who picked up the nickname Fish from a landlord who complained about the amount of time he spent in the bath. He relocated to Aylesbury in 1980, becoming the lead singer of Marillion a year later. And after a session on Tommy Vance's Friday Rock Show, they were picked up by EMI in 1982. Their debut single, Market Square Heroes, came out in October of that year, getting to number six there, but the follow-up, He Knows You Know, got to number 35, sparking a run of 12 top 40 singles on the bounce, peaking in the mid-80s with Kaylee getting to number two in June of 1985, and misplaced childhood entering the LP charts at number one in the same month. By late 1987, however, Marillion's ridiculously Excessive touring schedules caused a row between Fish and the band's manager, who told the rest of the band to choose between the two. When they opted for the manager, he quit the band in July of 1988, took the songs he'd already written for their fifth LP, and embarked upon a solo career. 
This single, the follow-up to Big Wedge, which got to number 35 in January, is the third cut from his debut LP, Vigil in a Wilderness of Mirrors, which came out at the end of that month and featured a pickup band which featured a 23-piece orchestra, Hal Lindes of Dire Straits, Mark Brzezicki of Big Country, and Carol Kenyon. Yes, the Temptation Woman with Heaven 17. It's entered the charts this week at number 30, and here's a snippet of the video, which is dead Marillionaire. <laughs> and the Backroom Boys are having a right good fuck about with their new graphics package, aren't they? They've, uh, they've mashed the title of the song together to form a fish, would you believe, which swims across the screen before breaking up and falling into place. Really nice touch, but it makes you wonder what they'd have done for snivelling shits or anal cunts. <laughs> I didn't notice that. I think probably because I had my fingers over my eyes when this <laughs> came up. Now, as all true pop craze youngsters know, it is the law on chart music that we always have to point out that Taylor fucking loved Marillion back in the day. Yeah. So, yeah, in 1990, Taylor, you must have been as excited about Fisher's solo career as I was in 1983 about the Style Council, yeah? Uh, no, you, it's hard to believe, but by 1990, I'd kind of uh, lost interest. Well, by 1987, no. I'd kind of lost interest in Marillion. <laughs> it's hard to believe, though, listening to music of the calibre of gentlemen's excuse me. Mm. I mean, you'd look at him in this video that you could get drunk just inhaling his bo the clip we see consists of fish sat in a ballroom with loads of people behind him having a bit of a slow dance emoting to the camera about a failed relationship we don't see him from the waist up in this clip thankfully but i'm suspecting he's wearing a kilt don't you (laughs) what because it's a formal occasion yes well i mean it is a kind of ballroom themed video so it might be a full ball gown yes for all we know and he's essentially telling us that he don't want to dance dance with you baby no more so yeah they're kind of they're inside there's a ballroom inside and then there's another bit of video where they they are outside for some reason on like a cleared site Mm. And they're all kind of clustered up dancing in a corner of it. Yeah. And there's like a grand piano. But they're not even like in the rubble because the rubble has been cleared. Maybe mm. they meant to film it in some rubble, but then it's like, oh, no, the builders have cleared it. Oh, well, let's do it anyway. Yeah, you know that's going to be a summer field or a gateway in six months' time. Yeah, yeah, or a crossrail station. Mm. He does have that kind of lower league football manager look with this sort of wispy mullet and his scraggy chin hair and, and his, his kind of kinder egg yolk hair. Head. But he does he does have beautiful eyes, like a Weimarana. Right. I know there's a filter on everything, but those are lovely, kind eyes. So that's fine. Nothing else about your face matters if you've got lovely eyes. Well, this is it. I've been looking at loads of interviews for research for this. And he seems a really nice bloke. Yeah. You know, you can imagine sitting down and having a pint with him and having a good chit-chat and getting on, you know, as long as you didn't tell him that you knew Taylor, of course. <laughs> And the other thing is, us lot, you know, the so-called experts, we've always seen Fisher shaking Gabriel 10 years out of time and and a bit ludicrous. But to the general public, is that bloke who pops up every now and again with the really nice, sad little love songs? And here's another example. Well, I mean, that was my experience of of Marillion, you know, when I was a kid. I always had a soft spot for Kaylee, which I always, as a kid, I found it really devastating. There was just something about the whole tone of it that was just like, oh, it's really heartrending mm. I mean, it's a sort of mythic lament it's almost like yes. 
It's almost like Jim Steinman experimenting with a more straightforward, low-key kind of narrative song structure. Mm. I have to say, as well, in the context of 1990 especially, can you get it inside your head, I'm tired of dancing, is quite a beguiling little line. Yes. And it's delivered with some real feeling in his slightly wobbly voice. Yeah. And, and it did make the hairs on my arms go up. I mean, the follicles don't lie. You know. Yeah, particularly during an episode of Top of the Pops where they're practically going, dance, 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 now! Yeah, 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 especially after big fun doing a kind of sad forced frog yeah. in the disused industrial prison of suppressed sexuality yeah. for their sore overlords yeah fish was never going to be the fourth member of big fun was it <laughs> big fish <laughs> i think fish probably thought dancing was a bit shallow yeah the song's based mainly on his marriage which had been falling to bits almost immediately after it occurred three years ago and then he discovered that she was having an affair during the recording of this lp and he had to record this in abbey road with an orchestra in the same room as him in an extremely tight recording window having all that on his mind so you got a feel for the poor sod but you know you can also draw comparisons with his marriage and subsequent divorce with Marillion because he was Marillion wasn't he to us sorts who weren't that interested in Marillion yeah if you've got a band of like four or five I don't even know how many it was four or five blokes who look like they work in a guitar shop yeah and there's like a six foot six inch lunatic with his face <laughs> painted in the front going arr, arr, arr. yeah that's he tends to be the one who uh, draws your attention I mean doing songs about other people it's it's a tricky thing isn't it because you know they can't answer back in song unless they're Britney Spears or Justin Timberlake I mean the only recourse Mrs Fish would have in this case would be to appear in an advert dressed as a mermaid and say fish thinks he's hung like a whale but his performance in bed gave me much to carp about (laughs) and i'll tell you all about it only in the sun (laughs) but it turned out reasonably all right in the end because she actually appears in this video as herself and they had a kid a year later and they stayed married for another 13 years so you know doing this song and video was a lot more helpful to them going to relate so you know if anyone out there is in a bad marriage at the moment Go make a pop video with your partner. No. Anything else to say about this? No. <laughs> no. So the following week, a gentleman's excuse me dropped one place to number 31 and slid out of the charts. The follow-up, Internal Exile, made it to number 37 in September of 1991 and a slow and prolonged series of diminishing returns set in across the rest of the 90s. I'm taking two steps can you get it inside your head? I'm tired of dancing. Marty and the McKens a couple of times on chart music and this their eighth single is the follow-up to Broke Away which got to number 19 in the last week of 1989. It's the third cut from their third LP, Holding Back the River, which got to number two in the LP chart of November of 1989. It entered the chart at number 34 last week, and this week it's moved up three places to number 31. 
Hardly a breaker, but top of the pops in a move to keep Mam happy has lumped it in with the others. So here's a flash of Marty Pello doing that smiley does at an enormo gig. Marty Pello, he's essentially Les McEwen recalled by the manufacturers and repaired and modified and sent back out again, isn't it? <laughs> you know, the cockiness has become cheekiness. The level of professionalism has been radically upgraded. And it's fair to say that he's not going to run grannies over in a big car or shoot his fans in the face with an air rifle (laughs) (laughs) they've got it right haven't they with Marte yeah and it it just feels like it would be genuinely impossible to stop him smiling Mm. but I think most people would take that as a challenge. (laughs) It is a shit-eating grin, isn't it? So, yeah, by this time, wait, 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 they've made a conscious decision to step away from their teenage fan base. You know, the minute that Bross encroached upon their patch, they took a move away, probably with relief, and concentrated on being musos. And in recent interviews, they're revelling in the fact that people, all right, women of all ages are turning up to their gigs. But, you know, there's going to be a short-term price to pay for that which is a period of rubbish chart placings and only getting 28 seconds on top of the pops by this point if you sat down and looked at this episode of top of the pops you'd see that band and go god they're on their arse then yeah well it's hardly surprising when you hear the the deep soulful sound of hold mm. back the river if yeah. fuck you know it's like it's got that 80s drum clatter on it and that's mm. like the only audible thing on the record it might as well have just been that because when you hear it that's the only thing that, that you notice just this ah it's a horrible horrible sound the least rich and soulful sound you could ever imagine does sound like they've taken a sort of big classic big band sound and put it in a breville uh, yes for sort of easy <laughs> popping into the chart mm. i'm assuming that you've both seen some of the sopranos mm. at some point tony soprano gets gifted a big mouth billy bass this sort of <laughs> weird fishy gift yes. and it sings take me to the river in this horrible tinny voice and when it gets to the chorus it sort of turns and looks at him and it violently triggers the memory of how he killed his best friend and dumped him in the sea Spoilers. And I was thinking, like, what water-related tune could a Big Mouth Billy Bass (laughs) sing to a New Jersey mob boss that would be more disturbing than that? And I think this could work. Yes. It's that kind of slow, (laughs) creeping dread masquerading as swing, isn't it? (laughs) Marty Pello seems like an all right sort of bloke. I'm happy to see him doing okay in his life and still getting work. Why are you glad to see that? Because... You know, it's nice sometimes. I mean, I, I I throw my casual hate around the place a, a lot, and sometimes I go, no, it's all right. It's nice when people aren't suicidally miserable sometimes. You know, go in peace, Marty Pello. He's overcome lots of adversity in his life, you know, the addiction and the death of his brother and stuff. Mm. But I cannot, delighted as I am to see that he's, he's all right, I, I can't in all honesty say I was happy to see him in the 40th anniversary of the musical version of Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. No! <laughs> God, when did that the happen? The worst thing, well, on the 40th anniversary of, you know... Oh, well, yeah. we are, But he's been, do- he's been doing it for the last 10 years, actually. It's been, you know, it, it's the it? musical version has been doing you know obviously they had a pandemic break and then they came back like last year or whatever good to see that the martians survived the pandemic though <laughs> when they usually keel over at the first sniffle so they must have been wearing masks and self-isolating and uh, you know 
complying. Obviously, the Martians didn't go to any bloody uh, McCluskey gigs. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst thing ever made by humans. I mean, I'm I'm not a musical person anyway, but, you know, with, with some notable exceptions. But fucking hell, he's doing the sung thoughts of the journalist. So right. basically what's going on in the head of the hologram of Liam Neeson as humanity faces extinction and actually not smiling during during right. well, that's his not right and, and look quite weird yeah you know, he still looks like marty pello but like but he doesn't smile so no so it, it is possible sometimes he doesn't but he's in a cream suit and like everything about it is worse than every other thing about it <laughs> like i happened upon it like one morning when i was feeling really crappy and i just kind of hate watched it oh. like i just decided to punish myself with a horrible work of bad popular art but yeah, they're very keen to put over how big and popular they are. You know, these kind of videos is, uh, look at us, aren't we brilliant? Loads of people like us. Maybe you should too. Come to one of our gigs, buy a t-shirt and a tour programme. I don't think there's necessarily anything dirty about making a video like that. I think it's legit. It's, it's cheap way to do it, I suppose. Save a few quid. So the following week, Hold Back the River dropped six places to number 37 and fell out of the chart. The follow-up, a double A-side consisting of Stay With Me Heartache and a cover of the Beatles' I Feel Fine, not with a funky drummer beat on it, thank fuck, did slightly better getting to number 30 in August. Yeah, it's their fault for fucking Candy Flip, isn't it? Wet, wet, wet. They had an absolutely catch-shit 1991 with a live LP that failed to chart and two singles from their next LP, which got to number 37 and 56 respectively. But the third cut, Goodnight Girl, spent four weeks at number one in January of 1992 and the LP, High on the Happy Side, entered the album chart at number one the following month. And that was the breakers, fucking hell. Yeah. When Tim Buckley sang, Well, should I stand amidst the breakers? Why should I lie with death, my bride? And now I understand this dilemma. <laughs> But this is already broken. It's our second debut performance at number 24 this week. Performing Loaded. Would you welcome to Top of the Pops, Primal Scream. Mayo on the balcony next to a girl in an insane black bra top that's been wrapped round her forearms which makes her look as if her breasts are wearing sunglasses tells us that those were the breakers but this single has already broken it's loaded by primal scream Formed in Glasgow in 1982 by Bobby Gillespie and Jim Beater, two youths from the King's Park Secondary School, Primal Scream began their career, Mary Brennell Boys murder style, with bedroom tapes where Beattie played guitar and Gillespie banged on two dustbin lids. After trying out a few Birds and Velvet Underground covers, they moved on to writing their own Birds and Velvet Underground-inspired songs, started gigging, and were picked up in 1984 by another classmate, Alan McGee, who signed them to his London-based label, Essential Records. 
Although sessions for a single were aborted and the deal fell through, Gillespie was immediately recruited as the drummer of the Jesus and Mary chain, keeping Primal Scream as a side project and turning it into a proper band, who were signed to McGee's new label, Creation, in 1985. Just before the release of their debut single, All Fall Down, Gillespie was given an ultimatum by the Reed Brothers to either join the Mary Chain full-time or resign, and he chose the latter. After myriad lineup changes, they finally made a dent on the UK chart in 1987, when Gentle Tuesday got to number 86 in July of that year, but was stuck in a retro rock rut for the rest of the decade, destined to give good interview in the Inkies, but ultimately being slagged off in the reviews pages, and by the time their second LP, Primal Scream, came out in September of 1989 and failed to get anywhere near the LP chart, they were teetering upon the rim of the dustbin of history. However, after being taken out to raves by McGee throughout 1989, the band were introduced to the fanzine writer and DJ Andrew Weatherall, who had just finished working with Paul Oakenfold on the club remix of Hallelujah by the Happy Mondays. In a last throw of the dice, they gave him a copy of the LP track I'm Losing More Than I'll Ever Have, with instructions to completely gut it. Keeping nothing but the horn section at the end of the track, he lauded it with a sample of Peter Fonda having a go at a preacher at a Nazi biker funeral in the 1966 film Wild Angels, the drum loop from an Italian bootleg mix of What I Am by Edie Brickell and New Bohemians, the horn blast from Freestyle, the 1975 library track by John Hawkins, and vocals from the 1976 Emotions track I Don't Want to Lose Your Love. And after Gillespie added a couple of lines nicked from Robert Johnson's Terraplane Blues, the single and the band instantly became non more 1990. After being rinsed in the clubs, it entered the charts a fortnight ago at number 47, then soared 15 places to number 32, and this week it's up another 8 places to number 24. And here they are, finally at the promised land, at the top of the pop studio. Oh, well, well, well. Where to start with this, me dears? Well, I'd like to just read out a quote, if you don't mind. Mm. Go ahead. From seeing bands such as Suicide, The Pop Group and The Fall, I had developed a love for confrontational performance, the fuck you attitude that these bands possessed. Audiences are sometimes like cattle, grazing idly in the field, waiting to be herded to another field, shepherded all their lives, unthinking, unknowing. Artists have to be brave, as the old saying goes, pioneers take the arrows. (laughs) It's lonely out there on the perimeter, on the edge of consciousness, the dark, unknown regions of soul dread and psychic derangement where the straights are too scared to go. The great herd gather around each other, take safety in numbers, and all move together in the same direction, safe in the knowledge that the farmer will feed them regularly. 
They know their place in the great or not-so-great scheme of things, while the lone wolves go hungry, always searching for the meagre, unwanted scraps that society has forgotten and seen no use in. But the lone wolves use this cultural garbage as soul food, and through a kind of feral alchemy create powerful art <coughs> to use kipling's well-worn but true maxim he who travels fastest travels alone thus spake bobby gillespie in his recent autobiography <laughs> tenement kid <laughs> well imagine having that much talent it must be a bit terrifying <laughs> let's start off with you taylor because in that q a that we did fucking ages ago one of the pop craze youngsters asked you who were the shakiness band of all time and you immediately came back with you can't get past the omni shake of primal scream yeah <laughs> well the poor man's candy flip <laughs> uh i mean at least candy flip have that ingenue quality which you might at least mistake for freshness or charm mm. no i mean this is clearly a better record than candy yes. Flip's record but it's even more contrived more desperate less free mm. and ultimately less like what it thinks it is yes because what kind of person could look at poor old bobby gillespie flailing and oh. flouncing and you know not need in his meaty finery and <laughs> not laugh it's yeah, no. just self-evidently hilarious that determined frown of his just utterly without humor mm. or self-awareness yeah and furious with everyone who isn't i think probably the other bobby gillespie star of itv's keep it in the family would have been a sexier dancer <laughs> yeah i mean the dads who were outraged by the desecration of strawberry fields are now just pissing themselves laughing and throwing the remains of their tea up in the air with glee because as my mum would say Bobby Gillespie, he looks a bastard, doesn't he? <laughs> I've related before my very brief encounters with Bobby Gillespie, uh, the briefest of which was when we both happened to be at the Barbican seeing Spiritualised. Mm. I was coming back from the loo and he almost laid me out by crashing through some double doors and almost into me. Really? Yeah, he's, he's a man with what I might describe as a threatening aura. Mm. He's like a recently redundant witch's familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Can I share my brief encounter with Bobby Gillespie before you oh, go? please on? do. I went to see Primal Screaming about 1987, and after the gig, he came out to mingle with the audience and... Uh, Commune with the sheep. Precisely, yeah, to off offer us a little bit of guidance. Yes. Um, <laughs> And he went around lifting up girls' skirts and peering underneath. Oh, did he now? Yeah, no. knowing that nobody was going to say anything to him. Oh, no. Man. Okay, fuck that guy. I was feeling a little bit bad about, you know, just the, the terrible things I was thinking or going to say. And now I don't, so that's that's very freeing. He's free what um, he wants to do, Sarah. Come on. <laughs> Look up girls' skirts. <laughs> and that's what we're going to do. Um, yes. He's deeply, deeply awkward for a rock star mm. and not in the David Byrne neurodivergent kind of way absolutely unselfconscious in some ways or possibly the most self-conscious man who's ever lived i can't quite figure it out mm. the thing about this kind of brilliantly is that it's not actually 
a Primal Scream record. It's an Andrew Weatherall record. Because obviously, as you said, they gave it to him and just said, just fuck it up completely. Just make it good. Which is great, which you have to say, that's a that's a hell of a thing for. I'm sure a lot of people are very precious about their remixes and it's, it's credit to them for just going, just make it sound not like us at all. Make it sound like it could be a hit. <laughs> but it's being presented on Top of the Pops as a song by a rock band with their rock instrument. Yes. But they're just like the front. It's like it's a rock band made up of samples of individual members of Primal Scream playing the instruments they play and some mm. other stuff and loads and loads of space yeah. around all of that. It's like it's rock band yeah. as sound palette, which is much more drugs yeah. than Candy Flip, to my mind. It's about as authentic as when one of the Reynolds girls mimed playing a guitar to uh, heavy metal rock and roll music of the past <laughs> in I'd Rather Jack. It does make Bobby Gillespie kind of the equivalent here of the bird from Black Box. Yes. In in his, little, in his little leathers, doing his little knees together shimmy. But it, mm. uh, I kind of, I have to hand it to them in the sense that, like, even more, obviously going on top of the pops and miming and then going away again must be a curiously unsatisfying experience for anyone gotcha but like this is kind of turning that on its head uh, he doesn't take the mic for a good two minutes no you know like in um my second gangster reference of this episode in, in goodfellas where they let um is it goodfellas or casino anyway it's the thing where like they have to let their wives talk shit about nothing for two minutes and then the fbi have to who are listening in mm. aren't allowed to listen for any longer than two minutes on any given calls so they have to hang up but as soon as right. they do the guys take over it's like so we're we gonna go kill that guy yeah we are <laughs> <laughs> so he doesn't take the mic for two minutes and just kind of shimmies about and mm. then says about 11 words two of which are either woo or hey yes. and then call it a night <laughs> Yeah, Al, you you should have said on the at the start. He, he he drops in a few lines uh, lifted from Robert Johnson's Terraplane mm. Blues, and a few lines lifted from Peter Powell. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like so the music's going on, and then occasionally he just shouts, "Woo, hey, come on!" Oh, I think he should have ad libbed a few more of those, like uh, "Comb your hair, yes. <laughs> now ski, <laughs> spray, <laughs> macho man." I think it could have improved. This performance the, immeasurably there really should be a, a loaded superman mash yes <laughs> they've got this loping beat going on as was the style in 1989 slash 1990 but it's fair to say that the performance is less soul to soul and more arse to mouth <laughs> <laughs> They've got Tiny Tim on slide guitar. Someone in the Manchester uniform of a white long sleeve T-shirt with something hippie-ish on it and Billy Smart jeans on the keyboard. Uh, there's someone who's turned up looking like an extra in the video for calling the Kaftan on guitar and a couple of members are serving suggestion. I mean, for all I know, those chaps could be, you know, some of the back end of the mission and I wouldn't have fucking noticed any difference. But how is Bobby Omnishake deploying his feral alchemy to create powerful art chaps I contend it's by looking like Justin Bennett out of Grange in a heroin screws you up advert I mean you do have to feel sorry for him and them waiting all their lives to go on top of the pops and when they do it's to pretend to play a song that it contributed about 5% to but you know it allows top of the pops to put a dance record on where people are standing there with actual instruments like they were real musicians when you know what they should have been doing was sitting around Andy Weatherall who's in a big gold throne in a in a nice white robe and cutting his toenails and feeding him grapes and just bowing to him for saving their career. <laughs> he 
should be on this. He should be on there just sitting there, just waving to go, I made this song, isn't it meant? That would actually have been brilliant, wouldn't it? Yes. As a kind of situationist top of the pops moment, just have Andy Weatherall with his lovely flowing beard. Mm. (laughs) Just sit there and drink from a goblet. But you see, this is why you've got what you described as... The, the chap in the Manchester uniform. It's the bloke out of Ride. Is it's it? Lead, yes, it's the lead singer out of Ride. Um, I think this was a last hurrah for MU rules, right? right? Because the band we see here are quite clearly not the musicians no. that we hear on the record. No. So somebody decided that, well, what is it? It's, that's, it's synthesizers or something, yeah. isn't it? So you have to see somebody playing a synthesizer. So I think they were forced to draft in somebody to mime a synthesizer part and it turned out the only person they could get on the phone at short notice was their label mate this bloke out of ride really and it's kind of funny because it really spoils their big moment Mm. it's like because he's just wearing a t-shirt right and they're all dressed up like you know extras from black adder and he's (laughs) there in his baggy top from the 1990 top man raver collection you know and it's like the, it's like the theatrical costumier ran out of Elizabethan leatherware. Like, no, you're just going to have to do it in your pants and vest, mate. It's like, uh, it's like if one of the black and white minstrels had forgot to put his makeup on. Mm. It'd just ruin it, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's kind of cool, in a way, that they're barely on this record. Mm. And, in fact, the pattern of their music generally tends to be that the more primal scream there is on the record, yeah. the worse it is. Yes. And the less primal scream, the better. Now, that's potentially a great thing, yeah. right? As is the fact that the most contrived band in musical history chose to call themselves Primal Scream. <laughs> I mean, these could all be positives, right? Because the key to Primal Scream is that they're fetishists to an almost creepy extent yeah. and not in the good way, you know. It's like they're cut off from their own individuality and they're incapable of really connecting with imperfect reality Mm. so they end up like this just sort of locked away grasping at precious objects and discarded clothes and memories and accessories in lieu of actually fucking anything themselves musically speaking Mm. you know it's like things that the everyday folk leave behind (laughs) well it's like a a religious and sexual act of worship and displacement Mm. you know they really mean it yeah. But they don't mean anything. And this is why this is possibly their best record, because it sounds like what it is. It sounds like them twirling and posing in this huge, empty, echoing space mm. where their music should be. Yes. I kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a peculiar thing, isn't it? Even now, you just kind of go, what the, what the fuck? You know, like, I know at the time... Like, it makes sense on its own terms, but I couldn't really put it together in my head. I was like, what am I supposed to make of this? Which is, which mm. has to be a good thing, you know? And it's mm. just so funny that it's come from th- this imperfect vessel. <laughs> um, but also, I mean, Denise Johnson, who did a lot of, like, incredible vocal work on Primal Screen Records and just didn't... that That's the kind of uncomfortable side of this, is that she really didn't get enough credit for her work on no. making, pri- making Primal Scream sound good. We've been swerved somewhat in this episode of Top of the Pops, haven't we, chaps, by Strawberry Fields Forever? Because the real dominant influence over this era wasn't the Beatles at all. It was the Rolling Stones, because, you know, this single is feelings of pity and sorrow for the horned one. Oh, yeah, people picked up on that. There was a club where Andy Weatherall first played it and um, said that everybody, you know, 
was doing the woo woo bit over the top of it. So they obviously, yes. maybe ironically, or maybe just in in great enthusiasm. But you know, yeah. Apparently, sympathy for the devil was played out quite a lot in acid house clubs in the early days, simply because they didn't have enough records to pad a night out with. Yeah. Yeah. Also, round about this time, I bought Let It Bleed from Rob's Records, and the first time I heard Monkey Man, I thought, "Fucking hell, this is so Manchester." Yeah. Why don't you do a remix of that, Mick? Come on. <laughs> anyway, fuck Primal Scream. Let's talk about the real artist in this, Andrew Weatherall. Yeah, so there's this excellent book, Acid House, The True Story by Luke Bainbridge, which is like a sort of very entertaining oral history of, of Acid House. Mm. Yeah, so Andrew Weatherall had plenty to say about a lot of things, including this. <laughs> yeah, it was Innes who said, I've got this great sample you can use, which was the Peter Fonda sample from Wild Angels. I'd love mm. to claim that was my idea, but it wasn't. It was Innes. I played it at a Primal Scream gig at Subterranea under the Westway, and the whole place went mental, all singing the woo-woos, that sympathy for the devil thing over the top. I think yeah. Bobby was double pleased because all the Schumann Spectrum kids there loved it, and all the Fay Indie kids were trying to get into the dressing room to ask, Bob, what's the fucking disco shit? So Bob yeah. was doubly pleased because in one sweep it had managed to please the cool kids and ditch all these fey indie kids. What yeah. did surprise me was it was quite a slow record. It's about 95 BPM. I'm surprised it's that much. So to get a reaction like that at peak time really surprised me. The tempo in London was maybe slower than elsewhere, but it wasn't that slow. Mm. I remember a review that one certain northern DJ gave it when it came out. I can't remember who it was, but it was someone who worked at the Thunderdome or one of those proper full-on clubs. He sent back his reaction sheet and it just said, Soft Southern Shandy Drinking Shite. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, there was a mixed response to it at the time. Mm. I've got to say this right now. I actually like this single. At least I don't hate it. Because at the time, it gave students something to lumber about to without getting on my tits, which was really important at the time. You know, when a DJ chose to put this on at a fucking student disco, he was also choosing not to play the Wonder Stuff or Birdland or any of that shit. So while it was on, I had a comfort zone. I mean, I grew up listening to Primal Scream when they were a Birds Revivalist band, you know, in 85, Mm. 86, doing these endless sped up rewrites of she don't care about time the record which should have ended that kind of jangly pop because you're not going to improve on that ever um no but in fact they were quite good at it and if you listen to their old peel sessions and stuff like that they still sound all right i mean they sound better and more charming than the stone roses who massively ripped them off um well documented if you do a side-by-side comparison of made of stone and velocity girl by primal screen yeah you know yeah uh but that version of primal screen were kind of likable they had a tambourine player in the band just a bloke right. who stood on stage with a tambourine that was all he did he played the tambourine mm. while wearing black leather gloves you can't complain about that sort of thing you know what i mean unless you were a cow <laughs> But what happened to them, they ended up on Alan McGee's uh, new label that he did, uh, Elevation, which was a subsidiary of a major, trying to make it by putting out an album of these lovely songs with a big 1980s major label indie production oh dear uh, and like all those bands it killed them the make it sound shit but yeah so the 12 string guitarist left um the one who was mostly responsible for creating the sound so yeah they had to carry on for a bit as a sort of crappy barroom rock band until they tripped over weather all and 
tumbled into a gold mine. Mm. But the thing is, this is in a way, this is the most interesting thing about them. They're a band with a, a hole in the centre. They've got no identifiable, talented one to mm. hold it all together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They just find ways to get along like a three-legged cat. Yeah. And... <laughs> Of course, Andrew Weatherall and Kevin Shields and all the different people they've worked with down the years are talented, and as a result, they've made music, or they've made at least bits of music, that's not that bad. Mm. It just never quite feels right, Mm. because what pours out of Primal Scream is not a sense of gleeful mischief and delight at getting away with it, Mm. or a sort of graceful passivity as they are used as a vessel. Mm. Uh, But this kind of arrogance and entitlement, which is perfectly appropriate for the band that they're pretending to be, Mm. but in this reality, can't help but feel a bit charmless and a little bit embarrassing. And I really get it because it's part of their holy aesthetic you know you have to commit right you there are no half measures you mustn't ever smile you mustn't act like anyone can reach you you know you have to believe that you are the rolling stones and all this is really happening yeah uh but the thing that they've missed the one thing that they've missed in their extensive study of of rock and roll mythology is that even in rock and roll that sort of arrogant shithead attitude only passes as cool when there's a spark of genuine credibility Mm. you know something to mark you out from all the other kids with tennis rackets in front of their mirrors you know and without that you just are gonna look ridiculous and i don't make the rules i'm sorry i think the most prominent thing about primal scream at the time was they were putting themselves over as the biggest custard gannets in pop there's an interview in q a year later which reads as follows upstairs andrew in is strutting his dance floor stuff with his own mother gillespie is up there too signing autographs for his skinny disciples and looking up girl skirts nearly all of the scream creation tribe end up punching the air beneath the mirror globes at some point during the next two hours of andy weatherall's djing but for the moment all attention is keenly focused on what's happening downstairs the entourage mill bizzler rub their hands and grin gleefully the reason the drugs et erive tonight's menu includes glug methadone <laughs> ecstasy magic mushrooms amphetamine sulfate cocaine and the backstage staple of hash the varied and various mood alterants are liberally distributed amongst the tour regulars you know muses bobby it was a love of music that brought us all together and that's what we really get excited about but we also get excited when the drugs turn up really <laughs> excited mm, nom 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 yeah they're always a bit like uh, what's that you smoking a joint there oh yeah i see you smoke hash guess what i do i take crack they are the real old twats of drugs aren't they primal scream like glug a fucking glug i've yes. never heard that before it's mm. like yeah a wee bit of night nurse just yes. a ticket <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> i did experience an oh what wow moment during this song after hearing it for the first time in ages i always thought the women singing i'm gonna lose your love was them singing i'm gonna loosen up which was aided by seeing Bobby Omnishake clearly loosening up in those uh, leather trousers. <laughs> it's a weird one. Look, my 
response to Primal Scream is always going to be weird and conflicted in some ways because mm. I'm a music critic with a speciality in late 60s, early 70s, psychedelia and underground rock and a sub-speciality yeah. in 80s indie music. So on the one hand, that means I can see through these people like air. This song is your mastermind subject, isn't it, Taylor? But Yeah, but at the same time, there's a kind of deep, unshakable empathy unshakable perhaps not the choicest word <laughs> um, so it feels like i get this group at the deepest level it's possible to get something this shallow mm. but i can't admire them um so you know the old cliches about music writers like the the first one being uh writing about music is like dancing about yeah. architecture which sounds clever for about 10 seconds until you think actually no hang on what it's a lot more like is writing about architecture <laughs> and if you've got anything to say about ian Nairn, my friend you should step outside yeah. and say it to me there yeah fuck off zappa yeah, yeah. but the other one is that music journalists are failed musicians right which yes. i wish was more true because then music journalism might be a little bit better informed and a bit more clued into musicians tricks and mm. what is and isn't cheap and hackney you know uh but it's also meaningless partly because a lot of the best musicians were also failed musicians mm. uh and because success and failure as a musician isn't linked to insight or you know understanding or writing ability or anything else you need mm. as a critic or used to um but the point is you'd rather have a music critic who's a failed musician than a musician who's a failed music critic Ooh. either literally like morrissey or spiritually like primal scream because mm. they know everything they get everything they feel everything right mm. down to their tingling little souls but ultimately they don't really have anything to add and i mean look i've always hated being a critic and in a lot of ways i wish i'd never fallen into this particular pothole i mean despite the perk of entry into the latter-day algonquin round table that is the chart <laughs> music collective <Indeed>. um <laughs> partly because it's intrinsically frustrating and demeaning but also because you need too many ideas it's like being a comedian where you go on tv or radio and everything you say has to be a new idea and once mm. you've said it bang it's gone you can't just say it again mm. over and over for the rest of your life whereas if you're a musician or a painter or a film director or even a novelist you can get by for 20 or 30 years on one idea just mm. retouching it and refining it and exploring it from different angles you know and at the lowest level you don't even need that you mm. can get relatively rich and relatively famous and have a relatively large amount of fun without ever having to think of anything and it's fine if you do that with charm and grace and a certain style, even a sort of snotty kind of style. But if you do it snootily with a deluded sense of your own seriousness and this much ironic self-regard, that's just hard to love, right? Mm. So as a responsible critic, I can't abide Primal Scream because every disparaging thing that can be fairly said about my old profession mm. is far truer when applied to them right when yeah. applied to this group who live in a world of 
refractions and reminders and whose relationship to the thing they love most is largely parasitical because all rock bands are derivative and in hock to some extent but the best of them inhabit their favorite music and they use it as a language with which to communicate something but Mm. the problem with primal scream is that we're kind of given nothing it's almost like just an instruction to worship you know Mm. it's like these lads are so touched and moved by music that maybe they can't accept that perhaps their place might be just to consume that music on their headphones while delivering uber eats (laughs) and and i admire the determination and the lengths they're prepared to go to in order to deny that destiny Mm. but alas it's not quite that simple they're not very important in my musical life, but I'm kind of fond of them in the way that you would be of, of right. you know, the sort of the the guy that sleeps in the doorway of your apartment building and kind of swears at you every day as you go <laughs> as you go to get your post. <laughs> but the problem is, I can't hate them because we come from the same place in terms of musical revelation and what hooked us. And in fact, so I sympathise with this this sort of deep love that sets in and how it can affect you. I remember in about 1986 or something, Bobby Gillespie wrote an article in the NME about late 60s right. psychedelic music, which today would probably make you wince or, or yawn because it's the same old psych manifesto, mm. you know. But at the time, it was kind of beautiful to read someone rhapsodising about all this music yeah. that I love, like the birds, you know, 13th floor elevators, Sid Barrett, Chocolate Watch Band, uh, Love, all this stuff that still lives in the deepest and most sensitive tunnels of my heart, to the point where I'm still toying with the idea of forming a love tribute band called Like. <laughs> the single cleverest thought I've ever had yeah. in my entire miserable life. But oh, the- care. Or the other response mechanisms in Facebook. Oh, yeah. Angry. Yes. Yeah. Angry, yes. <laughs> By the way, you should know that there yeah. has been a band called The Like, so there is a danger oh. that you'll have to share a Spotify page with them. <laughs> yeah, happy to piggyback. <laughs> but it's just that this particular kind of music, and I say this particular kind of music, not meaning the actual sounds that we're hearing mm. here, but the sounds that are in Primal Scream's head as this music is played behind them. Mm. It means something special to those of us who were young in the 80s. That's the thing. Yes. And who took the 60s as an escape from the 80s, musically and culturally, mm. right? An inversion of the 80s. But the danger is always that you're going to disappear into that past because like that love and that sensibility is not transferable into the 80s. Mm there's no way to make a blend of now and then Mm. so the glories of the past become an alternative reality which you disappear into Mm. you know and every time you're forced to snap out of that and face a repulsive tuesday morning you cling on to that alternative reality a little bit tighter Mm. and before you know it you're cut off from everything other than your own internal dream reality and it's fucking terrible Mm. it's a terrible mistake trying to inhabit the invisible structure of this dead world you just become ghostly and even as primal scream are miraculously rescued from their self-imposed predicament Mm. right when andrew weatherall like a a giant charitable bird flies overhead and takes the collar of their leather jackets in his beak (laughs) and lifts them out of the 
rotting corpse pit of revivalism into the blue sky. They're still twisting and writhing in their old-time clothes, you know, in the empty air, still in front of their bedroom mirror, still trying to match each new experience to somebody else's old experience. Mm. But the trouble is, because of that shared formative experience, I'm looking at this absurd scene of of failed necromancy. Mm. And despite myself, and despite my laughter, I am feeling the intensity and the seriousness of that love and devotion to a particular tradition and aesthetic, even though I kind of don't want to. It's a bit like a religion. Mm. It's like being a lapsed Catholic. You know what I mean? I'm out here living my life, but never completely let me go and i still get a feeling when i see the stations of the cross you know or rather a bunch of fellow victims dressed up and reenacting the stations of the cross andrew weatherall he did give them the keys of the kingdom and they used it to make get your rocks off <laughs> yeah yeah they did yeah mm. look can i I'll tell you one more story quickly right years ago an old melody maker colleague got a job as a commissioning editor for a book company and started getting loads of us in for boozy expense account lunches and trying to think up projects and stuff and try and match writers to projects that were already in the works and one of the things that was coming up was the book that eventually became my magpie eyes are hungry for the prize the history of creation records by the late david kavanagh Mm. um but at this point it was still at the stage of meetings with alan mcgee and all that stuff and this bloke mentioned to me that he'd given mcgee a list of all the writers that were on the books and He'd gone down it, crossing people off and so on. And apparently when he got to my name, McGee said, he's an okay writer, but I don't think he really understands the label. And I still laugh every time I think of that, because, of course, the real problem, the real reason I ended up not liking half the stuff that came out on Creation and was absolutely not the right person to write that book is that I understand the label far too well. Mm. I mean, I'd only written nine chapters on Ghost of a Young Man by the Jasmine Minx and (laughs) half a paragraph on Teenage Fan Club, precisely as it should be. Mm. So I think they chose well in the end. So after this performance, in spiral carpets were carrying their organ and whatnot out of Television Centre and saw Bobby Gillespie storm out of the dressing room, run smack into a full-length window thinking it was the exit and then getting on the tube and going back to his girlfriend, presumably thinking to himself, fucking hell, I've waited all my life for this and all I did was play the bastard maracas. (laughs) Even so, the following week, Loaded jumped another eight places to number 16 and stayed there for two weeks i mean this is the thing about the mythology of, of this era you know all these massive hits by stone roses and happy mondays and primal screen 16 for two weeks that's fucking shit mate yeah entered the charts lower than candy flip yes that doesn't necessarily mean anything ultimately though does it it's like oh it does to chart music and the charts Oh, what are you big nerds? It's like there's loads of classic records that didn't make it to number one and stuff. Who gives a shit? Yeah, there's loads of classic makers that still made it in the top ten. Yeah. Yeah, if they were so good, why aren't they in the charts? Yes. So she just played devil's advocate then. <laughs> the follow-up come together, completed their transformation into the shaking stones, and they'd shake around for the rest of the 90s and beyond, scoring 10 more top 40 hits, three of which made the top 10. Can we do one more quote from his book? Yes, I've been going through it, like, 
gripped by the horrific realisation that in lots of ways this is the book I'd have written when I was 15. (laughs) Um, There, but for the grace of God. I'm turning the pages thinking, fucking hell, if I hadn't got myself together, I could have ended up as a wealthy and widely loved rock star. (laughs) Shudder. But look, of all the memorable moments in this book, so far this is the one that's really stayed with me. It's an early Jesus and Mary Chain gig. Right. Uh, and if you remember, they used to have sort of so-called riots at early Jesus and Mary Chain gigs where yeah. people would start smashing everything up and fighting and all that. Mm. And people are throwing bottles at the band. And one of them hits Bobby Gillespie's girlfriend on the head, oh. to which he responds with appropriate outrage. And his response is, I quote, I proceeded to pick up any bottle that had landed on the stage and started throwing them back at the audience. Fucking sheep. So afterwards they go to A&E to get his girlfriend seen to, Mm. and Bobby remembers the scene. There were people who had attended the concert in the waiting room who started screaming abuse at us because they'd been bottled too. Joe Foster and I went over to them and told them all to fuck off, Mm. that they deserved it for being part of that audience of fools. (laughs) Now, if you pick apart that sequence of events and Bobby's reactions to his own actions and to the actions of others and their relative consequences... Not just on one furious night when he's pissed off that his girlfriend got bottled, but almost 40 years later in a book. Mm. All I'm saying is psychologists have a word for that. Okay, here comes the charts now from 3 to 11. Entry at number 30 from Fish and a gentleman's excuse me. You're 29, a handful of promises from Big Fun. You're entry at 28, don't you love me from the 49ers? Up at 27, Deliverance from the Mission. 26, Room at the Top from Adam Ant. The Stone Roses, Elephant Stone at 25. Up 8 to 24, Loaded, Primal Scream, you just seen them. Glory Estefan, here we are, up to this week's number 23. A new entry at 22, this is how it feels, the Inspiral Carpets coming next. Shaking Stevens, I might at 21 this week. Second single from the Stone Roses, Made of Stone, new entry at 20. Number 19, Downtown Train from Rod Stewart. New entry at 18, Strawberry Fields Forever from Candy Flip. At 17, Black Betty, the Ben Lee brand remix from Ram Jam. Up four at 16, Natural Thing from The Innocents. 15, Get Up Before the Night Is Over from Technotronic. Up at 14, Madly In Love from Bross. Black Box, I Don't Know Anybody Else. This week's number 13. Depeche Mode, Enjoy the Silence at 12. And new at number 11, I'll Be Loving You Forever. New Kids on the Block. Success City 1990s Oldham as Oldham Celtic in the basketball as Oldham Rugby Club and as Oldham Athletic in the football. Oh yes, and a number 22 in Spiral Carpets. Husband don't know. 
Standing with three girls look absolutely bored and disgusted with what they've just seen on the stage. Rather like Tony Blackburn after watching a porn film says that there is not one act on tonight that's from south of Manchester. Which is absolute fucking bollocks. I mean, Manchester's north of all of America bar Alaska. And <laughs> big fun were from Surrey. So what the fuck is he going on about there? <laughs> he then whips us into the charts from number 30 to number 11. Again, another boring rundown picture wise but the only interesting picture in that rundown is the cover of i might by shaking stevens which has been done by viz did you notice chaps (laughs) yeah yeah he was a good sport features biffa bacon barry asquith Roger Mele, San out of the fat slags, Postman Plod, Spoilt Bastard, Johnny Fart Pants and Finbar Saunders with Comrade Shakey sat on a post box with letters addressed to Shaker, Memphis, Marie Marie and O.O. Julie strewn about. And of course there's a green door, an old house and a hot dog stand. No Billy the Fish, that's wrong. <laughs> Finally, as he stands next to a youth with an added baseball cap on which he turns backward and then makes some gestures at the camera like it's still 1986 Mayo tells us that it's a golden age for Oldham what with the football and that as he introduces this is how it feels buying spiral carpets we dealt with in Spiral Carpets in chart music number 40 when they took Caravan to number 30 in March of 1991, but this is their sixth single release. It's the second cut from their debut LP Life, which comes out next month, and the follow-up to Move, which got to number 49 in November of 1989. A chart placing so disappointing in the same month that Fool's Gold and Hallelujah were kicking the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays into the top 20 that the band decided to sign with a proper label, settling upon Mute Records. This is the first release on their new label, and it's entered the charts at number 22. And here they are, in the studio for the first time ever. The Northern Monkeys, with two E's, if you will. (laughs) And that nearly happened, chaps. They were approached by BBC Manchester last year, who wanted to make a cartoon series with them, but they wisely knocked it back. Can't imagine it being an exciting thrill ride. Yeah, it must be the raw charisma that just pours out. Mm. Uh, like musically, this is a very prosaic, plodding record without any real resonance. But lyrically, it's it's, it's heartrending and it's fucking grim, strange isn't it? and grim. It's like an NSPCC advert. Like you expect yes. a free phone number to come up at the end. Yes, <laughs> that's Mayo's link out. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this song, yes. <laughs> husband don't know what he's done. Kids don't know what's wrong with mum. What? What the fuck yeah. is going on here? This is. Yeah, I don't. You know, I don't like it. It's very, very Oldham as well. It's very distinctly northern in that way. It's like mm. away from the exciting burgeoning club scene and vibrant youth of Manchester and the big city it's like there's still little brick terraces with outside toilets and nothing good is happening there the kind of places where play for today is a documentary (laughs) i mean from this distance in spiral carpets have been treated like the brian pool and the tremolos of Manchester, but they certainly weren't seen like that back in the day allow me to direct you to an article in last week's record mirror 
Go on then. In Spiral Carpets, the sought-after young band among the world's compilation LP compilers are about to score a massive hit with their debut mute single, This Is How It Feels. The band who pointed the stranglers in the direction of chart possibility with a cover of 96 Tears have been thrilling people up and down the country with their superb live shows. Such is the band's ascendancy at present that when they played at London recently, they had to fit in no less than 30 interviews that day. And such is their self-confidence that they must surely be the only band to feature pictures of themselves in their spectacular live stage show singer tom looks set to be the first real pop sex symbol of the 90s (laughs) with that flashing smile so be prepared for the screams on top of the pop soon yeah i don't know if that was a piss take didn't read like that to me Maybe they mixed him up with Clint Boone. Yeah. I don't know. Well, Clint Boone with his perfect medieval peasant haircut and yeah. that sort of serial killer grin. Mm. <laughs> Bless him. I mean, we laugh at Primal Scream, but at least they had the basic good sense to get someone talented in to make the record for them. So the mm. finished product was halfway presentable, as opposed to this DIY disaster. This record is, <laughs> is the musical equivalent of a set of shelves collapsing off the kitchen wall <laughs> onto the draining board. They're going to need some new bowls yeah. <laughs> next time they have a haircut. Um, yes. But it's so poor. This is such a poor song. It's like a school mm. band having a go. Do you know what I mean? It sounds like yeah. my first song by Ian 13. You know? <laughs> and the lyrics make that worse because, you know, when kids write a song, they're too embarrassed to sing about girls. So they think I'm going to do a social comment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can imagine writing this song and thinking that it was good enough to release, really. You know, even even if you do have a sex symbol on lead vocals, he looks like the yeah. Tunnock's Tea Cake boy. If, <laughs> if Tunnock's Tea Cakes were filled with giraffe shit and lead paint <laughs> and he'd been eating them all his life. But it's the way he hits every note right on the beat, right? Like, mm. kids don't know what's wrong with mum. So he sounds like he's on the last mile of an overambitious sponsored walk. Like, just, uh, <laughs> just plodding as if this song wasn't already flat enough. This is a terrible record. And this is more of a desecration of the Beatles than Candy Flip could ever hope to be because... There's no twist. It's not funny. It's not novel or outrageous, or it's not an inversion of anything. It's just that thing, but done so badly that it's an insult to the people who invented it. Mm. It's grim to, you know, use the oft-used term about the North, but it's, you know, in in a way that would definitely be offensive if anyone outside of the North. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Said it, you know. It's but it's there's something fascinating about it for me because it, it is wrong. It's very unpop. It's like the most yes. unpop thing. And it is just like the smashing of a mallet into a tent peg for three minutes <laughs> until the thing just bends and then just goes further and further into the soft earth. Mm. Yeah, it is a terrible record, but there's some idea in it. They had mm. some sort of an idea that they wanted to do. Yeah, and the idea was nick off the police. <laughs> Black car drives through the town. Some guy from the top estate 
they would kill me for a cigarette. <sighs> but I don't even want to die just yet. It's a subtle lift of Invisible Sun by the police, I contend. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm not as familiar with that song. I'm not as much of a, of a police head as you, Al. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's kind of an attempt has been made at Kitchen Sink. Yes. It's kind of Kitchen Sink, but it's not. It's like it's the space where a kitchen sink was in a sort of derelict house. Yeah. But mm. I feel like by accident it achieves something because the way that I'm talking about it, the things that it evokes through not being quite right gives me that not unpleasant tingle that I also get from watching public information films from the <laughs> from the Central Office of Information. Yeah, the only yeah. public information film these people should be on is, uh, is Don't Run If You've Got Hair In Front Of Your Eyes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, um, Oldham is, in fact, there's a sign, um, whether or not it's still there, but there was, um, that said, Welcome to Oldham, home of the tubular bandage. <laughs> <laughs> So if you happen to, you know, wreck yourself in an electricity substation or in a disused quarry, then you'd be home free if you're in Oldham. <laughs> that sign could have said home of the Inspiral Corpus, but they, they were very disparaging about their hometown oh. in interviews round about the time. I mean, fair enough, because I, I understand that there are people who are proud of where they're from and that's, that, you know, that is not something to fuck with. But a lot of people will, will affect that when actually they hated everything about it and, you know, everyone who was there. Yeah. Did they say old ham is about right? <laughs> yeah. That's what I'd have said. Hey, I'm not having notes said against Oldham. Remember, they clubbed together for that plaque at the Lieutenant Pigeon House. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, fucking good on Oldham. Yeah. yeah, in their time of need. We can coat this down all we want, but we're listening to the future here because this strikes the keynote for much of the decade, triumphant downness. It's a song to front up to with your arms in the air. And I don't know if he's about backstage, but... Their drum technician, a certain N. Gallagher, is surely taking notes and making plans. Yeah. But that doesn't mean a toss because the kids are just granny clapping away and whooping like gibbons. Mm. The zoo influence continues to linger in that studio, alas. Yeah, I mostly remember hearing this song as a football chant because something yeah. anything else, it sounded more mellifluous that way. Um, mm. Man United fans used to sing it at Man City fans while yeah. doling out their biannual thrashing with the lyrics this is how it feels to be city this is how it feels to be small this is how it feels when your team wins nothing at all Uh, this goes to show doesn't it we are all but straw in the wind tossed by the winds of billionaire floridian vulture capitalists and billionaire rulers of gay murdering slave driving oil states so we should all be as smug as we possibly can while it lasts for some reason that i can't work out this song has actually crashed into the cool cuts dance chart in record mirror at number two would you believe wow one below tripping on your love by way of life one above ghetto heaven by family stand underneath it says solid beats for the latest indie band to hit the dance floor awesome did mark sutherland write that (laughs) how are people dancing to these things that are being presented to us as dance records i mean i'm not the greatest dancer but like how are all these people moving why (laughs) sorry sarah a what wow yes how are all these people dancing and moving their bodies around to records that are not dance records i don't know it's weirding me out Drugs, Sarah. Drugs. No, not drugs. What are they? Well, a ketamine. Bloody ketamine drugs. that nobody was doing at this time. Or, or glug, maybe. <laughs> glug some glug. 
and then just loll about the dance floor with your tongue out. Yeah. Well, it's it's the association with the mad Chester scene, isn't it? Is yes. the only reason this is classed as a dance record. And you've got the same problem with every supposed scene, whether it's a real one or a semi-invented one, which is that there are never enough bands or there are never yeah. enough good bands, right? Because human talent and ingenuity is depressingly thinly spread <laughs> so mm. whenever something like madchester bubbles up like people get into the two or three decent groups and then you get this kind of dragnet which picks up all the singing milkmen and the youth club audition failures you know <laughs> adding sort of credibility to this idea of a scene but also subtracting from it or you know diluting it and there's nothing worse than ending up as one of the bands that are pulled along in the in the glittering slipstream because deep down everybody knows what you are and it means that you never get a second chance but you know luckily in most cases that doesn't matter they were like the real run to the litter weren't they the in spirals which is you know um unfortunate but kind of undeniable part of the problem is that they're like a manchester band and yeah i know they're from oldham but stone roses were from altrincham and happy mondays were from salford they're still manchester bands Mm. right um but they're a Manchester band who sound like a Liverpool band. Ooh, and yes. With the exception of the Hollies, that never works. Mm. Um, I mean, look, first of all, it's, this is easy for me to say as an outsider, albeit one who's spent a lot of time in the Northwest over the years. But the whole Manchester versus Liverpool thing is fundamentally hilarious. Mm. And everybody in Manchester and Liverpool needs to understand this because when you look at it, no two other English cities have as much in common as those two culturally. Mm. Not even Bradford and Leeds, the Minneapolis and St Paul of England. Um, (laughs) The the only real difference, people from Liverpool pride themselves on wearing their hearts on their sleeves and being emotionally open, while people from Manchester pride themselves on being a little bit more emotionally aloof and controlled and, you know, cooler. And apart from that, lads, you're the fucking same. (laughs) The the, the music, the politics, the the humour, the cockiness, the sort of insularity, it's all the fucking same and in music there's always been a bit of an understanding of that there's a lot of cooperation and crossover between manchester and liverpool groups and the only Mm. time the rivalry boils over is when they start talking about football yeah the interesting thing is that the cultural differences such as they are between the two cities are reflected clearly in the music that comes out of them traditionally right in that manchester bands are a little bit artier a little bit more cerebral um Mm. often based on rhythm and repetition which is true of people like joy division and even the smiths in a way Mm. whereas liverpool bands are all about melody and that kind of surging emotional sound now to some extent, that's down to, in the 80s, Manchester was full of people taking speed and listening to funk, and Liverpool mm. was full of people smoking weed and listening to Pink Floyd. Mm. Although, you know, maybe that's an expression of that contrast rather than the other way around. But the point is, Liverpool bands who tried to sound like Manchester bands and vice versa, it never worked. Manchester Mersey beat was horrible, unless you got a song off Graham Goldman. Canal beat. Yeah, and Liverpool bands trying to do baggy stuff 
were always horrendous as well. And mm. in a way, it makes perfect sense that the young Noel Gallagher was roadying or whatever he was doing for this lot, because Oasis are the ones who finally fucked this balance, because they're caricature yeah. mank in attitude and caricature Liverpool in sound. But mm. here's the earlier example of that. And it's fucking yeah. awful. I mean, we can scoff, but there is a genuine hero for the 90s in this band. Martin Walsh on bass, who is sporting a full-on Gordon honeycomb of a hairdo and quite clearly doesn't give a fuck. I mean, we've spoken many a time and oft about bold pop stars in hats on this episode. And if there was ever a time when hats were acceptable, it was this era. Yeah. You know, he could have slapped on a bucket hat with a cow on it. <laughs> and the pop craze youngsters would have been none the wiser. But no, he was bold. He was proud. Hero, sir. <laughs> because, you know, when I see a grown man in a hat, and I'm speaking as someone who's been a total slaphead for half his life now, I instantly think, A you're bold and b you're a fucking coward so i respect him <laughs> yeah and also he's uh he's in a band where everyone else is like a sort of awkward man at cna with a haircut like a canteen lampshade uh dressed like a three-year-old do you think the band all got together and said look martin's having uh, difficulties with his hair let's all have mad hairstyles to um detract attention from him <laughs> <laughs> but i'm clint boone so i'm bagsy in the best hairstyle is it like the opening sequence of full metal jacket except instead of everyone getting their head shaved yes. they're all getting a bowl cut <laughs> yes. in preparation for you know going to war in pop yeah and they're lumbering about in their new togs which have been provided to them by joe bloggs who they've just cut a deal with for a few thousand pounds meaning they can go on top of the pops and look like cast members of pigeon street for nothing <laughs> yeah the joe bloggs the mother care that thinks it's summer yes <laughs> cool as fuck oh, yes indeed that's what everyone's gonna think when they see this line mm. hey they're cool as fuck everything about this is kind of boxy isn't it from the clothes yes. through to the baseline all of it mm. is just yeah. It, it's such a peculiar record and it, yeah. it seems so odd to see it even on top of the pops and but like i said yeah. I, I would never listen to this for, for pleasure because you can't because it's not pleasurable no. to listen to but i appreciate that they've tried to do something different here you know mm. you don't get many husbands in pop music do you nor mums no like these are just words that you don't hear and you know it's because they're, they're very lumpen words and you know but it, it's, it's yeah there's something about this that, that really fascinates me like mm. in the same way that it's fascinating to look at um you know walkthroughs of abandoned houses and you say they've been dragged into the the Manchester scene taylor but they're clearly fighting against it you know they've not called in andrew weatherall oh my god this is how it feels to be loaded yes fuck that was fuck. a missed opportunity <laughs> And you can't imagine them being massive custard gannets either, you know. Except with actual custard. Mm, yes, birds, <laughs> yeah. When they got backstage, they'd be less inclined to get the drugs in and more inclined to count up how many T-shirts they've sold that night. Yeah, yeah, this has got a sort of can of Kestrel and an embassy number one feel to it, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah, unfortunately, the only thing I find fascinating about this group is why they all chose to go to the same barber. yeah. <laughs> Alas, not Sweeney Todd. Oh. I got a drunken text from a friend of mine the other night. Right. Claiming, I think fraudulently, that he once, and I quote, broke into television centre, did a shit in Basil Brush. 
<laughs> oh, I say, Mr. Roy. That text has more artistic merit than the entire existence of the Inspiral Car. <laughs> Has, has he been able to buy a small terraced house in Oldham off the back of it? No, I don't think he has. But, you know, at least they tried. <laughs> so the following week, This Is How It Feels jumped seven places to number 15 and a week later got to number 14, its highest position. And the LP Life would sell 200,000 copies in the first fortnight of its release and crash into the album chart at number two, kept off the top by the compilation Only Yesterday by The Carpenters. Oh, you see, Candy Flip, you should have done calling occupants of interplanetary craft. (laughs) The follow-up, She Comes in the Fall, got to number 27 in July. They finished off the year with the Island Head EP getting to number 21 in November and spent the rest of the first half of the 90s as a regular but not massive presence in the charts until they were dropped by Mute in 1995 and splitting up soon after. Mayo, on a mission to stand next to every single member of the audience drops a Nigel Mansell reference in order to introduce That Sounds Good To Me by Jive Bunner and the Master Mixers. Bred in an electrical shop in Rotherham in 1988, <laughs> Jive Bunny was the creation of John Pickles, who ran the shop but wrote songs on the side and recorded them in a studio in a terraced house on the outskirts of town. And when he heard the owners were going bust, he bought it up in the mid-80s. After employing his son Ande and a local DJ called Ian Morgan to mine the studio, he successfully applied for a licence to start a DJ record service called Master Mix in 1986, a subscription service for club DJs which provided remixes of the hits of the day on a monthly basis, which put him in touch with a load of remixes right across Europe. In the summer of 1988, he was contacted by Les Hemstock, a DJ from Yorkshire who was based in Norway, and given a copy of a mega mix he'd just done, which consisted of rock and roll classics mashed together with Glenn Miller. It was released by Master Mix that very month to a rapturous reception from the subscription base, which encouraged Pickles to fly Hemstock over to Rotherham and do a version suitable for release to the general public, which got round any publishing mither by re-recording the Glenn Miller bits and using an Elvis impersonator. The single, released under the name given to the bloke who repaired irons and kettles in the electrical shop who called everybody Bonnet, came out in July of 1989. It entered the chart at number 54, then soared to number 31. And after the video was played on top of the pops, it 
soared 28 places to number three. And a week later, it camped out on the very summit of Mount Pop for five weeks, eventually selling over a quarter of a million copies. The follow-up, That's What I Like, smashed into the chart at number four in October of 1989 and spent three weeks at number one. And they finished the year of the rabbit with Let's Parte entering the chart at number one in December for one week, becoming only the third act in history to go to number one with their first three singles after Jerry and the Pacemakers and Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And this, their attempt at a record-breaking fourth number one on the bounce has entered the chart at number four this week's highest new entry and even though they've recruited a builder who knocks about their local pub to play jive bunny at pas here's the video yeah i've never seen the video to this before no or i don't remember seeing it and it's amazing Mm. like the record it's about modern technology descending onto the 80s holiday camp aesthetic yes and recharging it mm. which i think is why it was so successful because there's something genuinely joyous and celebratory about the shitness of it mm. it's a, basically it's a bunch of hired little woods models yes and whoever they could scoop out of spotlight and probably <laughs> some friends of the crew you know dancing around with giant unnatural grins bolted onto their faces right shot on glaring cheap video but lit with this unearthly acid lighting and Mm. intercut with a that marker pen flip book animation of jive bunny himself yes and everything's either slowed down or sped up Mm. and it's not really cut to the record there's all these arbitrary garden shears edits yeah it's just this frantic whirl of low aesthetics and like short attention span high speed hucksterism yeah you know and what it looks and sounds like when you put it with this track is one of those early 90s late night tv adverts for mail order only cd compilations of classic hits yes remember that sounds good to me is not available in any shops (laughs) i was in a minicab once about 25 years ago and the cabbie was playing this cd with uh, black betty by ram jam on it and we're in the back we're like so oh cool and he kept turning around and going do you like this and putting it on again do you like this do you like it and when we went yeah he started boasting he said uh, yeah this cd it's not available in any Whoa. shops. <laughs> oh, nice. But the, the shamelessness of those adverts is captured really well here. Yes. And it's quite a nostalgia trip on that level. I think the B side of this record was, if you're sat around at home, <laughs> make, make new, new friends, friends on, on the, the telephone. telephone. <laughs> oh, eight, nine, eight, double five, double oh, double five. <laughs> Chat back. I think a lot of people thought that should be the A side as well, but yeah. they, they held out. Extra track on the 12 inch was uh, 0891. 50, 50, 50. 50. 50. <laughs> yeah, do you remember old things? They were funny, weren't they? Yeah. Me, me and my mate used to ring those numbers up when we were on LSD. I only just remembered this. I've got a tape of it somewhere. His mum was living staff at uh, sheltered housing, and the phone was all paid for. Um, so Ooh. when she went away, I'd go around there and we'd take acid and call these <laughs> premium rate proto internet chat rooms. Uh, somewhere I got a tape of him trying to suppress hysterical acid giggles while talking to some flat voiced 
disaster in Essex about <laughs> what he does for a living. Going, oh. uh, my name's Gus. I put a hose to the cars. <laughs> <laughs> that was our psychedelic odyssey. Yeah. <laughs> it was all right then, and it's all right now. So the tune, we get a cover of the intro to Everybody Needs Somebody to Love by Solomon Burke, Long Tall Sally by Little Richard, Ooh My Soul by Little Richard, Keep a Knockin' by Little Richard, Roll Over Beethoven by Chuck Berry, Tequila by The Champs, Shout Shout Knock Yourself Out by Ernie Maresca, and uh, a few stabs of uh, Chubby Checker, because why not? I would like to know the process by of elimination, by which, you know, they've got in a hundredweight of boogie-woogie, and then it's like, how do you choose, you know, especially by, by now, this is their fourth go at this. Mm. You know, what are they, what are they doing? Uh, what, what are they doing? Why is this happening? No, making hit records. Oh, but I just... The thing is, my dad fucking hated hip-hop and he'd bang on the ceiling when i was playing ultramagnetic mcs or boogie down productions and he'd moan on about it all the time oh it's not fucking real music and we'd end up going to someone's wedding do or leaving do or whatever fucking jive bunny would come on and he'd be immediately up and off on one <laughs> probably because jive bunny would rinse the back catalogue of little richard who he fucking loved and yeah. you know so did i yeah. and on this episode of top of the pops after sitting through bobby omnishake and in spiral basin ads hearing little richard cut through all the shit is just a glorious thing to hear yeah. yeah but it's like they've taken the steak of of little richard and just pounded it flat with a mallet mm. and then it's been, it has been cooked well done and it has been served to you with watered down ketchup mm. why isn't this offensive to people who, who love little richard you know i i don't really understand this is essentially dad hop isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah hip-hop for dads yeah it's like if hip-hop had been informed primarily by Shawaddy Waddy. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if Fear of a Black Planet had been made by the cast of Russ Abbott's Madam, <laughs> this is what it would sound like. Yeah, that's the funny thing. This record didn't offend the people who like and grew up with the music that it destroys, but it offended younger people. Yeah, it did. To continue the Stones theme of this episode, I once went to interview Andrew Lou Oldham, and Tony Calder in their offices in Ooh. Belgravia or somewhere, early 90s. They'd written a biography of ABBA with Colin Irwin, so it was about that. Right. So I went to interview him, and as you go up the steps to their office, they had all the gold discs that they'd ever been involved with framed. Cool. Um, so it was like Stones records, then a lot of immediate record stuff, like Small Faces, P.P. Arnold, and then lastly, a massive row of jive bunny gold disc because oh, really yeah, tony calder co-owned the company who owned jive bunny in some right. sense or other and i just had this lovely vision of paul weller or some heavenly <laughs> records guy walking up the stairs and watching the expression on his face slowly change <laughs> like one of those time-lapse films of an orange that's been left on a plate for a hundred <laughs> days and oh. just collapses in a foul black liquid <laughs> but that's the best thing about the best thing about this is that it's a proper historical record of the nasty cheap corners of 1990 it gets it all down mm. in sound yeah. and vision right the true look and feel of the stuff that nobody wants to preserve and so mm. will not be remembered you know and in no. in any era 80 percent of people's reality is low rushed zero effort 
worth yeah. i mean the stuff that you see in here most of the time the world that you actually have to live in right in future mm. days most of that is chucked away and forgotten yeah. in favor of the stuff that seems like it's worth remembering but mm. the stuff that's unmemorable or beneath consideration 10 or 20 yeah. or 30 years later that's what made up the majority of that era's reality and so it's good mm. to have it and it's good to preserve it yeah you know is it though i mean isn't this just kind of like there are plastic toys that were made in the 80s and you know next time you go to the beach you're going to find find one of them <laughs> yeah and then put them on ebay and sell them for fucking 60 quid <laughs> yeah i've just got this real like searing mental image now of like i don't think they've made any like jive bunny toys but i'm just imagining like a really Ooh. crappy looking jive bunny mm. toy with his eyes just rubbed off by decades <laughs> in the sea and it's killed various fish on its way you know and has, has survived in some form and it's just washed up on in the in the in the surf at, at margate you know yeah it's such a weird void of a thing it's like it's a non-funny novelty record made mm. by a, a celebrity who doesn't exist mm. you know it's like we were saying like is is this like the first avatar pop star in a kind of precursor mm. to gorillas you know but it's not an avatar for the creators it's an avatar for the audience oh i'd sooner listen to jive bonnie than fucking gorillas. no you fucking wouldn't i mean you, yes you i are... fucking would <laughs> well be my guest al where does little richard feature on a gorillas record show me <sighs> yeah huff all you want madam is the truth <laughs> <laughs> the worst thing about this for me is the biggest um not that i had high expectations but the the kind of reflexive disappointment induced by uh, a sample at the start that goes what we're going to do right here is go back way back yes. back into time which yeah. um is also how um kisses on the wind by nena cherry starts off one of my right. favorite records ever and days of way back by nwa yeah yeah. Wow, i can't believe they both sampled jive bunny i know <laughs> i mean it's just trailblazer you know yeah. what an influence yeah. you know what a legacy <laughs> my brain just went oh it's kisses on the wind oh no it isn't like i, I it, it couldn't help itself it just went yay i'm gonna have three minutes of fun now and then that was not what i had no. by the way that sample is from troglodyte brackets yes. caveman close brackets by jimmy castor bunch mm. i need to investigate this man's work further oh you must yeah yeah go to it's just begun um, i'm gonna check out the bertha butt boogie apparently uh bertha butt yes. was introduced in troglodyte it wasn't actually historically accurate he's saying the only people that existed were troglodytes cavemen cave women and here was the original troglodyte <laughs> listening to his stereo and this is what he heard it's amazing so yeah i'd rather much rather listen to that than the the, the list of things i'd rather listen to fucking this is how it feels by spiral carpets than jive bunny <laughs> and that's uh, very literally the truth i mean i do wonder whether jive bunny was knowingly named because i think if you purchased a time scoop and gathered up all the black american musicians honored on these records and permitted them to hear this they might mm -hmm. find the name quite apt <laughs> Could have just called themselves Shaking Star Sound, but you know. <laughs> but the, look, the, my only defence of this record is that I think this is the point where you just have to tip your hat because, yeah. like, on this podcast over the years, we've seen attempts by Candy Flip and Dollar, you know, trying to turn the Beatles into tatty shit. Mm. We've just seen Primal Scream trying to do the same to the Rolling Stones, and just all manner of English 
seaside wet weekend deck chair attendance turned loose on <laughs> cool and sexy stars of the past right but usually there's an element of misplaced pride or would-be artistry there you know like they really think they're doing something with it whereas here yeah. It's hard not to feel a kind of weird grudging admiration because nobody's putting themselves on or trying to put you on. There's a kind of wonderful purity to this. This revels in its cheapo shitness. And it's not Mm. trying to fool you. It's just a simple offer. They're saying, we've taken this reinforced submersible craft down lower than any man has ever been before (laughs) to the inky depths of pop music and we've discovered fish so ugly they could have been torn from your most brutal nightmares now would you be interested (laughs) it's like we've taken the spirit of rock and roll killed it chucked it dead in a bowl pissed on it and then sliced it up and made it into a sandwich would you pay us for a bite no pressure (laughs) and lest you make any mistake we've presented this in such a way that you could no more mistake this record for art than you could accidentally let yourself into an electricity substation thinking it was an adventure playground (laughs) there's lurid warning signs everywhere around this record if you buy this record you're not going to be embarrassed about that in 10 years time because Mm. if you buy this record embarrassment is clearly beyond you you know yeah but i just think it's good that that's been preserved you know the library of alexandria (laughs) burnt to the ground destroying thousands of the most precious documents of the pre-christian era the river arno burst its banks in 1966 flooding the city of florence and destroying millions of priceless art treasures and an irreplaceable ancient literature but we still have this so we should hold it close and and keep it so so in centuries to come when people say how did they really live (laughs) we've heard all about primal scream and the stone roses and all those raves how did they really live then Mm. those people can thrill to it once more while while trying to chew off their own ears. (laughs) What percentage of the people who originally bought Jive Bunny's records do you reckon are dead now? When you started that sentence, I somehow knew that was how it was going to end. Oh, is that because I'm predictable? No, just because it's such a good... (laughs) No, because you were right. It's such a good point to make. I'm not sure anybody under 40 bought this record, or under 35. Oh, come on, kids fucking love Jive Bonaire. What are you going on about? It was for kids, yeah, but kids who were too young to buy records. Yeah. Kids under 10. This is her introduction to hip-hop, Sarah, (laughs) sampling. Yeah. This kind of perfectly evokes the experience of going to a holiday camp in the 80s for me, despite the fact that I never did that. Yeah. Get us a crock, (laughs) ma'am. And the new Jive Bunny single. Yeah, I did go to a holiday company. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I guess it was a record for kids and old people. It was just those awkward people in the middle, like teenagers, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, do you think anyone in the world lost their virginity to this record? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, um, it might have been one or two. Can you imagine? uh, You don't always have a choice in what's on when you lose your virginity to be be grim about it. It's always risky. Did you have anything playing when either of you lost your virginity? Side two of Moon Dance by Van Morrison. 
Wow. So, That's, uh, how how very American werewolf. I am not <laughs> saying that on this podcast just in uh, case. It's not even that it's embarrassing, it's just fucking private. Also there was one well, there were two different things. Um because there was the the failed attempt and then there was the successful attempt. Oh, right, and they're right. both like burned into my brain. But um they I, I will take that to my grave. This is how it feels to be <laughs> Isn't it Sarah? Isn't it? <laughs> Hang on, what? Oh, no, not <laughs> no, I was fucking no. Uh, also, not Scrub later. Either. That out, Jesus. No, sorry, Doc. Uh, also, no. No, they were good records. I just don't want to fucking tell you, Jesus Christ. I have said enough on this podcast over the last six years. I have blurted my innermost <laughs> in ways that I now regret bitterly. So, fuck off. Right, when we do late nineties episodes, every shit song that comes up, I'm just going to sit back and stroke a thoughtful chin. <sighs> No Way, No Way by Vanilla. <laughs> I'm going to start the bidding at that. <laughs> mana, mana. Jesus H. So the following week, That Sounds Good To Me, stayed at number four and went no further, breaking the streak. The follow-up, Can Can You Party, got to number eight in September and they closed out the year with the crazy party mix, getting to number 13 in the last chart of 1990. The next two singles, Hot Summer Salsa and Rock and Roll Dance Party, both failed to make the top 40 in 1991 and the costume was presumably shoved under a bed in Rotherham, where it remains to this day. I'm just looking at the side two of Moondance. <laughs> it's crap all the good shit's loaded on the first side isn't the first track on side two of Moondance called Come Running yes uh, yeah <laughs> I think most yeah. people's experience of losing their virginity oh we're two minutes in oh I remember it well I'd fancied her for ages I wanted to shag her so badly oh. and I shagged her so badly <laughs> 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 Taylor what you know what? Did I have anything playing when I lost my virginity? Mm. Yeah, I think I was listening to chart music number 17. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the jumping little record I want my jockey to play. Whoever be told me, I got it. Number 10, Lily was here, David A. Stewart featuring Candy Dolfa. Number 9, Nothing Compares to You from Sinead O'Connor. Up to number 8, Blue Savannah from Eurasia. And up to 7, Moments in Seoul, JT and the Big Family. Up 8 to 6, Love Shack from the B-52s. No Move at 5, Infinity, Guru Josh. The heist entry at number 4, that sounds good to me, you just seen Jive Bunny. No move at three, how am I supposed to live without you? Michael Bolton. And no move at number two, the Brits 1990. And that means week number three for Beats International featuring Lindy Layton and Dove. Be good to me. Mayo, 
next to a lad in a leather jacket with the sleeves rolled up who clearly thinks he's summit breaks down the top ten. Oh, chaps, we know what the jarring note is on this selection of pictures, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number two, fucking Jonathan King popping up yeah. out of nowhere. <laughs> Jesus. That was disturbing. He's the front person of various artists with the mashup single The Brits 1990 Dance Mix, which features Street Tough by Double Trouble and Rebel MC, Voodoo Ray by a guy called Gerald, Theme from S Express by S Express, Hey DJ, I Can't Dance to That Music You're Playing by Beatmasters, Eve of the War, Ben Lee Bront remix by Jeff Wayne, Pacific State by 808 State, we call it Acid by D-Mob and Got to Keep On by Cookie Crew. That's Brits 1988-89 to me. Mm. Yeah, but almost all good records. Mm. And all of them having absolutely fuck all to do with Jonathan King. So why is he on the front with a line over his head that's clearly stuffed and therefore not going to bite his head off? That's fucking wrong. People like him. Mm. Mm. A humble man. Finally, Mayo gets around to introducing this week's number one. Dub Be Good To Me by Beats International featuring Lindy Layton. Formed in Brighton in 1989, Beats International were a loose collective which orbited around Norman Cook, the former bassist of the House Martins, who had split up in late 1988 and who had put out the hip house single Blame It on the Baseline and the dance single For Spacious Lies under his own name. Later that year, after Cook appeared on Jukebox Jury talking about his new plans, he was approached by Lindy Layton, an 18-year-old actor-singer who had appeared in Press Gang and Casualty, who was currently best known for a Heinz Spaghetti advert. She suggested a cover of the 1984 SOS band single Just Be Good To Me, which got to number 13 in April of that year, and Cook stitched together the bass line from Guns of Brixton, the 1979 Clash track from London Calling, the harmonica from Ennio Morricone's Lumo Monica from the soundtrack of the 1968 Spaghetti Western Once Upon a Time in the West, the drums from the 1975 Headhunters tune God Made Me Funkair, and got bandmate David John Baptiste to redo a snippet of the rap from Jam Hot, the 1983 Johnny Dinell single, for the intro. It's the second cut from the LP, Let Them Eat Bingo, which is due out in a week or so. It was released at the end of January and smashed into the charts at number 15, then soared 12 places to number 3, and two weeks later it scaled to the very top of Pop Mountain, picking up Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor, holding it over its head, lobbing it over the side and bellowing triumphantly. This is its third week at number one, and here's a repeat of their performance from two weeks ago. And chaps, before we get into this, allow me to shave a frank beard, if you will, because (laughs) we all know the legend that's been bandied about for over 30 years about this single, don't we? Do we? Well, Lindy Layton was supposed to be in Grange Hill. Oh. And she was not, sir or madam. Uh. The so-called mainstream media got her confused with Lindy Brill, who played Kathy Hargreaves, and it never got corrected. Oh. And that 
fact has been circulating for over 30 years now, and I've just killed it. Oh, well done. Oh. Anyway, this single, t- to my mind, it's the first proper number one of the 90s, isn't it? So far, we've had Hanging Tough by New Kids on the Block, Tears on My Pillow by Kylie Minogue, Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor, but finally we get a single that sounds absolutely of its time. I- in other words, a song from six years ago sung over another song from 11 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it, you know what it I mean? does sound very of its time, and I think it has aged pretty well for something that does yes, it has. sound so 1990. Mm. And it's technically clever, isn't it? I mean, it, is, mm. is it the opposite of Jive Bunny, do you think, in most meaningful ways? Mm. It's another slow dance record, but, you know, with very yeah. few breaks in it, but it works. Mm. And another one with loads of space in it, like all of the low end is taken up with the bass. So the bass has like loads of room to stretch out and be a big fat bass. Mm. And it's a really interesting and carefully arranged assemblage of elements that all work really well together yeah. in a pleasing way that like well who would think to put these things together it's like well apparently these people mm. and this teenage girl brilliant it's one of those songs that's like a matchbox cascade it just goes round and round and round but you're quite happy to sit there and watch the balls bounce off the little bongos and go round again <laughs> yeah yeah it, the rhythmic part is, is so crisp it is like people sort of marching through a field of iceberg lettuce mm. <laughs> and there's no kick drum yeah. they're clearly people who understand music who have gone right back to the basics and chosen things very very carefully yeah it's a funny one this and it is a good record mm. largely because it's based on a better record two better records two better records and it's it's all and I, you know i'm not sort of you know griping and being sort of grumpy about it because i do like this mm. but it's it's quite hard to do a track like this with a dub bass line and a sort of you know haunted distant melody mm. uh and make it shit because mm. this kind of music is the easiest music in the world to play to a reasonable standard without having to try too hard. Because yeah. as soon as you've got the rhythm going and you've put down a heavy bass, it already sounds quite good. Mm. So all you have to do then is not spoil it, yeah. which they don't. Yeah, but that's that in itself is quite a skill, isn't it? It's like with with editing of, of writing, it's like sometimes the best thing to do is nothing. Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not sniping so much as saying that it's done cleverly. That's why this is the style of uh, black music that's most commonly approximated by white bedroom boys mm. because the entry level is so easy to get to. Yeah. And once you're there, you can draft in anything else you want, any other kind of sound or melody to layer over the top because there's no issues of authenticity to worry about. Mm. Um, there's no concerns about funk and the possession of. This doesn't exist in a hard dance floor space where you have to meet certain demands mm. and it doesn't exist in a, a specific urban hard knock space mm. where you need certain kinds of experience and knowledge to make it convincing it's basically reggae music that's expanded out into a space that lads like quentin understand like a stoned mind space where you don't need any tight connection to your own body and your own physicality you can be horizontal Mm. and not miss anything you know so growing these little window box flowers is within the reach of people like him Mm. you know and they're really nice it's only when you listen to like actual dub music like if you listen to the long version of no love by the twin roots Mm. you know or or something by keith hudson or termination dubbed by glenn brown you're stepping into a hundred mile square forest Hmm. of unearthly phantasmagoric blooms (laughs) against which this seems 
a little bit underwhelming. But it's because, appropriately enough, playing reggae, especially slow, moody, dubby type of reggae, is like playing the bass, in that the bass is the easiest instrument to play to a just-about acceptable standard, (laughs) which is why the crappiest musician in the band always gets put on bass. But... It's extraordinarily hard to play at that supersonic John Entwistle level Mm. where you're basically playing fast guitar solos but on an instrument with a much bigger neck and much bigger strings. Mm. And, you know, that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. Expanding access to music and to making good music is a good thing. And the more good records in the world... Uh, the better mm. you know mm. it's just, you know i'm just saying you're also obligated to point out that what they've really done here is take an sos band record which they wouldn't have been able to reproduce never mind originate mm. and space it out to the point where they can cope with it yeah you know that's all right it's yeah. more constructive than you know tipping slush puppies into pillar boxes <laughs> or whacking the funky drummer beat over strawberry fields forever yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This will be another song at the student disco that you'd be glad to hear. And easy to dance to as well. Yeah, you only have to look at Lindy Layton to see that. Yeah. <laughs> Bless her. She's, she's 17 or 18 here. And, you know, she's tiny, tiny. And she has mm. really great presence. And she doesn't yeah. have any makeup on because they, um, they, they said to her, like, don't get dressed up, don't put makeup on. So she's got the kind of proto Billie Eilish giant clothes on. Mm. I think it's cool when there's a woman on top of the pops and you can't see what her body's like. And she it's kind of a, it's quite a radical yeah. thing. And it is something that somebody that we have not yet collectively got over as evinced by Billie Eilish. Oh, look what she's wearing. Oh, look, she's got a big tracksuit on. Oh, she, mm. yeah. And then as soon as she's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to pose in a corset. Oh, blind. people just get extremely exercised about this one way or another so it's great it's always interesting and and cool to see somebody just like opt out of that altogether she's got this nice shiny oversized hooded top on and she's wearing a baseball cap with british knights on it which obviously means that she's a crip because at the time in uh, certain parts of america if you wore anything with bk on it it meant blood killer (laughs) so there you go oh god could you accidentally like declare your affiliation to either the bloods or the crips oh god yes what a fucking minefield there was a period where visitors to los angeles were advised what colors they should and shouldn't wear in certain areas Mm. because some of those those guys shoot on sight yeah that's why show waddy waddy had to cancel their tour of south central la (laughs) right about this time Yeah, I'd be sitting around going, well, we're playing Compton tonight, so at least two of us are going to get shot. Fuck that. How is there not a documentary yes. about this? <laughs> How has there not been a limited series on HBO? I know. <laughs> so go on. But it really helps that Quentin looks really shit in a Brazil sweatshirt and some yeah, troop yeah. tracksuit bottoms that he probably got from Four Star General. <laughs> and he's matched that with a white hat and some absolute fucking jumbo trainers. Kind of trainers that Chris Needham wears. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he manages not to wreck it. I mean, I like Lindy Layton's presence. I like the fact that she's not. I mean, she can sing, but she's not a singer. Do you know what I mean? She yeah. doesn't really project. There's no superfluous melismas yeah. or whatever, you know. We're not meant to care about her mm. tragic backstory, and we're not supposed to marvel at her lung capacity, like scouts for the swimming team, you know. Yeah. She didn't sing in tune. Um, she's got the bottle to get up there, or more precisely, the stage school training to get up there. And 
front the record you know and dance around like a cartoon gorilla because it is uh, dancing yeah. is like donkey kong taunting mario from <laughs> the top of his girded citadel so all the dance songs we've heard so far they're perfect for doing that dance where it looks like you're walking across a bouncy castle with a pint in each hand and you don't want to spill anything you know I mean? <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i still haven't forgiven her for getting in the way of silly games oh, yes. the way she did well yes but, yeah that was less uh, good. you know in this moment here it's all Mm. very natural and not annoying you know maybe given time annoyance may have come to pass but time was not forthcoming Mm. for beats international but what does bother me a little bit it's not specifically quentin it's just the general brightoniness or west londoniness of it i just get that feeling that these are the people you might a few years later see in bafflingly nice flats which you couldn't quite work out Mm. how they afforded you know with frame posters for the godfather and goodfellas on the walls calling each other man you know what i mean (laughs) i don't know it's just maybe it's just the way that the record doesn't really go anywhere and or these people are never in a rush they don't need a a Mm. direction you know i don't know that's the only thing i don't yeah. like about it this is the association with that that it's like it's made by people who have no mm. drive and no serious yeah. problems because you know what's coming down the tracks after this is the kind of oil spill ubiquity of fat mm. boy slim yeah that just choked everything yeah. that is so of its time and has aged so badly to mm. my ears that i'm always yes. astonished when there's a car advert with the fat boy slim track on it it's like really because it just sounds like it's from another time altogether you know yeah i guess he sort of has the good grace to look surprised about that himself but I think it was just that he had a certain thing and a certain ability and his way was probably smoothed quite nicely by other people and he had enough of an idea and enough of a work ethic and was lucky enough and all all these little Mm. things that need to come together to make you preposterously successful you know and he was prepared to you know do the kind of punishing touring and ridiculous hours that you had to do in order to be that Mm. successful and seemed to come out of it you know relatively unscathed which i think is becoming harder to do actually i think um you know i've I've seen enough kind of edm horror stories about people just completely losing it one way or another no but you're right though the fat boy slim stuff just reeks of that sort of cokey 90s shitheadedness Mm. you know what i mean i'm not suggesting he was on coke or anything like that of course whereas this is pure 1990 in that it's got that air of faint melancholy but it's like a, it's a happy yes. melancholy. It's like a nice sort of LSD come down <laughs> melancholy, you know. It works better, I think, now because we meet enough horrible, coked up, obnoxious lads today that when you hear old music that sounds like it is for them, it mm. sounds horrible. Whereas mm. this is a bit more distant. It's like we can't imagine living in a climate of cautious optimism (laughs) any more than we can imagine living in a tent on Pluto. You know what I mean? And I think records like this chimed very sweetly back then. And I think that's why they've aged better. Mm. I think that's also reflective of, uh, judging by the, uh, the, the story of 1990, top of the pops documentary right where kind of slightly unkind editing i think there's norman cook and lindy layton talking about this record and you know their collaboration and he's kind of quite embarrassingly going on about how struck he was by her and how he fell a little bit in love with her and then Mm. cuts to her and she's like yeah it was great meeting norman it was like meeting my brother (laughs) 
Oh, mate. <laughs> I think he was either mid-divorce or he was definitely heading that way. Mm. And it's like, oh, no, no, I'm going to work with this beautiful teenager. Oh. Mm. So I think sort of happy melancholy seems about right. It's one of those number ones that when it goes to number one, you just go, yeah, that makes sense. That's brilliant. Yeah. I'm not going to buy it, but I won't need to because I'm going to hear it all the time now for a bit. Yeah. So, Dub Be Good To Me would spend one more week at number one before being usurped by The Power by Snap and would finish the year as the seventh best-selling single of 1990. One ahead of Vogue by Madonna, one behind Show Me Heaven by Maria McKee. The follow-up, Won't Talk About It, got to number nine in May, but their last single of 1990, Burundi Blues with Janet Kay, only made it to number 51, and they never bothered the top 40 again, dissolving in late 1991. Meanwhile, Lindy Layton's solo career began with a cover of Silly Games, also assisted by Janet Kay, which got to number 22 in September. But her only other encroachment on the top 40 was We Got the Love, which got to number 38 in two weeks in April of 1993. She's now a songwriter. And after the disbandment of Beats International, Cook went on to form the band Freak Power, whose debut single Turn On, Tune In, Cop Out got to number 29 in October of 1993. But when it was used in a Levi's advert in 1995, it was re-released and entered the chart at number three in March of that year. And he'd go on to be Fat Boy Slim. a pretty good show and I think we delivered our side of the mic and that's Beats International stop tickling me and don't be good to me week three at number one well it's Phil Scofield coming up next on Radio 1 and it's EastEnders on BBC One I'll see you for breakfast tomorrow at 6.30 Gary Davis next week see you soon bye bye Mayo Firmly ensconced in the middle of a throng and complaining that he's being tickled, warns us that Philip Schofield is on Radio 1 right now. You're about to be subjected to EastEnders and Gary Davis is on next week before not even bothering to tell us who they're signing off with. I'll tell you, it's Don't You Love Me by 49ers. Formed in Brescia by the producer Gianfranco Bortolotti in 1988, 49ers were a four-handed collective of DJs and producers who named themselves after the San Francisco 49ers, but also because their original singer, Dawn Mitchell, was the 49th person to audition for them. After two singles that did next to nothing in Europe, they hit the jackpot with their third, Touch Me, which went down a treat in the UK, getting to number three in January of this year. This is the follow-up, which leans heavily on Jodie Watley's 1987 single, Don't You Want Me. And it's a new entry this week at number 28. Before we go any further, chaps, Philip Schofield in the Kid Jensen Janice long slot. That ain't right. It's a bit odd, isn't it? Top of the Pops is still being broadcast live on Radio 1, so I, I think they want all the kids to keep it locked to Radio 1 for a bit longer. But no, fuck off. Yeah, yeah. So finally, we get some actual house music. Yeah. It's 
not a prime example of the genre, I must admit. Mm. It, it is slightly mean to say it's landfill house music, but it's quite forgettable. Mm. It's kind of like the mild COVID of dance music. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it has all the elements. It kind this of sounds. This beat is omnichronic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there was loads of this at the time. Like, this is kind of, you know, throwaway, soulful dance stuff. It yeah. kind of sounds like 10 other more familiar, slightly better things. Mm. Yeah, it's a nice sound. It's kind of slightly tinny, but it's pleasing. A um, mm. little bit of house piano, black lady singer, some bloke interjecting. You know, yes. it's a very nice, familiar sound palette and a respectable BPM. Yeah, it's your bog standard house video, isn't it? Lots of party people who are more attractive than you getting busy and working that body and even i contend striking a pose yeah it's essentially a, an extended christmas perfume advert isn't it before perfume adverts went mad yeah what i'm really hearing here i think is the roland 909 all oh, right yeah i might be wrong because it, it's not quite my manner but i think it's that the box that was a, a big part of the sound of the early 90s there's a lot of hits from this period that mm. are elevated by the sweet tambourine sound on that machine like do you remember that awful record insanity by oceanic and it's uh there's like a double time tambourine sound that comes in on the chorus and it's <laughs> so good that it almost convinces you that what you're listening to is decent when in fact it's not it's mm. terrible it's like if lazy town made a record yeah, but this is okay. This is—I mean, this is one of the most okay records you could ever hear. It's nothing special, but you mm. know, at least it smells of exuberance and poppers. Yeah, do you remember when poppers were bisexual? <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? Gay blokes have always had poppers, but I remember when kids used to do them. Really young, yeah. straight kids, like oiks. You know, they were like the <laughs> gateway drug. They were like the top deck shandy of drugs. It's like doing <laughs> yes. balloons now. They used yeah, to do poppers. Yeah. I remember going to the Heavenly Sunday Social years ago when it was in a pub basement. Someone would always smash a vial of amyl nitrate on the dance floor to create a, a miasma, you know. Yeah. Uh, nowadays, amyl nitrate seems to be exclusively gay. And who can yeah. blame it, I suppose, you know. Is it still legal? Or did it get swept away along with everything else that makes you feel any feelings with the Psychoactive Substances Act of 2015 or whatever it was? I'm not sure. There's little golden barrels of something for sale in my local pound shop, but I haven't investigated yeah. nice. that close. Are you sure that's not like vape juice? Yeah, it could be, could be. Yeah. I mean, I'm not personally much of an expert on either dancing or homosexuality <laughs> i only dance when yosemite sam points his six gun at my feet and i only do the other when he points it at my head yeah. or offers what is at least to me a substantial sum of money but this record appears to me to be an example of acid house gay crossover and i'm not sure how much of a crossover there really was because i'm just shooting in the dark here because although gay people will take drugs and dance to electronic music if pushed it's usually not while dressed in a fucking moo no. and a helmet haircut no. in a field on the outskirts of brain tree no. there's very few styles of modern pop 
popular music that didn't originate with gay people or black people or both mm. and acid house obviously came down those same roads but it's my perception is that there was a branch of house that went directly from chicago to the gay clubs without mm. passing through that field in braintree and yeah. another branch that snagged all the straight suburban kids and soundtracked all those summer nights of boggle-eyed idiot dancing right but that's mm. the one that's seen as significant because of who yeah. it appealed to right yeah, yeah, and yeah. the fact that it later extended into stuff like the charmingly named intelligent dance music well, oh. what joy that was right was the other yeah, branch intelligent drum and bass fucking hell right was the, was the other branch led directly to euro dance and stuff mm. that was actually fun and that lots yeah. of people really liked and you know I mean, I'm out of my element here, but it just seems to me like familiar patterns of snobbery and self-appointed objective judgment in pop music, mm. you know. Mm. Well, maybe. <laughs> Anything else to say about this? Yeah, it's like if somebody made a film about 90s dance music, but they couldn't afford to license any of the hits. <laughs> so they had to get all the music off a library album called something like KPM 1396874 House. <laughs> it's like the album of library music I've got uh, in the Britpop style. KPM Ooh. Britpop with a Union Jack on the front. It's oh, fucking hilarious. I that. It's really good. It's a load of generic... Britpop style tracks, like Britpop flavored tracks with uh, titles like Look So Pretty, Smashing Time, <laughs> All Right With You, Believe, Shake Me, Let It Roll. It's a hilarious fucking proof of how easy that shit was to spoof and bluff mm. right it's the sort of non-real records that you hear in JD Sports right or right. or in shaking supermarkets right it's basically musical clip art yeah i think some of them were written by jake shillingford the bloke from oh, my really? life story yeah no doubt while cackling through grimly gritted teeth um i mean having met the fellow a few times i would imagine he'd be able to play it both ways in his mind right as a mm. simultaneously a sort of inverted glamorous down on your luck scene and an intriguing interlude for the imaginary biography of the future, you know, <laughs> mm. like Lou Reed churning out cashing songs for Pickwick Records, you know, except that that was before the Velvet Underground. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not quite the Brill building, but I mean, there are actual Britpop records in the charts that were worse than some of the tracks on there, you know. Yeah. And say what you like about the 49ers, which in our case is uh, clearly not very much, but they were better than any of that. So, the following week, Don't You Love Me soared 14 places to number 14, and a week later managed to get to number 12, its highest position. The follow-up, Girl to Girl, got to number 31 in June of this year, which would be their last pinch of the charty arse until 1995, when Rockin' My Body also got to number 31 in March of that year. And that, me dears, closes the book on this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One kicks on with Doc Cotton being deluged with begging letters after a big bingo win in EastEnders. And then Tomorrow's World looks at a dam in Leningrad that Soviet environmentalists want to blow up.
Then it's half an hour of painter and decorator related slagging about in brush strokes, followed by the nine o'clock news, Ben Elton, the man from Ante, Crime Watch UK, Question Time, a Crime Watch UK update, highlights from the racing and highlights from the cricket. BBC Two has just started 925, the work-based magazine show, and are looking at how and why Britain has the shittiest workforce training record in Europe and what the fuck we intend to do about it. After a repeat of Yes Minister, Michael Burke nips over to Niagara Falls and has a good look at it and then investigates why salmon has become cheaper than cod in the eco-show Nature. Then it's the first episode in the new series of French and Saunders who have a go at the sound of music and ABBA. This week's 40 Minutes documentary is The Bernie Mob Go Wild, where nine lads from the rough bit of Dundee go on a survival course on an uninhabited island and swear a lot. Then Small Objects of Desire looks at the history of the aspirin, then it's Newsnight, The Late Show, Half an Hour of Open University and Art. ITV has put on science fiction, shaking tomorrow's world, (laughs) then it's the bill, then this week looks at new legislation designed to meet the green policies that the public are demanding at the moment. After the last in the series of Taggart, it's News at 10, regional news in your area, a regional politics show in your area, Prisoner Cell Block H, Contacts, a load of personal video ads for people who want sex and all sorts, then it's the WWF show Superstars of Wrestling, some celebrity rambled from America, Three's Company, America's Top 40 and News until 6am. Channel 4 finally get round to a repeat of the final episode of Brass, the Timothy West comedy series set in a mining town in the 30s, followed by The Crystal Maze, the 1989 film Wildflowers about a lesbian affair on the west coast of Scotland, a documentary on the Holocaust poet Karen Gershon called Stranger in a Strange Land, and they finished the night with the 1985 French film Vertige about the rehearsal stage of a production of The Marriage of Figaro. Oh, Channel 4, still Channel 4. <laughs> so, me dears, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? I really don't. I think I might have been lost for words, mm. <laughs> even at this tender age. <laughs> uh, at the time, I think I was suckered into getting cross about Candy Flip, but mm. I think nowadays it'd be, my God, did you see Bobby Gillespie dancing like he'd been hung from a lamppost? <laughs> <laughs> Prancing like a tit. <laughs> <laughs> What are we buying on Saturday? Probably Beats International. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure I'd actually buy any of these records, all of which are more interesting to talk about than listen to. Mm. But I think Beats International is is the one that sounds sweetest to me now. And what does this episode tell us about March of 1990? The 90s haven't really started yet but you can kind of Mm. see a little bit of which way the wind is blowing and it's amazing how positively you can respond to almost anything when you're 17 and on drugs you know (laughs) there's that sense of since this is my time it follows that all this music belongs to me and is therefore Mm. a part of me like a skin tag you know (laughs) and then stretching out ahead the endless plane of fortune 
But, you know, you make the best of it. And on that note, we come to the end of this episode of Chart Music. Use your promotional flange, www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at chartmusictotp, money down the G-string, patreon.com slash chart music thank you sarah b Toodaloo. god bless you taylor parks mind how you go my name's al needham and when i buy my flares i make sure they're really tight at the top and round the back side so the overall shape looks better <laughs> <laughs> chart music Children? Oh no. Nice name. Ladies and gentlemen, now where are we? Over here. This is. Uh, Who gives a fuck? This is uh, another in our very popular series, Interviews with Drunken Rock Stars. But here, Wayne Hussey from the Mission, and uh, he's celebrating because, listen, you're doing well, aren't you? Number what in, what in the charts? I don't uh, num- fucking know. You don't know? No, no, number. Uh, <laughs> Number 27. Number 27. Oh, thanks, James. Number 27. Thank you, James. Number 27. Thank you for reminding me. It's very privileged to be here, actually. Yeah, yeah, this is yeah, a very nice yeah. occasion for me and everything. Yeah. Fantastic. You've got lovely glasses. In Do you like them? Yours are quite yeah. nice. They're sort of a little Lennon-esque, aren't let's, they, really? Let's swap. Let's swap. Let's swap. Let's Let's swap. swap. Well, let's, try let's, let's, swap. swap. let's have a, let's have a go. All right, thank you very much indeed. Let's have a, oh, they're nice. Let's, let's have a go. Oh, bloody hell. Wayne, Wayne, either you've been taking something that sort of transmitted through the glasses I've got, or... I've got perfect vision, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. Let's swap back, You Wayne. haven't, have you? No, no, no. My Where God. are they? Well, they're, um, sorry, can you... Don't, don't, oh. don't do that to there, me. There, there you go, right. Wayne, listen, I mean, this all came as a bit of a, sh- a shock to you, all this stardom over the last year or so, hasn't it? Don't you think? Has it fuck? Well, I expected it, really. You did? Well, why is the camera on me? Well, well no, it's on here. Number one on you. Number one on you. Uh, there you oh, go. Number, number, see, number, no, you see, see the little... No, the interesting thing... I'll show you. Wait, look, the, <laughs> the this this is a beautiful the little, thing. You see, you see the red lights over there? Red lights. Oh, yeah, number yeah, one red there. lights. Red lights. Let's, number one there. Yeah, that's okay, right. Let's go round. Number two in the middle, over here. Beautiful. Number two over there. Beautiful. And then over there, number three. Fantastic. You can count. Yeah, you know, not that's bad. That's, that's not bad. more than I yeah. thought. I no, thought no, you were no, no, please. Please, what do you think about I love your earrings, actually. Do you like mine? Yeah, yours is nice. Yeah. Uh, Wayne, what about the future? Do you pr- like predicting the future or not? I could give a shit, actually. You couldn't? Nah. No? The future is here. Yeah. Fuck the f- rest yeah. of the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give yeah. us that bottle of wine back. Yeah, you want another swig? Yeah. Okay. No, I want, I want the fucking uh, lot, man. John- Jonathan, should we. Um, Bring Jonathan. I think you better come in here for a few moments, Jonathan, and sit down. This will probably ruin your Hi, entire Wayne. rough. All right, man. Yeah. I wish I was wearing my caftan now. Yeah, have the hat. Uh, can I wear that? You don't yes. mind it? I don't yeah, mind It'll make him happy. Yes, it'll I'll make him happy. Oh, it's not an earring, after all. How about, how about, how about that? That's okay, Chef. That's not bad, is it? I'm what do you think? You're a pillock. <laughs> well, thank you, Wayne. <clears throat> I liked you until now. The mission were one of my favourite bands. We still are. Um, Let's uh, let's have a little look through here, Wayne. Watch my finger now. Um, 
What's your date of birth? No, no. Well, let's do. Let's put you on the computer. Have you got him on the computer? No, I can put him into the computer. Let's put easily. him into the computer. What's your date of birth, Wayne? I've forgotten. I was going to say this could. Anybody be know Wayne's date of birth? Twenty sixth of May. Twenty sixth of May. Twenty sixth of May. <laughs> and I was nine twenty eight. Nineteen. No, nine. Go on. Sixty-seven. Seven. Seven. Yeah. Now, <laughs> this nineteen. Um, difference. Now come along, Wayne. Well, I nineteen fifty-nine. I would say fifty-eight, fifty-nine. Mm. What do you think? I think that. Are you a bunch of pollocks? No, no, Wayne. Please, we're we're. Doing our best, Wayne. We, we can't all be pop stars, you see. We can't all well, be yeah, you're going to read me fucking astrological yeah. chart by computer. Well, come on, give yeah, us that's, your date. That's right on. Give us your date. Hey, oh, Nirvana and I'll all tell that you shit. What? If I, what, what I could do is show you the difference that oh. uh, a year would make in yeah. a person's life. We could work it out by could prime you, and error. Could you do that? Yeah, well, yeah. if I set it yeah. down for 67, as Wayne says, yeah. and press calculate here, yeah. what we get... You got it wrong, ain't you, Chuck? Oh, sure, but let's see what kind of a different chart we get. And you can see that here... Oh, that's nice. Wayne's yeah. broken in the middle. Look at that. He's no, no. broken completely in the middle. Which camera's on? Yeah. Can you carry on with that? Can yeah, you I've just a moment. All right. Wayne, look, I've got... Hang on, just, just a minute. Just a minute, Wayne. Just a minute, Wayne. Just a minute. I've got something to show you. I want to show you Come here. Come here, Wayne. You are going to chuck me. No, no, no. Wayne. 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 Come over here. Over here, Wayne. While we're taking care of that, what happens over here? Just Pop, pop him outside the door here yeah. for a minute. That's, I'm yeah. going to pull up okay. another year. Just, right. yeah. Now, uh, <laughs> now, now, wait, wait, just stay hey. over here. Uh, hey. ro roll VT and... Uh, <laughs> wait, right, okay. 461000. He's waiting for your call now. I'm sorry about that. Now, don't for one minute think that we're going to have throw out a rock star every week on the show, because that would get monotonous and boring. But if you do have uh, somebody you'd like to see thrown out of the show live on a Friday night, then please write to me, James Whale, at Yorkshire Television. All right? I'm sorry about that, Jonathan. It's, it's embarrassing for a guest. I, I, I didn't think that he was, uh, you know, Wayne has had a really good gig tonight. He's been playing locally and he's, he's, he's on a real high. Mm. And I'm sorry. It's nice, isn't it, though? Because if you're a rock star, you can get away with that and it only makes your image look even better. Do you better think so? I don't know. I don't know about that. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.